We are proud to announce WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You may have heard me mention the WrestleCopia brand in passing on a variety of our shows. You might be asking, what is WrestleCopia? Well, the name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast never continues to grow with a variety of podcasts. Everything from our show, The Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we take a trip down memory lane to wrestling history's past as we analyze and dissect complete years of wrestling history from your favorite promotions, to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. TR Shocks the World, where host Tom Robinson makes his long-awaited return to the wrestling airwaves. Tom does everything from break down the current product to share inside stories and memories from years gone by. It's discretion advised as TR shocks the world with his strong opinions, hilarious impressions, and so much more. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era, with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser-known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter, at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter, at WrestleCopia, for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. guys and welcome back to the wrestling memory grenade and it is episode number 58 and i'm feeling great it's time to set the stage for the world wrestling federation in 1987 and i am your host ray russell and i am excited to get things going guys salivating at the idea of tackling the year of 1987 in the wwf and it all begins right here with episode number 58 and right out of the gate, I got to thank all of our new listeners, so many new listeners over the last several weeks here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Don't think you've gone unnoticed. The numbers, they just keep climbing, so please keep spreading the word. Tell your friends about us. Hopefully they'll give us a try and they like what they hear too. And for those of you who listen to the show for information, fun, sound bites, or all of the above, I've got news for you guys. I've got all of that coming your way on this episode of The Grenade and every future episode of The Grenade here in 1987 as well. Tons, tons to get to, but before we do that, 
I must tell you that you can listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network on WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and all of your favorite podcast streaming apps from Apple, Spotify, Google Pod, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Audible on Amazon, iHeartRadio, and so many more. Also now on the Facebook app here in the United States under our RSS feed. And another quick reminder, now that we have an additional group of listeners, a reminder that the Wrestling Memory Grenade and even the WrestleCopia Podcast Network looking for new co-hosts. So it's a great time to jump in, guys, if you want to be the new co-host here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade as we start 1987 in the WWF. Or maybe, maybe you'd be more interested in joining the Monday Warfare, the Battles Within podcast as we break down in chronological order week to week, Raw versus Nitro. And what a good time to join that show because the NWO is just about to take over in WCW. We've just entered June of 1996 over there on Monday Warfare, our sister podcast here on WrestleCopia. And if you're not looking to be a full-time co-host, no problem. We're looking for full-time, part-time, guest co-hosts from other shows. Come plug your podcast here on WrestleCopia, and let's have some fun conversation in the process. It's all about creating new content for the listeners out there. And all you need to join in on the conversation is have a microphone, the ability to use Skype Messenger, and a little free time to record some shows. That's all it takes, guys. That's all I need from you. And you can contact me about becoming a co-host by emailing me, Ray Russell, at WrestleCopia at gmail.com. That's WrestleCopia at gmail.com. Or DM me on Twitter at WrestlingGrenade. Also a good time to remind you guys to head on over to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube.com slash WrestlingGrenade. I continue to add new footage, guys, including some 1987 fun, some of the early matches of Demolition pre-Barry Darso, the original Smash, Moondog Rex, Randy Colley added to our YouTube channel, as well as some of the early Piper's Pits between Hulk Hogan and Andre. The story, you get what I'm saying, leading into WrestleMania 3. All kinds of other fun little tidbits, too. Lots of people have been marking out for a little segment of the Madison Square Garden January 19th, 1987 Garden Show that I added, where Andre the Giant confronts Hulk Hogan after Hogan gets the big win over Kamala. Andre comes into the ring and hands over the WWF title to his good buddy Hulk Hogan, though very interesting fashion the way Andre does it. And it all leads, well, you guys know what it leads to, but really fun stuff, and, and a lot of people hadn't seen that. So that's up there now also on our YouTube channel, plus more with Billy Jack Haynes and Hercules, the old LJ and Thumb Wrestlers commercial, one of the first matches between the Macho Man and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat after Steamboat's return from the larynx injury. There's a lot of good stuff over there right now, so subscribe. Head on over and subscribe to YouTube.com slash WrestlingGrenade. More to be added each and every week. Also, stop on over to our Twitter account. You can follow us on Twitter at WrestlingGrenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N, Grenade, home of the free prize giveaway. Also, follow and like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash WrestlingGrenade. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and or Facebook for your chance to enter and win all future free prize giveaways. But wait a minute, Ray. Weren't you already giving away a free prize? Yes, I was, guys. Ah, oh, you caught me. I thought I could keep them. Nope, I'm giving them away. And I give them away right now, in fact. I'm giving them away today. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, for the last several weeks, I've been promoting this current free prize giveaway of four wrestling magazines spanning four separate decades, from the 50s to the 80s. A boxing and wrestling magazine from 1952 
a pair of wrestling review magazines from 1966 and 1974, and a 1984 wrestling magazine as well. All four magazines being given away to one winner here today on The Grenade. And without further ado, I think, I think it's time to announce said winner. So drum roll, please. All right, guys, and here it is, the winner of the current free prize giveaway of the four magazines spanning 1952 to 1984. The winner is Miss, or maybe Mrs., Olivia Anderson. That's with two S's, of Dundee, Scotland. Congratulations, Olivia Anderson. I already alerted her of her win. She's already claimed the prize. I will be sending it in the mail, Olivia, early next week. I'll let you know when it's on the way. But Olivia sent me back a little special message for her husband, a Mr. Harris Anderson, who is also a follower of the grenade. Harris, she just wants you to know that she plans to share her winnings with you. So, ah, oh, how kind. Olivia, you're the winner of all four wrestling magazines. Olivia, a big fan of the old school wrestling, as is her husband. So congratulations there to Harris, who found himself a real winner in Olivia. And Olivia, you are the winner here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Congratulations, both of them followers on Facebook here of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And you too can win our future free prize giveaways. And all you have to do is be a follower of the Grenade. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade or follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Again, that's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And congratulations to Olivia. And I guess congratulations to Harris, who gets to share the magazines, gets to look at them too. So two winners technically here this week. On the Wrestling Memory Grenade, we've got another free prize giveaway right around the corner. We'll be announcing it in the next week or two. I'm very excited. We'll be giving that one away as part of the WrestleMania 3 episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. It might tie in. So, hmm, think about that for a minute, guys. You'll want to follow us now for your chance to enter and win our next free prize giveaway coming with our WrestleMania 3 episode. And once again, a final congratulations to, I guess, Olivia and Harris Anderson with two S's. Now is also a great time to be a patron of WrestleCopia as we have revamped our Patreon account. Yes, the all-new WrestleCopia Podcast Network Patreon account, which you can find over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Over a dozen tiers to choose from, but you guys know which one I promote by now. It's that $5 all-access tier. Includes one, two, three, four, five gifts for $5. Unbelievable. What a steal. And those gifts include all of my insanely detailed show notes from both the Wrestling Memory Grenade and the Monday Warfare podcast, including early access to show notes prior to shows dropping. For instance, show notes to this episode, they dropped a couple days early on Patreon. You'll also receive early access to many of our WrestleCopia podcasts. Listen days, sometimes even a week before the rest of the listeners out there. You'll also receive unedited versions of TR Shocks the World starring Tom Robinson as host of the show, formerly of the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. Shout out to Brian Last out there. But yes, you'll get unedited versions of TR Shocks the World. And of course, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series featuring tons of WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Saturday night's main event, Flair and Steamboat, Clash 6, March to WrestleMania 9, the USA Special, and so much more, and now added to the $5 all-access tier. Yes, there's even more for $5. It's remastered versions of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. The earliest episodes of the Grenade have been remastered with enhanced sound quality and new content 
originally edited out of our initial broadcast of the shows. You heard me right. New content on the earliest episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. All of that for the low, low price of just $5. The all-access tier, once again, gets you all of my insanely detailed show notes, early access to many of the WrestleCopia podcasts, unedited versions of TR Shocks the World, all of the Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, and now remastered versions of the earliest episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And there's no subscription. You can cancel your Patreon anytime. Just give it a go for a month. And I think you'll like the content we offer. And every penny of it, guys, goes right back into the podcast network. So please help us pay some of the bills to keep the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, TR Shocks the World, and even more up and running for the years to come. And now it's time, guys. It's time to set the stage for 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. The recognized symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. Okay, guys, and it's time to set the stage for 1987, which means we're going to look at the fallout from 1986. So I'm ready to go. I hope you guys are ready to go. Listeners, I hope you're ready because I sure am. Macho Man. Hey, Macho Man Randy Savage, are you ready for 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation? Because I've been high before. Okay. uh, Thanks for sharing. Uh, But I don't think you heard the question right. I asked you, Macho Man, are you ready for 1987 in the WWF? Slap your face and put you against the wall. Oh, oh my. Alrighty, uh, we'll move right along then. Uh, hey, B. Brian Blair of the Killer Bees, are you ready for 1987 in the WWF? Jimmy and I ate so much honey today that I am so excited. I got so much energy. Mean Gene, my toes started tapping and my wings started flapping. Ooh, what did they lace that honey with? My God, what are you guys doing? Here's an honest guy. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, welcome back to the World Wrestling Federation. Will you make the Wrestling Memory Grenade a priority in your life? You are a priority in my career right now. <clears throat> well, I, I, I do appreciate your support, Ricky, but um, do, do go on and let your, uh, your throat heal there. Ah, Lord Alfred Hayes, what say you? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Oh, your lordship. You always sound like a soundbite. Here we go. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, what do you most look forward to here in 1987? The thing that I love most is taking a man and putting him between my legs. Well, to each their own, I suppose. Why, it's WWF champion Hulk Hogan. Do you have anything to add before we get going here? I'm getting up on this victory. 
Well, I, I guess whatever gets you off, Hulk. Slick, Doctor of Style. Wait, just give me a minute here. Doctor of Style Slick, is there anything I can do to get a straight answer from you? I'm asking everybody. I'm going around asking everybody, are they ready for 1987 of the World Wrestling Federation? I can't seem to get a straight answer. What will it take for me to get an answer from the Doctor of Style? Money. I see. Well, I, I should have known. Unfortunately, that's not in the grenade budget right now. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for all of the wrestlers and say, yes, I think everybody is ready here for 1987 in the WWF. And I do apologize to you guys, the listeners out there, because I couldn't get a straight answer from any of the boys, but it is uh, 1987, so the boys will be the boys. But I do apologize. No worries, mate. I'm out back, Jack. Well, that's uh, good to know, Jack, but I, I didn't ask you. We'll see a whole lot more from Outback Jack here as the year goes on. But with all of that out of the way, in all seriousness, guys, it's time to get going. Here it is, 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. And we kick things off with a whole bunch of news and notes. And all right, and before we get into 1987, let's look at the fallout from 1986. Everything that was going on leading into 1987 to show you what made 87 so very special. And we kick things off right away. It's au revoir. To the Montreal Territory. See what I did there? Au revoir. French Canadians. For a year now, Vince has pillaged the territories as the national expansion in full swing here by 1987. Of course, Crockett's picking up the pieces as well. But Vince McMahon, he, he gets another one, guys. It's the Montreal Territory this time around, which does tremendous numbers. And Vince McMahon knows it. And, and Vince McMahon goes in and he makes some deals. It's just like most other territories. Things aren't as good as they used to be. And even though maybe the arena is selling out, there's just a whole lot of other issues ongoing. And Vince, he's a sly devil. He knows it. And he comes in and he makes some deals with all of the top talent in Montreal. He brings over the Rougeau brothers full-time by the fall. The Rougeaus had actually been with the company for most of 86, at least working WWF shows up in the Quebec area, as well as doing some tours of Australia for the WWF. But the Rougeaus come over full-time by the fall of 86. And the other big one, Dino Bravo, essentially the Hulk Hogan of the Montreal Territory. Yes, I'm not joking, you guys. Dino Bravo, who I was a big fan of his 70s work in the WWF, but Bravo had a piece of the office. Bravo was the big name there, the big drawing star, part of the Montreal Territory. And Vince even takes him away from the Montreal Territory, which essentially causes the territory to fold up for all intents and purposes. Of course, other guys working there at that time, Rick Martel, another very famous French-Canadian, former AWA champion at this time, and he had been with the WWF in the past as tag team champions with Tony Correa. So the WWF fans knew who Rick Martel was. They bring him back over, but they bring along with him his new tag team partner, Tom Zink. And here in the WWF, they're going to be called the Can-Am Connection, as in the Canadian and American Connection. Zink from Minnesota, and of course, Rick Martel from Quebec. So lots of new stars coming in here over the fall in the WWF, all from the Montreal Territory, the Rougeau brothers, Rick Martel, now with Tom Zink, Dino Bravo. He even grabbed Frenchie Martin in the uh, supplemental picks here of what was left over in Montreal. Even Frenchie Martin gets a job in the World Wrestling Federation because, hey, the WWF is going to three shows a night, and they need to fill those rosters. Frenchie Martin, a solid hand from way back, and you guys might know him better as the future manager of Dino Bravo, but first, he was here doing jobs all the way back in uh, 1986, heading into 87. So another territory bites the dust. And uh, Houston, next up on the mind of Vince McMahon, no doubt, is Crockett 
continues to take over the likes of Kansas City and Florida and things of that nature. Vince McMahon doing well himself, taking over some of the territorial spots. And we're starting to run out of territories here. Yeah, Don Owen still has Portland. We'll always have Memphis. But outside of that, there's, there's world class, which is kind of falling apart here by 1987. Certainly not drawing what it used to. There's the AWA, again, more of a shadow of, of what it used to be. And then Bill Watts UWF, which seems to be doing well, at least in syndication, but maybe not so much at the house shows. Bill Watts going to be the next one to come looking for a buyer. And we'll see how that plays out right around, I say, I think April of 1987. But we move on here as we talk key rivalries, some key rivalries, some feuds. Heading into 1987, we're going to kick things off with Rowdy Roddy Piper and the adorable Adrian Adonis. And as we begin to dissect a, a few of the major feuds here leading into the new year, let's go back and see how this really all unfolds between Piper and Adonis. We go all the way back, honestly, to WrestleMania II. Roddy Piper versus Mr. T in the boxing match. Briefly thereafter, Roddy Piper does a short tour of Kuwait for the WWF, and then he disappears from all WWF programming, all the house shows. Roddy Piper just disappears. He's on a hiatus, if you will, from the business, and he's gone from some point in April and doesn't return full-time until August television. Now, he does do a brief return in July to work the Providence King of the Ring tournament for whatever reason, but Roddy Piper essentially gone from April until August here in 1986, and during his time away, Roddy Piper's pit was replaced by a new talk show, Adrian Adonis's Flower Shop. And that began all the way back in May of 1986. The Flower Shop replaced Roddy Piper's Piper's Pit. Now, here's the host of the Flower Shop, adorable Adrian! Oh, thank you once again, Jimmy. However, the Hot Rod would return in the middle of August, replacing Don Morocco as the guest on the flower shop, and almost immediately it becomes obvious Roddy Piper starting to tween, maybe making that baby face turn because he has some comments that he has for Adrian Adonis, some fun stuff as the crowd pops at some of the comments Roddy Piper's making it. What had become of his Piper's pit, now the flower shop. Where you been? Hello, how are you? I would like to say that you have been doing a tremendous job in my absence, and I would like to thank you for taking it over, but I'm here to take my show back, and the first thing that has to go are these damn flowers. That's the first thing. Uh, I hate to uh, disillusion you, but I know summer rerun. This is now the flower shop. The contract states that this is the flower shop on this show permanently, my friend. Wait, 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 wait a second. You don't seem to understand something. I invented this. Invented it? We're talking 1995. We're talking the flower shop. And here's another stormy surprise. Hi, AC. AC? Did I get that right? They call you AC now? What are you doing, man? What are you doing? It's plain and simple. Peanuts, you were paying me peanuts compared to what Jimmy and Adrian are paying me, man. It's money, plain and simple. Tell me something. Does how much money did he pay you to wear pink, man? Uh, Mr. Piper, Mr. Piper, it's dollars and cents. This is, a, this is a flower shop, man. You wasn't invited out here. This is the flower shop. The flower shop. This is what this is. You're not invited out here at all. Nothing at all. 
I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm taking my show back. I'm giving you a chance. You can come with me or stay with him. Wait, you ain't taking nothing, man. Shut up! Shut up! Run, man. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something, mister. If you choose to stay here, maybe we got a case of AC Ducey. And what it looks like is birds of a feather flock together here, brother. And this continued the following week when Roddy Piper again interrupted another flower shop segment featuring Freddie Blassie, Slick, and their entourage of Sheik, Volkoff, and Hercules. Fluffy, anytime I wanted to come here, I could come here, and now I want to talk with you, Fluffy. Well, um, I owe this time to these people right here, and I'll find some time for you later, okay? Wait, you call these people? I mean, first of all, where did you get those lips, huh? I want to apologize to each and every one of you great athletes. So Piper returns and immediately begins interrupting himself, intervening into these flower shop segments. And by September, Adrian Adonis was hand-delivered a letter on said flower shop that stated that his talk show, The Flower Shop, would be preempted next week in favor of the return of Piper's Pit. Well, you can imagine that didn't sit well with adorable Adrian, and that following week on Piper's Pit, his very first guest back is Ken Resnick, of all people. And now it's Adonis's turn to interrupt Roddy Piper on his talk show. And Adonis shows up with not just himself, but manager Jimmy Hart, and what used to be Roddy Piper's apparently now former bodyguard, the ace cowboy Bob Orton, but Bob Orton looking a little different here. He's, he's wearing a pink cowboy hat. The boss is back. The first, the first thing that we got rid of here on the pit was them damn flowers. That's the first thing that can go. We got rid of all that silly makeup. Nobody here wears a wig. What you got here is all man is what you got. Let me tell you something, Mr. Brigadoon, you backstabber, you lowlife, you liceball, you Judas, you egotistical ham bone. You're old news, Piper. You're old news. It's like I'm watching MASH three times on one night. I'm going to tell you something right now, Piper. The flower shop has class. You're so egotistical. I thought you were a man. I'm a real man. Let's put it this way, I'm 1995. Your old hat, you're stale. The flower shop is today. I made history on national TV. And I'm gonna tell you something, Mr. Piper. You had to go behind my back to the WWF higher echelon, you sneaky lowlife. Hey, pal, you ever heard of the Battle of the Bands? 
Have I ever heard of the Battle of the Bands? You ever heard of the World Series? Yes. Yes. Well, I'm going to make a challenge right now. Two weeks, two weeks from today, I am going to have a debate with you what the people really want, the flower shop or Piper's Pit. Are you trying to tell me that you want to debate one-on-one -on -one with me? You're going to give me two weeks to get ready? Is that what you're saying, man? That's right, Richard Nixon. Listen, we don't need two weeks if you want a contest. I'll sit down. We can do it now. Sit down. Roddy Piper, of course, has his choice words for the trio before Adonis challenges Roddy Piper to a talk show showdown. In two weeks' time, he wants Piper's pit to go head-to-head -head with the flower shop to determine who is the best talk show in the World Wrestling Federation. And we fast forward two weeks to that showdown, a war of words between Adonis and Roddy Piper as they both try to interview their guests. Roddy Piper's guest, the magnificent Morocco, Adrian Adonis's guest, Cowboy Bob Orton. Roddy Piper insulted a lot of people, and Roddy Piper needed a backbone, a man like me to stand behind him and make sure he could say whatever he had to say, because people knew he had to come through me to get to Piper. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You sure are an ugly son of an unnamed gold, aren't you, man? And you, you couldn't hold my jockstrap on your best day. Point C, which I'll get to right now, point C is that every time Roddy Piper and I were together, who was it to carry the load? I carried the load, Daddy. You did all the talking, and you stole all the glory. You are the best. Wait, 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 wait one second. You know, listen, you old cow. Listen, you old cow. I am the inventor. Mr. Cameraman, come on over here. Come on over here. Get over here. I want to tell you something. I am doing this for one reason. I am not trying to be the nicest guy in the world. I am not trying to run for president. What I think this guy's doing to wrestling is damn right sickening, man. I think that you looking like that and making a, just a complete idiot of yourself like that I think that for my sport, it is absolutely silly, so I took it upon myself, as you know that I can do it sometimes. <laughs> Adrian, Adrian, don't want you to feel lonely. That's okay, sweetheart, we don't want you tripping on your pantyhose. You just stay back there, honey. Uh, I have for you, and I have a man who hosted the body shop in Jesse Ventura's absence, he is a man of note, and he is not only a great wrestler, but a great commentator. His name is Magnificent Morocco. I would like to thank him while he's been gone for doing a tremendous job of imitating me, and I think that you're great, and thank you for being here. What's well, my pleasure being on the body shower? The, uh, I'm sorry, it's a pit. There we go. Well, I, I never considered myself actually as imitating you. Well, well, ob obviously because I don't stutter like you do. I can understand that. Not only that, not only that, I don't 
dress my shirt in this. Have you noticed this cute little bowl we got here just above the neck? I'm just teasing with you now. You, you, you really got a lot of room to talk about clothes. Uh, you have one t-shirt, one skirt, and the little belt that Kilt. you wear around. Kilt, excuse me. Oh, and I suppose you think you're Don Johnson, huh? You're hanging around like this, huh? I've got my credentials. I put my time in. I have never imitated no man. You have never imitated no man. You again. Let me tell you something. The flower shop, Mr. Morocco, you know yourself, is past. It is the greatest. It is the future. It is 1995. Look at the plant. How dreary it is. My flowers, prize-winning petunias, tulips, fantastically. First prize, blue ribbon. This has been a real pleasure being on this show. I thought this was my time to be interviewed as an intelligent individual, to be treated as, as a man who knew something about wrestling talk shows. You have turned this into a cartoon, and you're I am, What I am trying to stop is a cartoon by this idiot over here. That is what I am trying to stop. This is America. We are allowed to dress as we want, come as we want, go as we want, do exactly what we please. I have children. I have children. I don't want my children watching this idiot. I do not want it. This is a free spirit. You can deny. That's why he has that much more class. That's why his ratings are that much higher. That's why he is that more, much more of an intelligent individual than yourself. So you want to tell me, you want to tell me, Roddy Roddy Piper, just how bad you can be. I've known here, and I've known for a long time. You've been jealous of me. You've been jealous of my job in the box. Let me tell you something, fatso. Yeah, you just... Who are you calling oh, fatso? fatso. Uh, who, uh, who am I calling fatso? Take your choice. Huh? <laughs> Roddy Piper winds up making just one wisecrack too many to all involved. And it leads to the Hot Rod being attacked by Adonis, Orton, and Don Morocco. Adonis actually being the one to smash the chair, a steel chair, repeatedly into Roddy Piper's leg while Adonis smeared makeup on Roddy's face. The heels then destroyed the set of Piper's pit, leaving Roddy laying covered in makeup, smeared all over his face, and with an injured leg. And we move ahead again to October 4th. First, we'll start out in the morning with Superstars. As it's thought that Adonis and company had put away Piper for good, well, uh-uh, they were wrong. Roddy Piper returns, and he invades the empty flower shop with baseball bat in hand and single-handedly destroys the entire flower shop set, destroying it with the baseball bat before legitimately smashing the bat so hard that he busts the baseball bat in half as well. Just absolutely awesome visual here. Roddy Piper looks like a man possessed. Then later that night, Saturday night's main event, October 4th, an injured Roddy Piper refuses doctor's orders and agrees to compete in his match scheduled with the Iron Sheik in Richfield, Ohio. The result of the match, the Hot Rod, injured leg and all, scores the win over the Iron Sheik in less than a minute. Then later that night, on the same episode of Saturday night's main event, it's Hulk Hogan going over on Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff after an attack from Adrian Adonis, outside interference from Adrian Adonis. It looks like a two-on-one Orndorff and Adonis putting down the WWF champion when out of nowhere, Hulk Hogan's former arch-nemesis Roddy Piper out to aid Hulk Hogan 
and likely out to get some revenge on the adorable Adrian as Roddy Piper attacks both heels with the crutch he's forced to use. And then Roddy with the big wind-up as he smashes the crutch against the elbow, the arm of Adrian Adonis. The show concludes, they announce that Adonis has suffered a shattered elbow in the process. Now that's a worked injury, guys, for those curious. Nevertheless, by the end of the show, they diagnose Adonis with a shattered elbow, thus writing Adonis out of the World Wrestling Federation, which is actually acknowledged by Roddy Piper the following week on TV that Adonis is no more. He's gone from the company for this period in time, and they pivot the feud from Roddy Piper and Adonis to Piper versus Morocco and Orton. Now, remember, it was Morocco who smashed the chair into the leg of the hot rod. Now, you were wondering why? Well, this is why. And while this episode of Saturday Night's Main Event aired on October 4th, Adonis actually finished up his commitments with the company all the way back on September 16th at the TV tapings for Superstars and Saturday Night's Main Event and was immediately replaced by Cowboy Bob Orton in the matches with Roddy Piper all along the house shows afterwards. I guess Vince and company figuring, hey, Orton used to be the best friend, the bodyguard of Roddy Piper for all that time, 1984-1985, all the way up until WrestleMania two. There's history there. We can slide Orton right in to replace Adonis immediately and then move on to Morocco, who's the man to blame for the injury to the hot rod. But you might be asking, what happened with Adrian Adonis? The feud was so hot, they were doing a tremendous job at building up this feud. Well, the rumors, they're all over the place. Some say Adrian Adonis was completely fired from the company. Others say he was suspended. Regardless of the situation, you can document it yourself. Adrian Adonis was gone from the company from mid-September through mid-November, two months. No Adrian Adonis anywhere to be found in the company, not even mentioned on TV. Did you see the size of the eyes on Morocco when I swung the crutch at his head? Did you see the size of the eyes when I come down on that humongous body that he had as I swinged at him? Do you know what that was called? That's called fear. That's what that's called. Rocco ain't a man that scares. You know why there was fear there? Because I ain't playing no games. I'm the only man Hogan could never be. I don't play games. You know what? After you nailed me with that chair, and nailed me, nailed me, nailed me again, I never missed one damn fight. Not one fight! I wrapped it every night. I wrapped it like I will tonight in Boston. Then I had a doctor take a big needle about this long, man. And he shoves that needle deep inside. And he squishes stuff in there. And it stings and I don't know what it does. But in ten minutes, I don't feel nothing in that leg. Nothing, nothing, man. I don't feel nothing. A loser. Call me a loser. I don't care right now about winning, about losing. That is not the point now. You know that look in my eye because I've seen it in yours. I have put people out. Do you remember a guy? Remember him, huh? Used to fly around this legend, huh? Remember Bruno Sammartino? Now he just sits there and talks. I have put him out. I know that look. I had that look. Just now when you see me swipe the crutch. Morocco knows that look. When he looked in my eyes. That's all right. He ain't playing no games here. He got scared. You got scared. I own Boston. The 
for the hell of it one night, I went out and beat up the whole town of Boston. I ain't afraid of nothing. And what I'm doing, I ain't coming to win or lose. You got Cowboy Bob Orton there, think he's going to sneak up. Think I ain't taking Magnificent Morocco, M&M's. Wonder, I wonder why that's the way you got it. so damn fat, huh? You were dying Johnson of wrestling. Then out of nowhere, mid-November, Roddy Piper begins slowly mentioning Adrian Adonis again in his promos. Yes, he's mentioning Orton Morocco, but all of a sudden sliding Adonis's name back in there as well, lumping him right back in with the group. And that leads us to the November 29th edition of WWF Superstars, Jimmy Hart, the guest of Piper's Pit, where Jimmy Hart announces the official return to the WWF of Adrian Adonis. And out of nowhere from behind, Adrian Adonis attacks the hot rod on his own Piper's pit set, putting him to sleep with goodnight Irene, just to make a fool of Roddy Piper. How could you, after years and years, how could you even consider doing exactly what you did to my sport? Putting me to sleep, that's no big thing for me. It is for you. You see, you made an error. When you put me to sleep, you should have started feeding me ever so slowly. Feeding and feeding and feeding me until I quivered and shake. And then beat me some more. And beat me some more until I was still. Don't just leave me there for a little nine-eye. I have legends. I am the legend killer. You come down with your bag of quarters, think you're going to be some kind of hot shot. You, you, all as you are, all as you are is a simple street prostitute. That's all you are, man. You and this little slime that you drag around with you. No, no, I ain't running for president. No, no, I ain't kissing no baby. I don't care if I got a friend in the world. But in my sport, I'm proud of what I do. Well, you see the difference between you and me is if you go up to Adrian Adonis and say, Oh, nice dress, you get a kiss. You say that to me, I'll knock you to Pluto, brother. Oh, but you think you're so cute now, huh? I know you're getting in better shape. I know that because now your breasts have become pectoral. It's a nice thing. I am responsible for putting Adrian Adonis in the pants. I will be responsible for removing him entirely from the situation. Oh, yeah. You say that. Sleeper is good night, Irene. You call it, huh? You know what you're gonna find out in Buffalo, brother. You're gonna take a good look at me and realize this ain't Irene. And all of a sudden, that shattered elbow, what was reported as a shattered elbow back on October 4th, now they're saying it was almost shattered. And Adrian Adonis was able to recover and he's back for revenge. We fast forward again a couple of weeks, December 14th, Wrestling Challenge. And during a squash match between Adrian Adonis and Special Delivery Jones, Roddy Piper can stands no more. Roddy Piper out to the ring to attack the adorable Adrian, and the two men have to be separated by officials, so the feud is back on. And the story goes, the Morocco and Piper, the Orton and Piper matches, just weren't drawing anything near what the Adonis and Piper feud was drawing. It wasn't, certainly wasn't drawing the attention of the fans like the Adonis and Piper feud, so... Depending on who you believe, either Adonis' suspension was ended or he was rehired after being fired. Either way, Adrian Adonis brought back to continue his feud with Roddy Piper. 
And I have to say, good call by those in charge. And it's also December of 86 that Adonis returns to the road full-time. Back on the house shows, initially filling in for Paul Orndorff in a couple of loops. Of course, you remember Orndorff had the injury. We'll get to that later in this episode. But honestly, again, it's likely he was only brought back, once again, like I just said, because the B-shows, which was featuring Piper on top against Orton and Morocco, just weren't doing the numbers, weren't drawing the numbers financially that uh, Vince had been hoping for. So here we are, late December of 1986. And after months of taunting and maiming, Adrian Adonis is back as the feud seemingly reaches its apex here heading into the new year. The in-ring showdown is finally scheduled to take place on national TV. NBC, guys, as part of the January 3rd Saturday night's main event. We're going to talk all about that next week here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And to get you guys warmed up for that one, here's a, here's a quick promo from Jimmy Hart and the adorable Adrian Adonis. He's back. Adorable Adrian. 87's going to be our year. You can bank on that, baby. That's right. You are talking to the franchise. Well, I must admit, adorable Adrian, you surprised a lot of people because towards the end of 1986, a good many had, if you will, written you off. <laughs> people who don't know nothing about professional sports have written me off. Don't know anything about my gorgeous background, the charismatic, charismatic way I wrestle. After all, it was a vicious injury, ladies and gentlemen. They use that term extra loosely for you weirdos out there. It was an injury to the extent where it almost shattered my bone. But as the way I was built, the toughness and the nails that I come from, I just bounced back all of a sudden. And I'm bouncing right back into your living rooms telling you something, Mr. Piper. For the new year, you are definitely on the top of my list. You are definitely going to receive violence from Mr. Adonis. You will pay. Remember, even in the Bible, it says a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. And it's definitely going to happen. What do you have to say? Let me tell you something. How do you spell wrestling? A-D-O-N-I-S. How do you spell ability? A-D-O-N-I-S. How do you spell wrestling? A-D-O-N-I-S. You spell wrestling. You spell violence. You spell it all. A-D-O-N-S. I wrote the book. I am the law. And I will show you, ladies and gentlemen, how I am going to get rid of of Mr. Piper. It's not going to be in a stage one, stage two, stage three. It's going to happen one night when the snow is falling and the popcorn's popping and the snow cones are going and everybody's sitting there in excitement and disbelief. But Mr. Piper, that disbelief is coming, coming to you as you're going down. Your history, Piper. Oh, Adrian, stop it. Let's not be so silly. Who do you think you're trying to intimidate here? I have intimidated the best of them. You're walking around saying how great you are, saying that I'm dressed. I'm, I've got, I'm dressing in a dress. Oh, no pun intended. Sit, sit around and oh, let's get serious, Adrian. Who's dressing in a dress, huh? Who's flowing around with them nice black roots, huh? Who, who is making this big sting with the stink, stink, sting? Just never mind. Sting with this gold stiller hat on. Just wait on it. Wait a second, man. It ain't my first trip to Pluto. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. This is Buffalo. I've been to Buffalo and beat up more Buffalo chips you ever seen in your life, man. You're just another Buffalo chip in my way. Oh, I remember Green Lightning in Buffalo. You remember me talking about that? I'm the same son of a named goat I ever have been. That's what you got to be when you fight people like this. I'm fighting for pride here, man. I ain't fighting for money. You know that I don't got to fight for money no more. I ain't got nothing to prove no more. He's talking about flowers, gossip. I ain't got nothing to prove with that no more. 
People say, was Roddy Piper a tough fighter? Ooh, go ask anybody, Adrian, huh? Ask anybody, ask anybody with a bottle of Thunderbird on a street corner. They can tell you. You say you got a bunkhouse match. People are going to be flowing. They say there's no rules here. What makes you think for one second that I am going to abide by any damn rule whatsoever in this match? Good stuff there. Is uh, Adonis seemed to be out of his mind at times, and, and perhaps so, during some of these promos throughout the uh, course of the next couple of months, as you guys will uh, most definitely hear here on The Grenade. Show continues on. Another epic feud of the time. It is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Intercontinental Champion Macho Man Randy Savage. And ironically, it all goes back to an Intercontinental title match. Aired on the November 22nd episode of WWF Superstars, taped back on October 28th, it was Savage defending his IC title against the Dragon on TV, and that's when the infamous injury takes place as Randy Savage defeats Ricky the Dragon Steamboat by countout only after crushing Steamboat's throat against the guardrail after hitting a double axe handle from the top rope down into Steamboat whose throat was laying across the railing Immediately upon impact, it seemed like something was wrong. Steamboat began clutching at his throat on the outside, unable to return to the ring. Savage picking up the win on a countout in just about seven minutes of wrestling action. But what took place after the match was seemingly what did the Dragon. Savage wasn't done yet. He wasn't happy with what he had done to the Dragon on the outside. Savage brings Steamboat back in the ring and gets hold of the Timekeeper's Bell. Savage then ascends to the top rope with the bell, leaps off as if he's going to drop that big patented flying elbow, but instead drops the ring bell, the steel bell, into the throat of the dragon. And what a sell job here by Ricky, acting as if he, he can't breathe, clutching at his throat, gasping for air as officials come out with a stretcher. Steamboat is stretchered away, kicking and gasping for breaths. The dastardly Randy Savage happy with what he had done, gloats about it backstage. Later in the same episode, announcer Bruno Sammartino goes to the back to see if he can get any information on the well-being of Ricky Steamboat. But Steamboat behind closed doors with doctors, Bruno can't get a whole lot of information when out of nowhere, Randy Savage steps in to gloat about what he did to the hot dog Ricky Steamboat. Well, in fact, let's, let's take a listen to Randy Savage mocks the condition of Ricky Steamboat, and in the process upsets the living legend. Let's take a listen. Some really good stuff. It, it was one of the most devastating things I've ever seen. No excuse in the world for it. There was no reason by this slime, the so-called champion. The who have... oh, yeah, what's the update? Tell me, man. Are you happy about the Send the hot dog to the hospital yet, huh? Did he put some mustard on him right now? Get him all set up for the champion right there? I'm so proud of myself! You I'm piece of slime, you're happy Oh, and that fiery temper of Bruno Sammartino comes out one comment too many. Absolutely disgusted. And an excellent job by both guys. Randy Savage gloating. Did you take the hot dog out? Did you put a little mustard on him? The hot dog. Referring to Ricky's steamboat to put a little mustard on him on his way to the hospital. Bruno couldn't take it any longer. Attacks the macho. You slime. You slime. Choking away at Macho Man Randy. So fucking cool. The first time I ever saw this, I never popped so big to see Bruno get physical. With, with the Macho Man of all guys, too. Talking about big time. Two separate generations colliding. And, and if you had to pick two men, those would be the two I would pick. So really cool stuff there. 
for the time. Bruno Sammartino choking down the Macho Man, having to be separated by officials once again. And that leads to a little mini feud here between Bruno and Randy Savage at some of the house shows while Steamboat recovers from his larynx injury. And while this isn't directly related to the Steamboat and Savage storyline, I also should point out some subtle hints here for referee Danny Davis's involvement as he was the referee in this match between Steamboat and Savage. Now remember, I pointed this out, the injury angle was taped on October 28th. It didn't air until November 22nd, almost a month later. And during that time, Ricky Steamboat continued to work the house shows because remember, until it airs, it never really actually happened. So Steamboat works the house shows throughout the end of October, all the way into November 18th. Eventually, the injury angle airs that following weekend, and Steamboat removed from all events to sell the injury moving forward. And then we move on to December of 86, and we begin getting vignettes immediately, first with Mean Gene Oakland talking with Ricky Steamboat's wife, Bonnie Steamboat, who is devastated by her husband's injury and, and no doubt his inability to buy her new things. Bitch. But as the month goes on, Gene continues to conduct interviews, this time with Steamboat's doctor, Dr. Bob Ponovich, who's actually a, a World Wrestling Federation doctor at the time. So he, yes, even though he doesn't look like it, he is a legit doctor, guys. Is there a strong possibility Ricky Steamboat has vowed to return to the World Wrestling Federation, in your opinion, that he can return? I would advise that he did not. Uh, I think the, the uncertainty about it uh, is just too great to allow him to return. Okerlund talks with Panovich about the injury to Ricky Steamboat, and the good doctor gives us the news that Steamboat has a crushed larynx and says that in his medical opinion that the Dragon should quit professional wrestling, never wrestle again. That's a serious injury. But the vignettes continue on, and we see Ricky Steamboat in therapy. Steamboat with that awful acting as he tries to put over the fact that he can't speak, but he's trying to rehab. Well, I can't do it justice. Let's take a listen. Recently, our cameras caught up with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat convalescing at his home. Savage, I want you listening up now. I'm talking to you. You are a priority in my career right now. Before the end comes, you will have suffered. Right now. The dragon, working diligently to learn how to speak again, which, which kind of makes no sense, but whatever. Super sleuth Gene Okerlund continues on with his investigation, interviewing the referee, Danny Davis, who was part of the match. Dangerous Dan continues his heel turn here by using excuses and showing absolutely no remorse for the recent steamboat injury he was involved in. Mean Gene then returns to the doctor's office yet again to speak with Dr. Bob Ponovich on Steamboat's progression with his injury. Ponovich says he is amazed at Steamboat's remarkable recovery. However, the doctor warns that he feels another shot to the larynx of the dragon, and it will end his career permanently. So we have to keep that in mind. Should Ricky Steamboat return to the ring, it could be one shot to the throat, and Steamboat's done for good. Finally, we catch up to the Macho Man now that he learns about the recovery rate of Ricky's steamboat, and they talk to Randy Savage about the condition of the dragon. Macho threatens to once again injure Steamboat should he decide to return to the ring. Next time, Savage says he will take him out forever. To close out the year of 1986, Gene Okerlund gives us one final update on the medical briefing of Ricky's steamboat. He says Steamboat is gradually learning how to speak again, as we cut to yet another segment of Ricky Steamboat with a speech therapist trying to learn how to pronounce words all over again. Because apparently when you get a crushed larynx, you forget how to speak. 
Now, I'm not knocking it, guys, and I'm not saying that it's an overnight process to get your voice back into working condition, but uh, the, some of these vignettes absolutely ludicrous. It's, it's almost as if Steamboat has never spoken a word of English before. He doesn't know how to form his mouth or, or make these noises. It's like Helen Keller to a degree here, but it's, it's hilarious, but not intentionally hilarious. If you get my drift, is Steamboat sitting here going, E, 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 E. Ricky Steamboat. That's how we close out the year, trying to learn to speak again. But we have to wonder, will the dragon return to the ring? You guys will only have to wait a week to find out. We're going to talk all about it next week here on The Grenade as we discuss Saturday night's main event from January of 1987. Now remember, while Steamboat's out, Randy Savage is in a little mini feud here with Bruno Sammartino, which has equal heat with me. I love it. I I'm excited. I, I can't wait. If, I if, I if I'm living in one of the towns that match is coming to, I can't wait to get to that show. Randy Savage versus Bruno Sammartino. You slime! That's slime, Savage. Bruno Sammartino will end up wrestling Randy Savage a few times. I know they wrestle in Baltimore on December 30th, but they also wrestle in the Boston Gardens on January 3rd, and that footage, my friends, is out there. In fact, if you join our Patreon account, our watch-along series, and everything else that goes along with it, you guys will also gain access to this Boston Garden event so you can watch along right with us. But while Bruno is keeping the stove warm, you have to wonder, will we see the hot fire of the dragon return sooner rather than later, looking for revenge on the Macho Man? Won't take long to find out as we move on. Another hot feud of 1986. This is one of my favorites. It's WWF champion Hulk Hogan and former friend, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Orndorff, dude. And I don't know if Hogan couldn't pronounce the letter R or if these are the things he did so that he could make himself above everyone else. But referring to Orndorff all those years is Orndorff, dude. Or may maybe he just thought it sounded cool. I have no idea. But it was the summer of 86, and we go back to Adrian Adonis in the flower shop as a baby face. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff shows up as guest, but also on the shop, curiously, is one Bobby the Brain Heenan. As Heenan begins to mock Paul Orndorff and what he has become, he was once one of the most devastating and feared men in all of the WWF. Now, he's simply Hulk Jr., referring to Paul Orndorff as Hulk Jr which doesn't sit well with Mr. Wonderful. Heenan goes on to challenge Paul Orndorff and his best buddy Hulk Hogan to a tag team match against members of the Heenan family, Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy. Wow, what a huge match, both in size and name value. Well, after Heenan issues the challenge, Orndorff says all he has to do is call his best friend, his friend till the end, his good buddy Hulk Hogan on the phone, and the Hulkster will be right here, says Orndorff. Paul then heads backstage, and the cameras follow, with Orndorff making the phone call to Hulk Hogan. But someone else answers the phone. Hulk's in the gym, Orndorff trying to reach his good buddy, the WWF champion. The receptionist, or whomever it is that answers the phone, goes to get Hulk Hogan, goes to tell Hulk Hogan, Hey, Hulk, your buddy Paul Orndorff's on the phone, and he needs you. But to Orndorff's surprise, instead of Hogan getting on the phone, the receptionist returns to alert Paul Orndorff that Hulk says he's, he's too busy right now lifting weights to take the phone call. He'll call Orndorff back later. This visibly infuriates Paul Orndorff, who slams the phone down, looking embarrassed and feeling slighted by his best friend, Hulk Hogan. So Mr. Wonderful, embarrassed, slighted, and okay, he's, he's miffed. Orndorff is pissed off. 
and it's very obvious right here. But eventually, Hulk Hogan finally pulls himself away from the gym long enough to accept Bobby Heenan's challenge on his own. Yeah, dude, we'll fight that sticky, rotten King Kong Bundy and that no-good, filthy, wart-infested Big John Stud, dude. So the match is set for July of 86, but first, July 12th, it appears a new superpower team has been formed, perhaps the first Mega Powers. Had it lasted more than two weeks anyway, it's Hulk Hogan and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff as they team up to take on the longtime tag team and former tag team champions of the Moondogs, Rex and Spot. And Hogan and Orndorff have absolutely no trouble disposing of the Moondogs. In fact, while Paul had no problem disposing of the Moondogs, as Orndorff was in for the entire match, the duration. It was Paul Orndorff versus both Moondogs as he never bothered to even tag the Hulkster in, brother. So Orndorff proving he can get the job done and no doubt still upset about that phone call he made. Well, the match with the Moondogs was only a warm-up as the following week it was time for the big one. Hogan and Orndorff versus Bundy and Stud, July 19th on free TV. But heading into the match backstage, the cameras catch a conversation between Mr. Wonderful and Hulk Hogan. Orndorff still upset that Hogan missed his phone call because he was too busy at the gym. But Hogan, he, of course he does, he wants to put that aside, making excuse after excuse. Hogan says, you know how I get at the gym, brother. You know how I am at the gym, brother. That's no excuse, motherfucker. And he wonders why what happens happens here. Let me tell you something. You're my friend. I need you. I make a phone call and you tell me, hold on, because you got to do another fucking set of curls. Fuck you, brother. Anywho, we move on to the match. It's King Kong Bundy and Big John Stud on the offense here. And as the match ensues, the heels won't stop double teaming Hulk Hogan, pounding him down to the mat, refusing to leave the ring, forcing the referee to call for disqualification as Stud and Bundy try to end Hulkamania, only for Mr. Wonderful, the good buddy of Hulkster. Paul Orndorff rushes into the ring to make the save, and he clears the ring of both Stud and Bundy. But then the unthinkable happens. Or actually, the, the obvious happens. Paul begins to help his good friend Hulk Hogan up to his feet, helps him all the way to his feet, and then Orndorff clotheslines Hogan's face off in one of the greatest short clotheslines in history, Orndorff, just a couple of feet away from Hogan, wrenches his arm back and just slings a Stan Hansen-esque clothesline across the side of the face of Hulk Hogan, and man, that had to feel so good. But Orndorff turning on his friend, but he wasn't done yet. Paul Orndorff finishing Hogan off with his patented pile driver here. I wrote, yes, and fuck you, egomania. Following the segment, we cut backstage to Paul Orndorff, who is immediately welcomed by Bobby Heenan and the Heenan family. It doesn't seem like they had conspired leading in, but after what Paul did, Bobby Heenan had no problem embracing Mr. Wonderful, essentially welcoming him back into the Heenan family as Paul Orndorff turns to the camera and announces that the old Mr. Wonderful was back. And of course, from there, we eventually get the uh, proverbial Hulk Hogan trying to explain himself from his point of view. And where does he cut this promo? From where else but a fucking gym. Talk about trying to just rub shit into the face of Mr. Wonderful Hulk Hogan explaining himself from the gym. Newsflash! Nobody's buying it, Hulk. Thus, to me, making Paul Orner of the most sympathetic of all of Hogan's enemies up until this point, and even when this happened, way back when, six or seven-year-old me 
was questioning why Orndorff was in the wrong here. But we would see this time and time and time again, people turning on Hulk Hogan for justifiable reasons, but Hulk Hogan shelling out his version. But what you gonna do? I suppose. And just like that, a new main event feud was born, the heat was on, and Paul Orndorff took it one step further, even starting to come to the ring using Hulk Hogan's wrestling theme, Real American. Paul Orndorff, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people lately say, I forgot that Paul Orndorff did that, but yet totally dickish and totally awesome heel. Uh, excellent move here by Paul Orndorff coming out to Hulk Hogan's theme, claiming he's the real American. He's the real main event. It should be Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff is WWF champion. Just excellent heel stuff by Paul Orndorff. Just one of the best of all time. And that heel turn on TV, one simple angle is all that it took to do monster business from August onward for the rest of the year for the Hulk Hogan versus Paul Orndorff feud on the house shows. Here are just a few of the numbers that Hogan versus Orndorff did along the way. We go back, Landover, Maryland, the Cap Center, 20,000 fans sell out. 11,500 fans jump to Minneapolis to see their former AWA hero Hulk Hogan take on Paul Orndorff. Down in St. Louis at the Keel, a sellout in front of 10,600. Up to Chicago in the Rosemont Horizon, another 18,000 fans. Even Pittsburgh, guys, Pittsburgh, drawing 17,000 fans to the arena. Then over to Philadelphia in the Spectrum, 16,000 fans there to witness Hulk Hogan take on Paul Orndorff. Up to Detroit, the future site of WrestleMania 3, 21,000 fans. Sounds like a sellout to me. Then on up to Winnipeg, Hogan and Orndorff draw 15,000 fans in to see Hogan try to get that revenge on his former friend. Back down to Long Island in the Nassau Coliseum, 12,000 fans. They even do a one-off out in Salt Lake City, selling out in front of 14,000. Before heading down to Phoenix, another 15,000 fans there. God, what money had to be made here on this feud. Unbelievable. Night after night, you're drawing 12, 15, 20,000 fans. For a house show, guys, keep that in mind. They move over to Hartford, a bit of a smaller arena, but still sell that out, 10,000 fans. And let's not forget the big one, the big event, which took place August 28th in Toronto at the CNE Stadium. That's right, a stadium show, guys, in front of 64,000 fans. And even DeMeltz, even Dave Meltzer, will tell you the paid attendance for this show 61,470 fans. So no matter what anyone says, well over 60,000 fans came to Toronto to witness Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and Hulk Hogan. Not only a sellout, but a record breaker of all kinds. And certainly the record in professional wrestling, the gate. I can't believe the numbers they did here. Of course, that's going to be broken at WrestleMania 3. But that's not the rule. WrestleMania 3, that's the exception. Had there not been a WrestleMania 3, that big event number would have stood for a very, very, very long time. And so, so it gets overlooked, but you go back and watch that show. Go back and watch that pan away with the camera over top of the arena. Now, it's not the Silverdome, but man, 60-some thousand people, that's a lot of people. And get this, the big event took place August 28th in Toronto, but just over a week later, September 7th, the WWF returns to Toronto in the Maple Leaf Gardens and draws another 13,000 fans just over a week later to see Hulk Hogan team with Rowdy Roddy Piper to take on the team of 
Adrian Adonis, and Paul Orndorff. So in about a week and a half's time, Hogan versus Orndorff has drawn nearly 75,000 fans here in Toronto. And as much big business as this feud had been doing, all the matches were actually ending in a disqualification one way or the other, usually with Orndorff getting the win on a DQ. And that would lead to return matches where if Hogan was DQ'd again, Paul Orndorff would win the WWF title. Basically, the old heel story there of, hey, you got disqualified on purpose because you knew you couldn't beat me. So this time, if you get disqualified, I'm winning the belt. And that's basically the story they did as we began the rematches between Hogan and Orndorff all around the houses. And even then, oddly, they must have saw there was a lot more money to be made because even the rematches would see Hulk Hogan go over on Paul Orndorff, but only on DQs or countouts as well. So after two times around the loop, no definitive winner. But there's a good reason for that. So the third time around, bringing it back old school, Bruno Sammartino style, bringing it around for the third time, we began seeing Hulk Hogan versus Paul Orndorff in a steel cage match. Obviously, with Hogan finally going over, escaping the cage. But as I go back all the way to the summer, all of the fall, into the winter, all of 1986, the entire time we got Hulk Hogan versus Paul Orndorff, I only found one instance of Hulk Hogan going over on Orndorff by a pinfall. And that was that one-off sellout in Salt Lake City because it was one of the smaller towns the WWF didn't go around as often. They knew they wouldn't be back with a rematch so they sent the fans home happy, gave Hogan the definitive win the first night out there. He pinned Paul Orndorff, but best I can tell, every other match ended in a DQ, a countout, and eventually Hogan escaping a cage. So Orndorff escaped getting pinned every night at the very least. And I did find this funny as I was doing some research. Uh, funny enough, as huge as this feud was pretty much everywhere else, it's still, even Hogan versus Orndorff couldn't draw in the other territories, the ones that were still out there. The hard-to-crack territories, the territories like New Orleans for the UWF, even down in Houston. In fact, the Houston Summit, which is where they ran when the WWF came to town, Hogan versus Orndorff does 1,700 people. That's 1,700. 1,700 people. Two zeros, guys. So from going and doing 15, 17, 21,000 fans, 68,000 fans in Toronto, Hogan versus Orndorff can only draw a measly 1,700 down in Houston because you don't fuck with Paul Bosch, I suppose. I got to say something about some of these territories that are still kicking around, especially the Southern territories. The fans were loyalists to their territories and that style. It took forever for Vince McMahon to crack the code in Dallas, in New Orleans, and eventually Crockett Country. In fact, if you go into results, you'll see that Vince McMahon tried to invade Crockett Country, the Carolinas and such, back in the very early 90s. And that didn't work out so well. And Vince got the message, so he left WCW Country. And he didn't come back until the Monday Night Wars when things were so hot during the Attitude Era that Vince knew they could draw anywhere. And then, and only then, did Vince return to Crockett Country. So a lot of these territories that were still kicking around at this time and had their own way of doing things, their own styles, it was really hard for Vince to bring in what they consider the cartoon wrestling. It was hard to bring the fans in. Obviously, there are 1,700 fans in Houston, Texas. Wow. But the feud, it just continues on. We go on to Saturday night's main event, October 4th. We talked a little bit about this earlier. It was WWF champion going over on Paul Orndorff on a disqualification after interference from Adrian Adonis. Well, we fast forward a month later to November 24th, and Madison Square Garden in front of a sellout crowd 
of 19,700 fans, we see a match between Hulk Hogan teaming with longtime arch nemesis Rowdy Roddy Piper. Hulk Hogan teaming with Roddy Piper. No wonder a sellout taking on the team of Bobby Heenan's Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and the King Harley Race, no doubt subbing for Adrian Adonis, who was just returning to the company at the time. little quick trivia note here. This is the match that was booked by superfan Vladimir, by the way, guys. If you guys remember that clip uh, from the month prior, Madison Square Garden, Roddy Piper asking superfan Vladimir to jump the gate and give him an idea who should be his partner for the upcoming tag team match. Vladimir wastes no time saying Hulk Hogan, and the crowd pops huge. The match was set and went down on November 24th in front of a sellout crowd with Hogan and Piper going over on Orndorff and Race. But we move along as the feud continues to do big business for a near five months here in 1986. But on the back burner, the Ugandan headhunter, Kamala, has returned to the World Wrestling Federation, and he's slowly being built up as the next in line for the WWF champion on the house shows because all good things must eventually come to an end. And we're going to touch on this at length later in this episode. The injury, the nerve damage to Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the arm atrophy. Now, I've seen interviews where Paul claims he sustained the injury all the way back at the big event. And I think, you know, a lot of times these guys remember things the way they remember things, and that's just the way it is. Now, I can't say the the exact match or, or place that the injury took place to Mr. Wonderful, though the big event does seem a little earlier than I would suspect. But nevertheless, Paul Orndorff at some point over the course of his feud with Hulk Hogan, for those who don't know, sustained an injury. Again, we're going to talk at length about it later on in this episode, so I won't dwell on it too much here. But Orndorff continued to work with said injury, a very serious injury, because he was making money hand over fist. Are you kidding me? Are you listening to the numbers these guys are doing on the house shows? Orndorff couldn't turn down this type of money. You're talking over seven figures. And Orndorff being the family man that he was and being Mr. Wonderful, he couldn't pull himself away from the ring. He couldn't pull himself off the road. He couldn't do that and live with himself. He, he had to keep wrestling. He had to continue to make that money while it was there in front of him. But it eventually catches up to Orndorff, and he takes the first of a few periods of time off here. And due to the nerve injury, Orndorff finally has to abruptly take a month off from mid-December until mid-January. But he makes sure in between to work the Saturday night's main event taping the upcoming January 3rd episode of Saturday Night's Main Event, where he takes on Hulk Hogan inside the steel cage. So wise move there, but outside of that one match, Paul Orndorff forced to take a month off. And I know that had to eat at him, but in the meantime, the WWF machine had to keep rolling, and we had to continue to move on, and it was just about time to move on anyway for Hulk Hogan's next rival, Kamala. And with Orndorff temporarily sidelined and Hogan moving on in some markets leading into 1987 anyway, we begin to see Hulk Hogan versus Kamala pop up on some of the events, including this one. It's Hulk Hogan and Kamala headlining Madison Square Garden, drawing a gate of $249,000. That's $583,000 in today's money. That's over a half a million dollar gate. Hulk Hogan and Kamala in a cold match. And what I mean by that was there was no storyline, no angles building into it. It was just announced that Hulk Hogan was wrestling Kamala. Absolutely no build, and only about 2,000 shy of a sellout. And Hogan's first match with Kamala ends with Kamala being disqualified for outside interference from the Wizard, and Hulk 
And Hulk Hogan taking a pounding from the Uganda. Never let it be said that Hulk Hogan doesn't know how to draw money because he knew they were coming back next month to the Garden. Kamala pounding down on the Hulkster to the point where everyone, even Vince McMahon, getting involved in breaking up the post-match brawl between the WWF champion and the Ugandan headhunter. Demelts reports that the January 19th Madison Square Garden card will have a rematch between Hulk Hogan and Kamala, this time in a no-DQ match. Demelts then speculates that should set up a third blow-off match in February inside a steel cage. Wrong about that, Meltz, but you do get one thing right. They, in fact, they already announced it. So it's not like Meltzer was Nostradamus here, but Hogan versus Kamala, a rematch coming up in January. We're going to talk all about that match next week here on The Grenade, by the way. No disqualification next time around. As we close out the year of 1986 and begin looking ahead towards 1987, who better to talk it all over with than the one man who really needs no introduction anywhere on the face of the earth because he is indeed the heavyweight champion of the world, Hulk Hogan. And Hulkster, bottom line, the gold's still around your waist after facing many, many challengers in 1986. You know, that's because I still got my feet on the ground, Killer Ken. Beat a lot of people up, man. King Kong Bundy slammed me through the mat. Put some lumps on Mr. Wonderful's head. Made a lot of people submit right in the middle of the ring. But the thing that I've always had going for me, man, is I keep that one-on-one relationship, that eye-to-eye contact, hand-to-hand correspondence with all my Hulkamaniacs, brother. I can look you in the eye and tell if you've been training, saying your prayers, and eating your vitamins. And I can look you in the eye and tell if you've been cheering for somebody like Mr. Wonderful. For all those non-believers, man, 1987 is going to be a turnaround, brother, because I'm going to take that cult that follows all those losers, and I'm going to turn them into Hulkamaniacs, brother. I'm going to make you believe in Hulkamania. I'm going to make you believe in the power of the 24-inch pythons. And once you submit to Hulkamania, you're going to walk the straight and narrow, and the light will shine on you forever after. But I got one thing to say to a few people out there, namely Hollywood, man. Joan Rivers, you're cool, but you better back off. I got a heavy-duty wrestling schedule. And as far as you go, John J. Rambo, you better get in better shape than you've ever been in. Because I ain't coming out to Hollywood to make no movies, brother. I ain't coming out for no TV commercials. I'm coming out to work out with you, man. Hulkamania is going to run wild. What are you going to do, 87, when the Hulkster runs wild on you? And a happy new year to each and every one of you. All right, and some closing words there for 1986 and the WWF champion Hulk Hogan heading into 1987. But let's move away from the feuds and let's take a look at an interesting storyline that's transpired over the last uh, four months here in the WWF here in 1986. And that is the questionable tactics of WWF referee Danny Davis. And the seeds began being planted all the way back in September on TV as Vince McMahon began questioning some of Davis's decisions and actions during the TV squashes, even to the point where maybe there were certain little things that us at home, we weren't even noticing that Vince began pointing out which eventually led to a quick promo from Danny Davis in October claiming to be a fair and unbiased official. So Davis, fully aware that people have been questioning his tactics as of late inside the ring, takes a moment to assure us he is fair and unbiased as a referee. Though it didn't take long, almost immediately after that promo, Davis began visibly screwing baby faces out of wins in October, with one of the first instances being Billy Jack Haynes getting disqualified in a match against Intercontinental Champion Randy Savage, It was actually Savage who had accidentally hit Danny Davis, but Davis wound up disqualifying Billy Jack instead. From there again, we would see the referee, Danny Davis, conveniently turning his back 
in a match to allow Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik to score a win over the team of Tito Santana and Pedro Morales. And we even closed out the month of October. Danny Davis disqualifying Rowdy Roddy Piper in a match against the manager, Mr. Fuji. Yet another questionable decision made by Danny Davis in October, but it didn't end there. No, no, we move ahead to November. November rolls on. It's Don Morocco teaming with Bob Orton. They score a win over the Killer Bees on a disqualification after Brian Blair had put his hands on the cheating Danny Davis. Blair basically questioning Danny Davis and his officiating. Davis says, hey, you don't put your hands on an official. Calls for the bell immediately disqualifying the Killer Bees there. November continues to move on. Six-man tag team action with the Dream Team teaming with their manager, Johnny V. They score a win over the team of Tito Santana, Pedro Morales, and Hillbilly Jim on a disqualification when Danny Davis felt that the babyface team had caused all six men to end up in the ring brawling at the end of the match. And rather than let it break down or try to figure things out, Davis simply called for the bell and gave the win to the Dream Team and Johnny Valiant, feeling that the, it was the babyfaces that instigated that six-man riot in the ring, when in fact it was actually Greg Valentine who had interfered by breaking up Tito Santana's figure four leg lock. But it doesn't end there. More from Danny Davis in December as he disqualifies the Rebel Dick Slater in a match against Jake the Snake Roberts. When Davis kept getting in Slater's way, every time Slater tried to put the Snake Man away, Danny Davis would get in between somehow and cause an issue there. Finally, Slater has enough. He shoves Danny Davis aside, getting disqualified in the process. And even more heel heat there from the referee when Mean Gene Oakland finally has an interview with Danny Davis, questions him about all of these antics out. Three months, we're talking months worth of antics, but Davis once again denies the crooked allegations. And I should point out that Danny Davis's antics weren't just subjected to only syndicated TV. He would actually continue to screw or attempt to screw the baby faces even at the house shows, which you can actually go back and this can be seen on the old Madison Square Garden, Boston, Spectrum, and beyond. These shows, you can see Danny Davis, even on those shows, in front of the house show crowds, continuing that questionable officiating. And after multiple months of this, it's becoming apparent that these aren't all a coincidence, and there's way more here than meets the eye. We'll dig deeper into Davis' saga as we enter January of 1987, next week on The Grenade. To all those people who think that I owe them an apology for the way I officiate, well, I'm sorry, even though I don't mean it. And you want to talk some big news, here's some giant news. As Andre the Giant has been reinstated by President Jack Tunney, Andre the Giant, back in the World Wrestling Federation. You might be asking, well, what are you talking about, Ray? Well, guys, it actually goes all the way back to WrestleMania two time. Andre the Giant actually spent most of 1986 out of the WWF rings. Initially, he worked scarcely from January through March, and then, of course, the WrestleMania II Battle Royal. But almost immediately thereafter, Andre worked an angle on TV where he had no show to tag team match, and thus Bobby the Brain Heenan had petitioned to get Andre suspended indefinitely by President Jack Tunney. After Andre had no showed that tag team match, where he was scheduled to take on the tag team of Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy. If memory serves me correct, I think Hillbilly Jim was to be the partner of Andre in said match. But nevertheless, Andre, quote-unquote, no-showed the tag team match, and thus Bobby Heenan goes to Jack Tunney and says, hey, this guy's not even making his dates. This guy should be suspended from action. So Jack Tunney issues a hearing, which Andre also no-shows 
It's reported that Andre the Giant didn't even show up for his own hearing, thus forcing the president to suspend Andre from the ring indefinitely. And in reality, Andre was needing time off due to his acromegaly beginning to wear on him. Plus, during this time away from the WWF, Andre also works his final New Japan tour before becoming exclusively contracted to Vince McMahon. Up until this point, Andre was still doing his New Japan tours. So the entire time he was with the WWF, up until 1986, he was also still going over and working for Inoki as well, for those who didn't know that. So Andre leaves shortly after WrestleMania II. He does his final New Japan tour from April until June of 1986. And from that point on, we don't see a whole lot of Andre here in the WWF in 1986. He leaves after WrestleMania II, and we don't see him back on our TV screens until December, or do we? Because after being suspended from the WWF, Andre returns from Japan in the summer of 86, borrowing a gimmick out of New Japan. A new tag team coming to the WWF, built from, where else, but the Orient. The Orient, pal. It sounds better than Japan. And yes, the machines are born. The machines arrive in the WWF in the summer of 86. The machines originally the Super Machine. Formerly the masked superstar Bill Eady, the future acts of demolition, and a very familiar looking fellow under the hood by the name of the Giant Machine, who seemed to stand about seven feet four and over 500 pounds, if you catch my drift. And so in July of 86, we began seeing the machine show up in interviews on TV. Almost immediately, we hear the outrage from Bobby Heenan, who knows exactly who is under that giant machine mask. Heenan believing it is the suspended Andre the Giant. He wants him unmasked, he wants to prove it, and he wants him terminated permanently from the World Wrestling Federation. And while we see the machines in action a time or two, by August, only a few weeks after their debut, we begin seeing the giant machine accompany the super machine to the ring for singles matches. They even add a third machine, the big machine, so now we have the giant machine, the super machine, and the big machine. The big machine being Blackjack Mulligan, believe it or not. And the reason they acquired that third machine, the big machine, was because Andre's injuries and that acromegaly really catching up to him. And he's not able to work a whole lot right now. A lot of back issues from Andre the Giant. So instead of getting in the ring and wrestling, he's wrestling very scarcely, and usually in six-man, where he's just tagged in for the finish. Though Andre's still with the company, still with the gimmick, he would accompany his two partners to ringside for their matches. His health at this point simply wouldn't allow him to work a full-time ring schedule. So Andre works a handful of six-man tag team matches, including at the big event near the end of August. But by September, the giant machine would go back to Europe to film the Princess Bride. Andre playing Fezzik there in the Princess Bride, a role I found out that he had been pegged for nearly 15 years earlier. Think about that. 15 years before The Princess Bride was filmed in the fall of 86, they had already knew all the way back then. Andre was, wasn't even a, a major star. He was just a big attraction. Still very youthful in the early 70s was Andre the Giant. And he'd been pegged for 15 years to play this part. Whenever it went into production and true to their word, they came calling and Andre the Giant makes his mark in Hollywood. So by September... Andre returns in July as the giant machine, and by September, disappears off of TV again, off to film The Princess Bride. However, the big machine and super machine, stuck in their roles, forced to be written out, 
they do the job to Stud and Bundy on their way out, and the machines gone altogether by the middle of November. But a familiar face would return, and uh, for instance, on the December 2nd edition of Primetime Wrestling, President Jack Tunney, we learned, has recently announced he has lifted the suspension of Andre the Giant as we are treated to an interview from Andre in Europe, no doubt during his time filming The Princess Bride. The interview conducted by Gary Davey, Andre says he has a big surprise for the fans upon his return to the WWF. And at the time in the old Wrestling Observer newsletters, Dave Meltzer had speculated that Andre was going to return, announcing that he had learned the martial arts. Can you imagine that, Andre coming back with the judo chop? I'd buy it. But let's go back to this edition of Primetime. December 2nd, upon the return to the Primetime set, Bobby Heenan gives a very small hint at Andre's heel turn by repeatedly ignoring any questions about the giant asked by Gorilla here. So Gorilla might ask a question, and Bobby would just move on to another topic. Very subtle, but very good stuff there from Bobby Heenan. And at the end of the episode, Bobby said, okay, I'm ready to talk Andre the Giant right now, but we're out of time, wouldn't you know it? So we move on to the following week. Primetime Wrestling, December 11th, Jesse Ventura interviews President Jack Tunney about Andre's reinstatement. Jesse Ventura smells something fishy going on here. And he wants to know what led to this reinstatement. Now, Mr. Tunney, and I use the Mr. very loosely, but Mr. Tunney, last week, right here in the World Wrestling Federation, I saw Andre the Giant reinstated back as a professional wrestler. Correct. Correct. With full privileges, Andre the Giant is back as a professional wrestler. Yes, he is. He is. Now, I gotta know something. How could this take place, Mr. Tunney? I mean, the man, you suspended the man for not showing up for wrestling appearances, and just like that, out of the clear blue, the man is brought back into wrestling? Tell me. Let me tell you, Jesse, the uh, hearing I presided over as the president of WWF was the most unusual one I've ever attended. Hearing? The hearing, yes. And uh, What went on at this hearing? Well, the outcome was uh, just bizarre. Just bizarre. Well, tell us. I mean, the camera's out there. I want to know. The people want to know. Well, I'd rather not say too much uh, at the moment. Well, wait, wait a minute, Tunny. Andre the Giant's back wrestling. You don't want to talk about it. Was Andre at this hearing? No, Andre was not at the meeting. No? no? You're telling me he doesn't even show up for the hearing? I mean, that's what got him suspended before. How could he be reinstated if he wasn't there? As I say, it was bizarre. Was Bobby Heenan there? Bobby Heenan was there. Bobby Heenan was there? Yes, he was. What did Mr. Heenan have to say to all this? I'm sorry, that's privileged information. Tunny, I'm tired of you privileged information. Jesse the Body Ventura is the man who needs to know, who needs to get it out to the World Wrestling Federation. I'll find out. President Jack Tunney talks about the hearing where Andre the Giant was reinstated. Tunney manages to mention that Andre himself didn't even bother to show up for the hearing. But we do learn that Bobby the Brain Heenan was there. The plot thickens. Now, you could, you could factor in a whole lot of stuff here. Now, now, Andre wasn't here for the suspension hearing, so naturally he's not here for his unsuspension hearing, but Bobby Heenan was also part of the initial suspension hearing because he was the one that had Andre suspended. So that could be why Heenan was at this hearing. Perhaps he was there to try to put a stop to it. To no avail, apparently, is Andre the Giant is back in the World Wrestling Federation. And we go back to primetime on set. December 11th, Gorilla Monsoon questions the brain 
about the Andre hearing. Why was Bobby there? But Heenan refuses to answer out of quote-unquote respect to the WWF president. How kind of you, Bobby. Later in that episode of Primetime, Gorilla again asks Heenan about Andre. And after a brief conversation about the confidence voting poll of the Honky Talk Man, Gorilla asks Bobby what he knows about Andre. Bobby's snide reply, I don't know how Andre voted for the Honky Talk Man. It's actually a very funny bit. You'd have to go listen to it to really enjoy it. But just more of Bobby being Bobby there. And at the end of this episode of Primetime, Gorilla Monsoon promises the fans he will find out what's going on with the Andre and Bobby situation as the show comes to a close. We fast forward a couple of weeks later, December 23rd, Primetime Wrestling. Jesse the Body Ventura is back, still looking for answers. This time, the body says he's going to get to the bottom of this. He interviews the boss himself, Andre the Giant. This man, Andre the Giant, was suspended. Now, there was a meeting that took place in which Andre's suspension was lifted. And yet, Andre the Giant was not present at this suspension. Is that correct? Yes. You weren't there. No. And the suspension was lifted. Bobby the Brain Heenan did attend this meeting and was there when this suspension was lifted. Is that correct? Yes. That's correct. Andre the Giant, please tell me, because Jesse the Body's got to know. I got to know all. I was caught totally off base for the first time in my career on this. I've got to know what went on in there, Andre the Giant. What happened to lift your suspension? That's none of your business. Hey, now I'm telling you, you better tell me. I got a need to know. The people got a need to I'll know. I'll tell you one thing. You talk too much. And that's why I don't tell you anything. Well, hey. That's none of your business, and that's all. Everything's my business. The body will find out. Jesse Ventura asks Andre about his reinstatement. Andre acknowledges that he didn't attend the reinstatement hearing, but that Bobby Heenan did attend. Jesse asks, what happened? And Andre tells him, that's none of your business. Back on the primetime set, Gorilla Monsoon is frustrated and says he'll ask Andre himself. Gorilla will get to the bottom of this as Bobby Heenan asks the Gorilla why people don't realize this just plain isn't any of their business. It was also during this time period in late December, Andre the Giant, a guest of Jake Roberts' snake pit. And when the snake asked the Giant about his reinstatement, Andre simply stated, it was all a big mystery. Andre doesn't know how he was reinstated, but he's back. And Ventura never wanted to leave a good story alone. He didn't get his answers he wanted from Andre the Giant, so he goes on and talks to Bobby the Brain Heenan. Well, they're both heels. They, they respect one another. Let's see what the brain tells the body. This is Jesse the Body Ventura with manager extraordinaire Bobby the Brain Heenan. Now, two weeks ago, right here in the World Wrestling Federation, Andre the Giant was reinstated to his full capacity as a wrestler. Now, I didn't know about that, and I vowed to get to the bottom of this. So last week, Bobby Heenan, I had the president of the World Wrestling Federation with me, one, and I won't call him honorable at all, Mr. Jack Tunney. Now, trying to get information out of Jack Tunney, I don't know how you do it. Maybe you got to go to send him to a POW camp and get him interrogated. But I got nothing out of Jack Tunney other than some meeting took place in which Andre didn't even attend this meeting and he was totally reinstated. Now, that is beyond me. But Tunney did say one thing, Bobby. He said that you attended this meeting. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, being at the... What happened at this meeting? Andre the Giant was reinstated. 
He was, and you let this happen? You let this seven foot four freak of nature back into wrestling? Wait a minute. There's no reason Andre the Giant shouldn't be back in professional wrestling. He's seven feet four. He weighs over 500 pounds. He's the most agile and coordinated human being in the world today for his size. There's no reason he shouldn't be in professional wrestling. You're saying this, Bobby Heaton? You're saying Andre the Giant should be back? You stood there at this meeting and allowed him back? Hey, I don't have to answer to you or anybody else. Andre the Giant is back, and at the end of every sentence is a period. Wait just a minute. You Wait a minute. You got to answer to me because I got to get to the bottom of this. The body's got to find out what is going on here with Andre the Giant as well as with Bobby Heenan. So as of the final week of 1986 on WWF TV, Andre has made his return to the World Wrestling Federation. He's been interviewed by both Jesse Ventura and Jake the Snake Roberts on the Snake Pit in regards to how he was reinstated only to be evasive. Very interesting there. Though we have learned that Bobby the Brain Heenan was at said reinstatement meeting with President Jack Tunney. And as we close out the year, once again, Gorilla Monsoon prods Bobby Heenan on primetime, but to no avail. So we head into 1987 with a lot of questions revolving around Andre the Giant. And I can't wait for those to continue to unfold over the next several weeks of the grenade. And even Bobby Heenan's lips are sealed. Even the brain refuses to share any information with Jesse Ventura. Very intriguing dynamic there. And in another interesting turn of events here leading into the new year, the Honky Tonk Man has apparently made a heel turn. Now, we don't have to go back too far. In fact, all the, just to the end of August, August 30th television, the Honky Tonk Man makes his TV debut on both programs that weekend. On one show, he's the guest of Jesse Ventura's Body Shop, and on the other, he's introduced to the crowd from another baby face, the Junkyard Dog, bringing out his good friend, the Honky Tonk Man. And over the following several weeks, we would get various promos from Honky as he's headed into the World Wrestling Federation, insert promos, talking trash against the heels, warning Mr. Wonderful Paul Orner for what he did to his good friend Hulk Hogan, the honky-tonk man's good friend Hulk Hogan. We even catch a quick glimpse of the honky-tonk man recording in the studio. And I have no idea how anyone thought mocking Elvis was going to get you over as a baby face, but the honky-tonk man finally makes his in-ring debut on television September 28th, using cousin Jerry Lawler's flying fist drop to get the win. And as they introduce the Honky Tonk Man by having the Junkyard Dog and Hulk Hogan and others say kind words about him to let the fans know they're supposed to support this character, on the other end, we have a lot of heels talking trash on Honky Tonk Man, including in his squash matches. We would typically get an insert promo from one of the heels talking down to the Honky Tonk Man. We get one here for Mr. Fuji cutting a promo on Honky to continue to try to sway the fans to like the Honky Tonk Man. And I think throughout all of this, the big sell job, though, was, was when they got Hulk Hogan, WWF champion Hulk Hogan, to cut an insert promo, putting over the Honky Tonk Man, telling the fans to support Honky because Hulk Hogan believes in him, brother. So if Hulk Hogan believes in you, the fans must believe in you as well. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Shake, round and roll all over the WWE. This honky-tonk man, he's got it all together, dudes. This guy trains, says his prayers, and eats his vitamins, and I think he's going to rock and roll this whole WWE. Wow. But nothing seemed to be working. The fans, he's not really getting over. The honky-tonk man getting quite a few boos. As many cheers as Jake Roberts, the heel, is getting, that's as many boos as the honky-tonk man, who is a babyface here, seems to be getting as well. 
and Honky goes on the road on the house shows by October of 86, initially working with Randy Savage and Jake the Snake Roberts. Before they dial it back just a little bit, Honky then begins working the opening matches with the likes of Steve Lombardi, Iron Mike Sharp, Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal even in here for a cup of coffee here in late 1986, working with the Honky Tonk Man. And after about a month or so in the company, the Honky Tonk Man changes up his finisher from that flying fist drop to what we know as the shake, rattle, and roll, the swinging neckbreaker. And it was painstakingly obvious almost immediately right out of the gate that the fans were not buying in to the Honky Tonk Man, the character, as a babyface. So in an interview with Jesse Ventura, the Honky Tonk Man began looking for a vote of confidence from his fans out there, asking the fans to vote in support of him rather than against him. The story ran for three weeks there on TV. Initially, the Honky Tonk Man asking for the votes week one. Week two, the following week, they followed it up by talking about the thousands of votes that had been pouring in. The votes of confidence for the Honky Tonk Man. Yes or no? And finally, on the November 22nd edition of Superstars, we were alerted that a whopping 71,000 fans were in support of the Honky Tonk Man. Wow, 71,000 fans showing their support of the Honky Tonk Man. Unfortunately, another 603,000 fans voted against the Honky Tonk Man. Oh, that's gotta hurt. 71,111 fans vote for the Honky Tonk Man. Meanwhile, 603,272, what a number, Vince, voting against the Honky Tonk Man. We don't like you. And how did these fans vote, you might ask? Well, first of all, I think the numbers, I think it's safe to say those are rigged, but they did put a P.O. box up on the screen and ask the fans to send in their vote, and I'm sure plenty did. Thousands probably did. And in actuality, these voting segments were done to get people to send in those postcards so the WWF could bulk up on their mailing list. They wanted your addresses, guys, for the upcoming Christmas merchandise catalog. Oh, that sneaky, shady Vince. And it's during this time period, in fact, this one really sticks out to me. We go back to the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, November 16th, the Honky Tonk Man taking on the heel-masked Mr. X, who's actually Danny Davis under the hood. Davis had been working a few years for the WWF off and on as a wrestler as well, which explains his ability to wrestle moving forward, if you want to call it that. But yes, here, it was Honky Tonk Man taking on Mr. X on the undercard here at Maple Leaf Gardens in November. And it was quite interesting because the fans booed every time the Honky Tonk Man hit an offensive move. So every time the Honky Tonk Man did a move, the crowd would just boo louder and louder. And he was still a baby face here, mind you. And for those interested in seeing that, that match actually winds up airing on Primetime Wrestling, the December 11th edition of Primetime. you got to see it, so head on over to the network, head on over to the Peacock. December 11th edition of Primetime Wrestling, the Honky Tonk Man and Mr. X in Toronto. The crowd? Not very big fans of the Honky Tonk Man. But we move on to December of 86, WWF TV programming. The Honky Tonk Man promised he would unveil a surprise the following week, and that he does. He keeps his word. Say what you want about Honky. You can at least say he's a man of his word. As on the December 14th edition of Superstars, the Honky Tonk Man introduces his brand new manager, the Colonel. Now he's a Colonel? Jimmy Hart. Now the acting manager of the Honky Tonk Man, which makes him an instant heel with the fans as if he wasn't already. And immediately, Honky goes from working some of the underneath babyface guys to working names like 
Lanny Poffo, Scott McGee, Corporal Kirshner, Special Delivery Jones, Jose Luis Rivera, and even C.V. Afi. In fact, another big match. You guys might have seen this on primetime as well. You can go check it out. If not, the December 26th edition of Madison Square Garden. The match airs on a January episode of primetime. It's, it's supposed to be Honky Tonk Man taking on C.V. Afi near the opening of the show. But Honky actually attacks C.V. Afi, lays him out, leaves him laying, unable to compete. Honky, thinking he's done for the night, finds out later on in the show, C.V. Afi's back out for some revenge. He wants to wrestle the Honky Talk Man. Now, Afi learns to regret that as the Honky Talk Man will get the win, but the Honky Talk Man doing everything he can, embracing the heel as only the Honky Talk Man can do. So the Honky Talk Man arrives on TV at the end of August, doesn't debut until the end of September, and two months later, he's already a heel. That's how fast it became obvious that the fans were, were not going to support this Honky Talk Man character. But wise move, as we'll find out as the year goes on here in 1987, the Honky Talk Man, the newest heel in the World Wrestling Federation. And just real quick, and we'll only spend a moment on this, but I wanted to touch on the November 86 Saturday Night Main Event results to give you an idea of where we are heading into our next Saturday Night's Main Event scheduled January 3rd, 1987. On the undercard, it's Coco Beware, another newcomer over Nikolai Volkov. We see the magnificent Morocco score a win over the Rebel Dick Slater. And I, and I couldn't help but thinking, stick this match in Florida like five years ago, and damn, what a, what a tremendous match that would have been. Uh, Killer B scoring a pinfall victory over the Hart Foundation back in November of 86. That'll be semi-important moving forward. Also on that show, Rowdy Roddy Piper scoring a win over former bodyguard, former best friend, ace cowboy Bob Orton, after Orton runs into Jimmy Hart, who was temporarily Orton's manager there for a brief period of time. Of course, Orton was briefly the bodyguard of Adrian Adonis, thus aligning himself with Jimmy Hart there briefly. Orton will pick himself up a new manager here, heading into 1987. But by November, with Adrian Adonis set to return, to feud with Roddy Piper, Cowboy Bob Orton pushed aside after not really drawing on the house shows, the B-shows, against Roddy Piper. So Piper scoring the win over his former bodyguard there on Saturday night's main event. And the feature match on the card, it was WWF champion Hulk Hogan going over the mighty Hercules, now managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan. Hercules giving it a go against Hulk Hogan, doing more there than he had ever done with his time in the WWF up until that point, giving Hercules to Bobby Heenan sort of rejuvenated his career. He was going absolutely nowhere prior to that with Freddie Blassie and Slick. And even in doing the job to Hulk Hogan, Hercules was showcased in the feature match here on NBC. You can't ask for much more than that. And that sort of sets the stage for where we move forward with Saturday night's main event. And we've got a lot of newcomers to talk about here in a minute. Lots of guys that have come in over the summer and fall here in the World Wrestling Federation. But first, let's talk about those finishing up with the company. And just a couple here but some very big names for a very long period of time with the company. First, Captain Lou Albano, sort of forced into retirement here. Vince McMahon had, had enough of his shenanigans. Everybody still loved Lou, but it was time to say goodbye on air. So Captain Lou kind of written out here by the end of November of 1986, and also Big John Studd finishing up with the company as well in November of 1986. Now, I mentioned before the machines, the machine gimmick, Finished up in November by doing a job to Bundy and Stud. Well, that was also the end of Stud. So essentially, everyone in the entire feud is gone after November besides King Kong Bundy. Not that I'm complaining. 
Now, Studs leaving was on his own. He decided he wanted to step away, maybe give Hollywood a try, do some other things. So John Studd had factored in that he probably would eventually return to the company down the line, but he was stepping away for the time being. Now, John Studd made that decision. Captain Lou, on the other hand, he was sent out a winner, scoring a win in a six-man tag team match over heel manager Luscious Johnny V. So Captain Lou getting a big win on his way out. Congratulations on the career of Captain Lou Albano. We saw him pop up a couple times there near the end of 93 in our last project here at the World Wrestling Federation. But Captain Lou will not make it here to 1987. As we move on and take a look at all of the newcomers who have recently come into the WWF, names include the likes of the King Harley Race, former, what, seven-time NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Harley Race, not always a big fan of the World Wrestling Federation. Remember the story about Vincent and Hulk Hogan and company coming into the St. Louis territory, coming into Missouri. Harley Race wasn't a big fan of that. You don't come take over my towns. And there's a story about Harley Race busting into the locker room, maybe with a handgun, uh, making some threats and things. But here we are just a couple of years later, Harley Race on the roster. Who can stay mad at handsome Harley Race? But the king, Harley Race now here in the WWF, they couldn't make him former NWA world champion. You couldn't sell him on that here. So Vince McMahon goes and gives him a, a WWF-like gimmick, makes him the king. And Harley Race actually won a King of the Ring tournament here in 1986 back in July in Providence before being coronated on TV as the King Harley Race, one of many new stars in the latter half of 1986. As Vince also continued to pillage the territories, including Bill Watts and the UWF, taking former North American heavyweight champion, that's the big title there at one time in the UWF, but Vince McMahon plucks Rebel Dick Slater, takes Dick Slater from the UWF and brings him over to the WWF, turns him into the Rebel, wearing the Dixie flag as sort of a cape on its way to the ring. You have to wonder how this character was designed to get over with the Yankee fans as a babyface. The Rebel Dick Slater, a natural heel, brought into the WWF as a babyface and never really gets over, but nevertheless stealing one of the top talents from Bill Watts in the Rebel Dick Slater. Also Mike Rotunda makes his return. Remember, a former member of the U.S. Express with Barry Windham, they got homesick to Florida. They left the WWF after a fun tag team title run back in 1985. Well, Rotunda returns here in the latter half of 1986, returning back from Florida and also some shots up in the AWA. Mike Rotunda returns, or excuse me, Mike Rotundo here in the WWF returns to form a new U.S. Express with Danny Spivey, sometimes even referred to as the American Express. Not sure how the credit card company felt about that. Rotunda and Spivey, now the new U.S. Express here, heading into 1987. Also, we saw the formation of the Tonga Kid and King Tonga. Makes sense. A new tag team by the end of the summer, going under the tag team name, the Islanders, renaming themselves Haku and Tama. The babyface tag team here, the Islanders. Another name taken from the UWF. Bill Watts had to be getting mad at this point. Coco Beware who was never really a main eventer in the UWF, but a very solid hand and certainly a, a fun mid-carder to watch and in tag team and singles action. Coco Beware the Birdman makes his way to the WWF in the latter half of 86, typically working underneath from the get-go, but Coco, by the end of 86, he started getting a little bit of a push, holding his own against the likes of Don Morocco, Harley Race, and the like. 
of the Birdman Coco Beware and his number one sidekick, Frankie. All right, baby, I'm telling you, I'm having a good time because I'm telling you, this is a dream come true, brother, to be right here in the World Wrestling Federation, brother. I'm telling you, Frankie, he's going to Hollywood. Frankie's got a new girlfriend. What, Frankie, what? Coco, what? Frankie's got a girlfriend? He's got a girlfriend, brother. I'm telling you, you ought to see her name is Lucille. I'm telling you, I'm telling you she looks just like Frankie. Really? Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm tell, I said, Frankie, how you know that's not your sister? Well, I know, I know, I know it's not my sister. Now, I understand, Coco, you and Frankie have been getting along very, very well. Oh, I'm telling you, Frankie and myself, we get along great, brother. I'm telling you, uh, Frankie, what are you doing? Will you please leave my... <laughs> okay, okay, see, he wants to get back to Lucille. he wants his own sunglasses. Hey, uh, you know, I, okay, Frank, you want to wear them? Go ahead, here, 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 you can have them. Okay, well, okay, I'm going to tell you one thing, but you see, the World Wrestling Federation, brother, uh, is, is this is where it's happening. I, I feel so good. All the fans have been behind the bird, man. All the fans have been behind Frank and myself. So everybody, come on, let's do the bird. Frankie, can you give me a little sugar? Hmm? So Frankie, love to kiss too, brother. If you want to kiss Frankie, all you got to do is just walk up real easy and do this. There you go, because he loved the kiss, especially those fine foxes ladies out there. So everybody. Coco, very up. quickly, for the fans that don't, how about a quick example? Let them see the bird. All right, let's do the bird, Frankie. Come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. The bird man, Coco Beware and Frankie. And we talked about this at the top of the show. From the Montreal Territory, Jacques and Raymond the Rougeau brothers. Now, I told you they worked most of 1986 for the WWF, but only when they came through Canada and during the Australian tours. But the Rougeos did go full-time on tour with the WWF here in the States by the end of the summer. The Rougeau brothers, Jacques and Raymond, have put together one of the most impressive one-loss records anybody has witnessed in a very long time. And you two gentlemen, brothers that you are, deserve a great deal of credit and have got to be considered as prime contenders for the titles currently held by the British Bulldogs. Thank you very much, Kenny. You know, we feel very enthusiastic about the situation. I mean, we're really pleased with our record and we're pleased about the whole United States and everybody that's in it. We've been having a great time here with the World Wrestling Federation. We've been climbing up the ladder slowly, and we're being very patient, and we're waiting because we know good things come to those who wait. And eventually, they're not going to have any choice but to give us our championship match. So we're really going to keep on what we've been doing, and we're going to stick together like we've been doing. Well, Jacques, there's no question you and your brother have had some tremendous battles with the likes of the Hart Foundation, the Dream Team, Greg the Hammer Valentine, and Brutus Beefcake. But let me ask you, I know certainly you're gunning for a title shot against the Bulldogs, but... There's some friendship, some camaraderie that exists between you two. It might be tough to get ready for that kind of a match. Well, you know, Kenny, that's the only sorry thing that I'm really sorry about is that someone else is not champions because the British Bulldogs are our friends. And it makes it hard for us to make friendship and competition. If we had to go in the ring with the British Bulldogs, we'd go in to win. But we know you people out there like the British Bulldogs because we like them. So we know you like them. So if the Hart Foundations were champions or if British, I mean, Beefcake and Valentine were champions, we know we could beat them because we beat them before so the important thing now is like my brother said is to wait for our chance we'll get our chance someday and until then we're going to hold on and we're going to hope you guys can wait for well, rest assured you'll hear more from the Rougeaus in the weeks to come now another name taken from Bill Watts UWF the Ugandan giant the Ugandan headhunter the mighty Kamala as we already discussed Kamala starting up a house show program with the WWF champion Hulk Hogan no doubt ready to make some big money here but Kamala another name taken from Bill Watts in recent months and the biggest is yet to come tough guy just about every wrestler here in the world wrestling federation has one goal in mind that to become the heavyweight champion of the world to try and unseat hulk hogan and hulkamania but one man who without question 
has emerged as the number one contender. As vicious, as devastating a man in the ring as the World Wrestling Federation has ever seen. He has left a trail of opponents carried out of the ring on stretchers wherever he has wrestled. We are speaking of none other man, if you will, or perhaps beast. More correct. But Kamala, the Ugandan headhunter, who was brought here to the World Wrestling Federation by the wizard, trained, managed, guided, if you will, by Kim Chi. Turn him around, Kim Chi. Let the people of the world see the giant Ugandan from the northern slopes of Kilimanjaro. Can every wrestler in professional wrestling outside of Hulk Hogan has already felt the sensation of being literally crushed by this man. It has been a stream. Like you said, a steady convoy of body after body upon stretcher after stretcher as the giant head hunter tries. Hulk Hogan! Get him back, Kim Chi! Hulk Hogan is the only elusive man that has kept running, and that is why he is still the world's champion. But that is all coming to an end. The thousands and thousands, easy Kabbalah, of Hulkamaniacs, where the Hulk gets his power is not enough to change the picture of destiny that looms in 87 for Kamala. It is without a doubt that Kamala in 87 will become known as the world's greatest professional athlete and he will have Hulk Hogan's belt. Another name brought back to the WWF at the end of 1986, former tag team champion here, Sika, one half of the Wild Samoans. And I thought to myself, how old was Sika here? Because Sika was really uh, not really even working the territories by this point, kind of just doing some indies up in the Northeast, maybe some tours around the, uh, the globe. But overall, Sika not really working full time, certainly not on top. So I go and I look it up, and, and Sika's in his early 40s here. In 1987. Now, that's not a complete shock that Vince McMahon would still hire him. I mean, to quote Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, the brother Samoan, what's he going to do? Sika, even in his early 40s, still looks like a beast in there. What an awesome vignette. I threw that up on YouTube, by the way, guys. YouTube.com slash wrestling grenade. Check that out. Sometimes it makes a man wonder what drives a man to turn his back and the revert on his old society to go back and to be truly free to live like your ancestors did 1,000 years ago where you just take what you want to take because might becomes right in the jungle. 
This is the kind of man that's going to crawl under the back of the real white Bengal tiger, Hulk Hogan, and chew deep into his fangs. Sika! There is only one man! There is only one true gorilla from the jungles of Samoa! You only have to look at this man's face. You look in his eyes and you can see the predator that stirs deep within his soul. Then you wonder what makes a man go crazy in the jungle. What makes him want to get out and conquer the World Wrestling Federation? It's from such humble beginnings here that stirred deep in the soul of Polynesia that the last true cannibal is ready to seek vengeance on a world grown sinful with hate. The wizard on the beaches and in the jungles with the mighty Sika. And for those listeners of the Grenade who are just now learning about the good old days, you guys might know Sika better as the father of current WWE superstar Roman Reigns. How about that? And while we're at it, speaking of second-generation superstars, believe it or not, a very young lad by the name of Owen Hart had a handful of appearances here in the World Wrestling Federation back in September of 1986 under the name Owen James. And Owen actually did so well that he was slated to be part of the upcoming February 1987 WWF Tour of Australia. More on that in next week's episode of The Grenade. But think about that. 1986, Owen Hart did a few shots for the WWF. Also recently acquired by the World Wrestling Federation, a pair of gentlemen taken from what was left of the Kansas City Territory. You guys know them as the manager, the doctor of style slick, and one of his earliest protégés, the natural here in the WWF, the former hacksaw, Butch Reed. And Slick here in 1986 was an interesting dynamic because he didn't just come in as a manager, he came in as a co-manager along with the uh, Hollywood fashion plate classy Freddie Blassie. So they actually co-managed Hercules Hernandez, the Iron Sheik, and Nikolai Volkov. So we would see Slick and Blassie ringside, sometimes just Slick ringside. And the uh, reason for this was Blassie knew his days were numbered on the road. Blassie's hips, his knees, his back, all of these things weren't what they used to be after years and years of, of wrestling in the ring. It, it caught up to Freddie Blassie, and actually it had long before this. But the, uh, the classy one brings in a Slick, who's doing more of a, a pimp-like gimmick here in 86. Blassie brings him in as his business associate, and it's apparent they split the contracts of, like I said, Herc, Sheik, and Volkov. And as the summer goes on, we begin to wind things down. And by the end of September, Freddie Blassie is removed from television. He is quietly retired from the business, at least the on-screen portion of the business. And Slick becomes the full-time solo manager of Hercules Hernandez, yes, and the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. But also, after Freddie Blassie steps aside, leaves the stable, Slick immediately brings in a new man by the name of the natural Butch Reed. 
And it's kind of odd to see Reed show up so far after Slick because both guys were signed to the company at the same time. So I'm not sure if this was a situation where Reed had maybe some nagging injuries he needed to recover from before he appeared on TV. But it's also very interesting that he appears almost immediately after Freddie Blassie leaves. So were they waiting for Butch Reed to make his debut at the right time, the right moment, where he was managed alone by Slick, where he was Slick's first real protege? And I couldn't help but think, man, it's just absolutely too bad <laughs> that Butchery doesn't show up until Blassie is gone because I would have loved to have heard some of Freddie Blassie's promos on the bleach blonde, natural bleach blonde black man. Those would have been for some fun promos from Freddie Blassie. And speaking of Slick and Butchery, I'm going to touch on a few more things about both of these guys. First, we're going to talk about Slick here in the latter half of 86 and even going into the early part of 1987. You'll notice that Slick actually has a cast on his hand. And since they don't play it up too much on TV, you can pretty much guess that this is a legitimate injury he suffered here. And indeed it was. And we go back to the fall of 86. It's the Bulldogs working with Sheik and Volkov all around the horn on the house shows. And every night they would bring Matilda the Bulldog to the ring to chase Slick around. That was usually commonplace. Matilda would chase around the manager, Jimmy Hart, Slick, whomever it may be. And every night, the Doctor of Style would jump up onto the top rope, sit on the top rope, try to escape Matilda. But one night, Matilda got an extra little frisky. And this incident goes back to November 12th in Tacoma. And as Matilda leaped up to try to grab the Slickster, bite him, if you will, she succeeded as she reportedly grazed Slick in the crotch area. Ouch. Naturally, no pun intended, rather than take a bite to the nuts, Slick decides to dive, fall. He fell backwards, lost his balance off the top rope, fell backwards, head over heels, off the top rope where he was seated and landed elbow first on the arena floor, thus fracturing his arm. And even though he was in severe pain, get this guys, Slick refused to get treated for the injury because he was supposed to get involved in the finish of the match there. So the doctor of style doing what was best for the business. Now, as for the natural, as for Butch Reed's gimmick, Apparently, according to Dave Meltzer, we could have had a natural rock instead of a natural reed. No, not that rock, but, but pretty close. DeMelt says if something had screwed up with Butch Reed, Vince McMahon was going to have a bleach blonde black wrestler no matter what. And apparently Sweet Daddy Seeky too far up in age for Vince to acquire him. So if Butch Reed had changed his mind and refused to do the natural gimmick, Vince McMahon had already promised the spot to... Rocky Johnson, the father of The Rock. So at least according to the Meltzer, it's interesting if, if this is actually wrestling lore or really factual, but Rocky Johnson, and, and we know people can be carny, people can tell stories, but he was promised is the, he was the backup natural, which would have been pretty interesting. But I'm a big Butch Reed fan, so we'll roll with it the way it was. Now, from each and every one of us here at the World Wrestling Federation, from President Jack Tooney on down to all of you, a very happy and healthy 1987. Now, reflecting back on the year 1986, one man who was embroiled in a number of controversies, referring, of course, to one doctor of style, Slick. First question, uh, Slick, uh, by the way, uh, how's a broken arm coming? You little sarcastic wimp. You're not concerned about my arm. You just want to mock ass. me and make... Shut your mouth! Are you in an interview interrupt? But let me tell you something. Just remember this. You and everybody else who's responsible and who's ever laughed about this arm is going to have dues to pay. Now then, let's don't talk about that. Let's talk about my main man right here. 
Take a good look at him, people, because this is what you're going to have to deal with in 1987. There are many grapplers here in the World Wrestling Federation. Their heads are spinning. They're walking around, shaking in their boots like leaves on a tree. They're more afraid of the natural bushweed than a dog is a flea. Tell them about that natural. You know why? You know why? It's because the natural man is a natural man. And the natural man is naturally undefeated in the WWF. And I continue to, to be undefeated even on up into the new year, you understand? Because I'm going to start that new year off right. I'm going to start that new year off by getting some competition. Getting some competition that is competition. Somebody the natural man can beat up. And it really means something. From the junkyard greasy dog. Take the snake, Roberts, Macho, Savage, Tito, Santana. Oh, As the natural himself said, a number of wrestlers gunning for one Butch Reed. But there's so many more guys to talk about here coming into the WWF. And, and another of those names is the Enigma that is, well, was at the time, Tom McGee, who made his WWF debut in a one-off match with Bret the Hitman Hart in October of 86. Yes, that match, guys, right there on the WWE Network, right there on Peacock. You can go watch that in the documentary section, I do believe. Tom McGee versus Bret Hart from October of 86. McGee got that one-off match with Bret before going on the road with the WWF full-time in January of 1987. McGee was a tremendous all-around athlete. DeMelt cites that he was a Golden Gloves boxing champion, a karate black belt, a world-class powerlifter, and a national-caliber bodybuilder. Even played some Canadian football. And for his size, an excellent gymnast. He had everything, guys, and, and Vince McMahon thought so too. He saw dollar signs, so much so after this one match with the Hitman that they took him off the road immediately, held him out for three months to get him groomed and ready to go, and shoved him back on the road, but not on TV, because they didn't want him to debut until he was perfect. Because get this, believe it or not, Tom McGee, in Vince's eyes at this point in time, was the next Hulk Hogan. And he really honestly had all the attributes of a Hulk Hogan outside of the personality, the charisma. Tom McGee in the ring was phenomenal and, and very athletic. And he looked the part too, don't get me wrong. But for those of you who don't know the story, you go back to the October 7th tapings in Rochester where Brett took on Tom McGee. Not only did McGee go over on the hitman, but it had been reported in The Observer and, and in many other places that it was one of the greatest matches of all time to have never been seen, never made air. It was one of those holy grails that just no longer existed. But much like the last battle of Atlanta with Tommy Rich and Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer, the video was found, and in recent years, the WWE placed it on their network. So uh, it's out there, guys, if you want to go check it out. Now, does it stand the test of time? For 1986 WWF standards, I'd say it's pretty impressive. Now, was it a five-star match? That's always subjective, but I'm going to go with no. Nevertheless, Vince loved what he saw. He thought he had the future Hulk Hogan, the next Hulk Hogan. And for quite a while there, they kept McGee on the roster and hoped for the best. And that's the reason why we don't see much of Tom McGee in WWF footage. Because the plan was to have him explode onto the scene once he was ready. And, and arguably, I guess, I suppose, there were parts of his WWF quote-unquote character that was just never ready for prime time. But Tom McGee headed in full-time to the WWF in January of 87. I also talked a little earlier about the demise of the Machines tag team. We know the Giant Machine goes on to be Andre the Giant once again. We know the Super Machine, formerly the Masked Superstar, 
Now that the machines have been dissolved, he'll pop back up here very shortly as acts of demolition. And the big machine? Why, Black Jack Mulligan, who is already back filming vignettes and working bunkhouse battle royals. And as we finish talking about all the talent that have recently arrived here in the WWF, we're going to talk about some of the names that are on their way in. They'll be debuting in just a matter of days, weeks, within the next month or so. Coming in are the likes of Cowboy, excuse me, Outlaw Ron Bass. He's a heel. It's Outlaw Ron Bass. He'll be headed up from the Florida Territory. Brand Reagans from the AWA, also a way to screw with Vern Gagne because everybody knows that Brand Reagans, a former Olympian himself, trainer of Olympians, I should say. Brand Reagans is the trainer at the Vern Gagne AWA wrestling camp. So by taking Reagans and having him work full time for the company, they're taking Vern Gagne's trainer. So Vern, another reason to hate Vince McMahon here heading into 1987. And the reason we see names like Ron Bass and Rangans added to the roster is because the WWF adding an extra house show per night, A, B, and C house shows, they need to fill those cards. So they need the best of the best, which they already have, and they need the next tier of guys as well. And that's not to knock Brad Rangans' amateur skills. He was never the best pro wrestler, but he was certainly capable. And Ron Bass been around the horn a very long time by this point. Maybe not the most exciting wrestler to watch by 1987. But again, a capable hand and, and a wise move by Vince McMahon to grab guys like this for the undercard on some of these sh- house shows because you've got to fill them out. And another name headed in, and this one's no slouch, guys. Ho! It's Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who will be leaving Bill Watts UWF for the World Wrestling Federation. And this has to be a monster blow. We talked about guys like Coco Beware, Dick Slater. We can go back to Jake the Snake Roberts, honestly. All of these guys being taken, some of them working the top of the card for Bill Watson the last year. Jake and Dick Slater on top there before they came over to the WWF. But this one, this is the biggest blow yet, probably since the junkyard dog to Bill Watson. Vince McMahon takes the number one babyface, the UWF's Hulk Hogan, so to speak, from Bill Watts. Hacksaw Jim Duggan making his way to the World Wrestling Federation. And that can't be good for the old Mid-South Territory. Other names headed back, headed in, or reportedly headed in. Let's look at this. Honorable mention has to go to Kim Patera, the Olympic strongman. And for those of you who don't know the story of Kim Patera, well, I think there's a Kim Patera story Coliseum video out there, though they may sugarcoat parts of it. I'm not really sure. I haven't watched it in many, many years. But the story goes all the way back, and I, I want to say maybe 84. I'm not really sure when it was off the top of my head. Kim Patera had been working for the AWA, Vern Gagne's AWA. And the story goes, Kenny was looking for something to eat. He went to a McDonald's. They had closed. And Ken was not a happy man. He wanted in. He wanted his cheeseburgers, damn it. And now if you listen to Patera tell the story, eh, there's some obvious alterations to it. But the main story that's out there, the story goes that Patera had thrown a rock through the window of McDonald's and went back to his hotel room. And by the time he got back to his hotel room, somebody had already reported him. They knew who he was. They knew where he was staying. They reported him to the police. The police come to the hotel to arrest Kim Patera for throwing the rock through the window at McDonald's. Now you figure something as simple as that Probably wouldn't have got much time, if any at all. But Kim Patera was rooming with a true badass in his own right by the name of Mr. Saito, Mr. Torture. And as the cops arrive and they enter the room, they attempt to arrest Kim Patera. Not only does he resist arrest, but Saito doesn't really know what's going on. And he begins fighting the cops as well. So Patera and Mr. Saito lay out and assault all of these policemen before finally both of them being arrested. Poor Mr. Saito brought into all of this. But both guys were arrested and arraigned. And eventually, Kim Patera had moved back over to the WWF during the big boom period of the rock and wrestling era. But sadly, his charges would not escape him, and both men were were sent to jail, I believe, somewhere around May of 1985. 
But I'm happy to announce that as of December 9th, 1986, Kim Patera released from prison, as was Mr. Saito, and Patera's return to the WWF reportedly imminent, barring any setbacks. So Kim Patera getting a job back with the WWF. Maybe, I know Vince, quote-unquote, abandoned Kenny once he got arrested, or excuse me, once he started serving time. But the minute he gets out, at least he's got a job offer. So maybe Vince felt bad. Maybe there was a deal in place already. I don't really know how the story goes, but I do know that Kim Patera re-signs with the WWF upon being released from prison. Mr. Saito, forced to return to Japan, reportedly he was never allowed or never permitted to return to the States to wrestle again, though we know that's not true. Mr. Saito will be back for the AWA, and he'll even work a couple of Starcades, Starcade 90 and uh, 95. Yeah, so Mr. Saito, he comes back every now and then. Not sure if he flew in under the radar or everything was just kind of forgiven. Either way, expect to see Kim Patera back in the WWF here in 1987. Demelts with rumors of a fellow by the name of Scott Hall joining the World Wrestling Federation. That's the future Razor Ramon. You guys know Scott Hall as a member of the NWO as well. Demelts reports here that it's thought that Scott Hall, Scott Hall thought he had a job at the WWF. He thought based on his size and his look, somebody gave him the uh, idea that he could get a job with Vince McMahon. So he quits the AWA after getting into a skirmish with promoter Vern Gagne, but after waiting a little bit and not receiving a call from Titan, yes, the WWF did not come calling Scott Hall. He went back to Vern Gagne, smoothed things over, and was back in the AWA in no time. That would have been interesting, Scott Hall in the WWF in 1987. He certainly matched that mid to late 80s criteria as far as looks go, but all you got to do, and we know this from the grenade going back and watching Scott Hall in 1989 in the NWA, he certainly wasn't ready yet. For the big, big times, if you know what I mean. So I think if Scott had debuted here in 87, he would have done himself no favors at all. So it was probably good that it took Scott Hall a few more years of working for the AWA in Puerto Rico before coming back to WCW and eventually developing into the Razor Ramon character. But it's always fun to go back and look at the what-ifs. One final name who, well, he's kind of already arrived in the company and he's and we're going to see a whole lot more of him here in 1987. Tie me kangaroo down, sport. Yes, it's Outback Jack. Outback Jack brought in for a couple matches in November. It became obvious immediately that he wasn't ready for the WWF rings just yet. So he was sent up to Calgary and Stu Hart for some ring seasoning before debuting in the WWF in early 1987 on a full-time schedule. Now, Jack has went into shoot interviews since this time, and he's he said that he probably trained with Stu Hart or the Hart family in the dungeon for about a week before he was moved over to the man of a thousand holds, Les Thornton, who was a former multiple-time NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion, but also could tie you up in a pretzel in the snap of a fingers. Les Thornton was not somebody to be fucked with. And as of November 14th, Outback Jack makes his Calgary Stampede debut and immediately goes into a feud with the former Muck and Sing in the NWA 89. He was Norman. And the WWF in 1993, Bastion Booger. Outback Jack versus Bastion Booger. Imagine that. I don't want to. But with all due respect, Mike Shaw is muck and sing his stuff in Stampede. He could really go. So I'm not going to shame Mike Shaw here. However, Outback Jack actually got his start here in North America anyway. There are reports that he worked some little small indie promotion out in Australia before coming over to the States. But yeah, for those who didn't know, Outback Jack got his start up in Calgary here in North America, working for Stu Hart, and he worked there for a couple months before rolling over to the WWF. 
And that's it for newcomers for now, so we move on to another big news piece, and that is Jim the Anvil Neidhart in trouble. Again. Now, this story doesn't break until January 15th of 1987, but I found it fairly prominent, so I wanted to touch on it here this week as it happens right at the beginning of the year. And on January 15th, 1987, Jim Neidhart was arrested for allegedly punching a U.S. Air flight attendant during a flight from Tampa to Pittsburgh. Neidhart was indicted by a grand jury in Pittsburgh, but he pleaded not guilty to begin things. Now, now in the story, it was alleged that Neidhart had punched a flight attendant four or five times on the arm when she demanded payment for the two beers she had served him. Other reports stated she had also refused Neidhart further beverages, so maybe he was upset he couldn't get another beer. In Neidhart's first statement, he claimed he had never touched her. Before the story changed and his attorney stated, Neidhart was simply brushing the flight attendant's arm to gain her attention. Sure he was. <laughs> hey! You gotta pick the anvil, baby! Because there's no way, no way, anybody is gonna be an anvil! You ever see an anvil drop on someone's head? Oh. <laughs> Needless to say, the anvil missed his match on January 15th in Struthers, Ohio, but wrestled the next night in Pittsburgh after being freed on a $10,000 unsecured bond. At that point, Neidhart was being charged with a felony and faced up to 20 years in prison and a $10,000 fine if convicted. At that point, Dave Meltzer had speculated that the Anvil would probably have to stand trial shortly after WrestleMania unless he plea bargains in advance. Unless there is some sort of guarantee that Neidhart won't serve any time, you can be certain that the Hart Foundation will drop the tag team titles. And I know we haven't gotten that far in the storylines, but for those who know, you guys know the Hart Foundation soon to be WWF Tag Team Champions. So the idea here is they've given the Hart Foundation the belts after this incident, knowing what was going on. So talking about taking a chance there, Vince McMahon always taking risks, giving the tag team titles to the Hart Foundation. But the idea is if Jim's going to spend any time in jail, needless to say, the Hearts are going to have to drop the belts. And right now it's speculated that they would immediately drop the belts to the team of Tom Zink and Rick Martell, the Can-Am Connection, who at this point were being groomed as the next big babyface tag team, kind of the WWF's answer to the Rock and Roll Express, the North's version of what Pretty Boys should be. And we'll fast forward ahead a couple months, up to March 15th, after defending the tag team titles over the Killer Bees at Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens, apparently upon completing his match that night, U.S. Marshals were already standing by in the dressing room in Toronto where they handcuffed and arrested Neidhart to bring him back across the border, making sure that Neidhart returned to the U.S. Think about that. U.S. Marshals up in Canada. This was a very, very, very big deal in case you couldn't tell. At that point, Meltzer had speculated that Neidhart would probably miss the rest of his dates for the remainder of the week, but in actuality, the Anvil was in London, Ontario the very next day. So he gets arrested in Toronto, taken back to the States, and by the very next day, he's already back in Ontario in London, Ontario, Vince McMahon worked wonders back in those days. Now, at this point, it's reported still that Neidhart could face up to 20 years in prison, but the fine has jumped from 10000 to $250,000. Unbelievable. And we'll move ahead again. We'll go all the way up to April 17th, far after WrestleMania now. And this was in the local Pittsburgh newspaper. They announced that professional wrestler Jim the Anvil Neidhart has been found innocent of charges that he punched a flight attendant aboard the U.S. Airjet. A U.S. District Court jury deliberated 90 minutes Thursday before acquiring Neidhart, 31, of Lando Lakes, Florida, on charges of assault and interfering with a flight attendant. 
The attendant, Ava Winston, testified that Neidhart became angry when she asked him to pay for two beers he ordered aboard a flight from Tampa to Pittsburgh on January 15th. She and a co-worker, Stephanie Ziegler, no relation, said the six-foot, 240-pound Neidhart punched Miss Winston in the arm, then struck her again when she served drinks a second time. Neidhart's attorney, here's a familiar name, Jerry McDivitt, Neidhart's attorney, huh? Wonder where he got this attorney from. Jerry McDivitt told the jury that Neidhart was merely tapping her on the arm to get her attention. Ten, guys, ten witnesses also testified that Neidhart did not punch Miss Winston. And after being acquitted of his charges, Vince McMahon then loaned Jim Neidhart the money to sue the airline and the flight attendant for defamation, only in America, with the best lawyer he could find, future Senator Rick Santorum who procured a $380,000 settlement to Neidhart by the end of 1991. And this is where I have to take, uh, well, I'm paraphrasing too, but I have to take an excerpt from the book of Bret Hart, Bret Hart's autobiography, where he stated that Vince McMahon actually paid, he did indeed pay all of Neidhart's legal costs throughout this entire ordeal. And once Jim actually won the initial case and won the $380,000 from U.S. Air, Neidhart was supposed to take that money and pay Vince McMahon back with it. But according to the hitman, Neidhart had developed a nasty crack habit, which led to him getting fired a few times over the years. But Brett also stated that much of that $380,000, most of that money was actually blown on crack, cocaine, and a Kawasaki Ninja motorcycle, with the cash remnants of the settlement stored in a fanny pack that Neidhart wore while riding said motorcycle. So Neidhart never paid Vince McMahon back any of the money. That was the deal. Hey, pal, I'll give you $100,000 right now, but you got to pay it back when you win, pal. <laughs> sure, sure he will, but it's the fucking anvil. Come on, Vince. So needless to say, it's reported that Jim Neidhart never paid Vince McMahon back and that's part of the reason why the new foundation were no more. Neidhart fired shortly after getting the settlement and refusing to pay Vince McMahon back even a penny of it. That's balls right there. I guess Neidhart figured he didn't need Vince's WWF money when he's rolling on nearly a half a million dollars. And that's $380,000 in 1991 money. In today's world, that's an $800,000 payoff. Jim Neidhart won in 2022 money. $800,000, nearly a million dollars, and refused to pay Vince McMahon back. You talk about having a soft spot in his heart for certain wrestlers or certain people, like a Stu Hart. Clearly, Vince McMahon had that for Jim Neidhart, or maybe it was just Stu Hart, because how many chances was Neidhart given after this still here in the WWF? And you have to think that maybe Vince stiffed him here and there to get some of that money back. I mean, he was his boss after all. And the story goes the TV taping where Neidhart was fired. He went on a rampage because he had lost his job, so he had nothing to lose, and he went looking for road agent Chief J. Strongbow, who Neidhart and many other wrestlers did not get along with, and I'm sure he somehow found a way to blame Strongbow for this firing. Neidhart goes looking after Chief J. Strongbow. He's going to go kill him. He finds the chief, and using his expertise as an amateur shot putter, Neidhart picks up a TV monitor and chucks it at Strongbow. That's right, the 300-plus-pound Jim Neidhart picks up a TV monitor, and whips it across the room at Chief J. Strongbow. However, Strongbow, for the first time in many years, was able to move out of the way 
and the monitor instead winds up hitting one of the TV directors. Now, I'd also heard it was an official, a referee, but apparently it was a TV director right in the leg, broke his leg with the TV monitor, and it's reported at that point that Jim Neidhart ran out of the building, jumped in his car, and sped out of the parking lot, never to be seen, well, until his return in 1994, I suppose. And as I was doing this research on Neidhart and this U.S. Air story, some other things came up from his past. Yes, even before 1987, Jim Neidhart was finding trouble. Or maybe trouble was finding Jim Neidhart, or maybe a little both. But I did a deep dive, guys, and I went all the way back to the 1970s. And I found some more good stuff here. Well, maybe not good stuff, depending on who you're talking to. But as a wrestling historian, I always like to find out new information. And for those of you just out there who like hot gossip, check this out. And we go back again, reminding you, we go back to the 1970s here for these stories. There's a story discussing athletes and drug use. And part of that story goes like this. It says, in track and field, the classic case is that of Jim Neidhart, a Californian who became accustomed to popping a couple of uppers before every track meet in Long Beach while he was the leading high school shot putter in the country in 1973. Neidhart increased his drug intake during an ill-fated college career and went on several legendary drug-induced rampages. Wow, that sounds like Neidhart. The most notorious came after the 1976 Pacific 8 Conference Championships at Berkeley. Neidhart, at that time of UCLA, favored to win the shot put, came in a disappointing second place. Already fortified by a massive dose of amphetamine, he unwound with tranquilizers and alcohol and then, in a word of a witness, just went berserk. Neidhart, who weighed at the time more than 300 pounds, practically dismantled his motel room, then tied four bedsheets together, strapped a fire extinguisher to his back, and leapt Tarzan style off a fourth floor balcony. Unbelievable. Neidhart straps a fire extinguisher to his back and then swings from four bedsheets tied together out his window from the fourth story. And it sounds like Animal House ain't got shit on Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Instead of swinging to another balcony, however, Neidhart's arc sent him crashing through a plate glass window and into a first floor room. UCLA wound up with a $5,500 bill. Neidhart vastly relieved that he was still alive transferred to the University of Hawaii. Well, if that doesn't sound like a party college, I don't know what does. His problems did not end there, however, go figure. He went back to UCLA, but was dismissed after the 1977 track season. He tried to go back to Hawaii yet again, and then again to UCLA, but was denied admission. He then enrolled in Cal State Long Beach on a track scholarship, but it was revoked when he was declared ineligible. Neidhart allegedly threatened to beat up Ron Ellis, the track coach, if he wasn't given $1,200, the equivalent of his scholarship, to train independently. He spent a month in jail for extortion on this charge. He then tried out for the Dallas Cowboys. And it's noted that Neidhart had been an All-American defensive tackle in high school, but had not played football in college. And he was dismissed from the team once they learned that he was awaiting trial in Long Beach. Neidhart's friends now report here by the end of the 70s that he is now a professional wrestler in Canada, awaiting a tryout with the Canadian Football League. In closing, the story states that Neidhart had taken the drug known as Obitrol, which apparently contains four different kinds of amphetamines. And it's stated that you can take one 20-milligram capsule of Obitrol and scoot along for a whole day 
Go lift all kinds of weights and boogie around most of the night. But when you take a half a dozen of them like Neidhart did, 120 milligrams of amphetamine, you could fly out a window, which is exactly what he did. None other than the Hart Foundation, Brett the Hitman Hart, and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. There are no other teams. The time has come. <laughs> the time is here. It's now. It's the foundation. We've already <laughs> smashed out and disintegrated the little killer bees. <laughs> that was easy. Right, Hitman? And Jeez, now... Geez. Oh, it was easy. It was a piece of cake. <laughs> and now the little British pups. Gold uh, <laughs> on. Pups. Pipsqueak pups. Foreigners. <laughs> Nobody messes with the foundation. And the time... Has come. <laughs> right, Hitman? <laughs> but I'll <Yes>. pass soon. <laughs> Hitman is talking about yes. the hairstyles. Let me ask you, and I know it seems every time you go to the ring, a lot of the fans that begin to chant refer to you as, as Greaseball. Is that what a is that? At what all? does that got to do with anything? It's just, just nobody's business. What's in my hair? It doesn't matter. We're talking about winners here. We're talking about winning. You're talking about a philosophy of wrestling. You're looking at the greatest team of professional wrestling. And the Bulldogs, you're in trouble. You're running against the Anvil and the Hitman. Strength and skill. There is no doubt about it, wrestling fans. One of the leading contenders for the Tag Team Championship here in the World Wrestling Federation, the Hart Foundation. Unbelievable stories about Jim the Anvil Neidhart, and we're just creeping into 1987. He's got more stories to tell. We've got Kim Patera out of prison, Jim Neidhart potentially going to prison, and we know that doesn't happen based on the story here, but the chances were, were, they were very real here in early 1987, but we move away from that and we move into stories about WWF injuries at this point in time. Yes, guys were even getting injured back in the 80s. And first up on the list, Danny Spivey of the new U.S. Express was actually out of action for six weeks due to a knee injury between mid-October and the end of November of 1986. Now, Spivey's injuries, they go all the way back to his junior year in college, most of the reason why he never made it pro. Spivey had those lingering knee issues. They would continue on. We'll see that actually pop up again here in 1987. But as for 1987, as far as the beginning of the year goes, Dan Spivey back in action after November of 86, but he was out for six weeks with the knee injury heading into the new year. Another injury to report, Jacques Rougeau of the Rougeau brothers working on broken toes. You heard me right. Jacques Rougeau with some broken toes. Tried to tough it out. He did miss two to three weeks back in November of 1986, but then he was back on the road. And you'll see parts of early 1987 where Jacques Rougeau is subbed out on a few cards as well. I don't know if that ties into this toe injury or not, but Jacques Rougeau with what's listed as broken toes here back in November of 1986, heading into the new year. And then we move on to the two most prominent injuries coming out of 86, and those being... Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff, and the Dynamite Kid. And we'll start it off talking about the injury to Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And in at least one of his later shoot interviews he did with Boston Wrestling, Paul Orndorff claimed that he suffered this injury in Toronto, says he continued to wrestle for three months on it before he had to take a sabbatical, had to start taking time off due to the nerve issues that it caused. He's also made the statement that the person who caused this injury was on drugs at the time. Now, if you go back, Paul Orndorff, Toronto, you try to figure out the time frame. The injury, according to Paul, had it taken place in Toronto, would have had to have taken place at the big event versus Hulk Hogan at the end of August. 
or a week and a half later during a tag team match against Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper in Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, I'm not sure if Paul just remembers the story this way, and I'm not trying to disrespect anyone, including Mr. Wonderful himself, but sometimes guys remember things the way they remember things. It's not always 100% accurate. Now, obviously, this injury did take place, and I'm not questioning who was involved or even if they were on drugs, brother. However, Toronto just seems eh, maybe maybe sensationalized to me because had it been the big event, 68,000 fans, that just happens to be the night the injury occurred. Could it have been? Perhaps. He did say three months. We know Paul begins taking time off in December. Three months from December would have put the injury back in September. Again, we're talking memories of uh, 30 years prior. So who really knows? But very interesting that Paul Orndorff states that the injury took place in Toronto. He's very specific about that. And what had happened was he says he was kind of kicked up under, under the jawline, and that's what, where it all began. It, it, it slowly caused nerve damage in the neck, into the shoulder, down into the arm. Paul continued to work on it without seeking time off or the proper medical attention, developed atrophy in the arm, forced to take time off at that point. And we'll see Paul in and out of the ring off and on beginning in December of 86, and it continues all throughout 1987 as well. A very unfortunate accident leads to a very serious injury here. The nerve issues in the neck and the arm, all from being kicked under the chin. But Paul has stated time and time again, he was making huge money versus Hulk Hogan, and he wouldn't take the time off to correct the issue. And that unfortunately led to the atrophy in his right arm. And you guys will notice that for the rest of the remainder of his career, Paul had a much smaller right arm than left arm. They tried to hide that. He even talks about it in some shoot interviews where he says his bicep noticeably began to shrink, and he claims it even shrank up to as much as six inches due to the atrophy. Says the circumference of his arm was once 19 and a half inches, but actually had shrunk all the way down to 13 and a half inches. In fact, at one point, Dave Meltzer had referred to the nerves in his arm as being quote unquote dead, and the doctors were telling Orndorff to retire from the ring. But Paul, being the man that he was, continued to work with the bad arm, even beginning to wrap it up, putting a knee pad on it, and even extra padding in the knee pad to give it the perception of being a normal-sized arm like his left arm until he could no longer go and had to take that time off. And you'll see that from time to time here. Paul Orndorff wearing a knee pad on his arm, giving the illusion of the bicep. And regardless of when the injury actually happened, whether it was the end of August or sometime in September, Orndorff begins missing just a few shows in November of 1986 before Paul noticeably misses just over a month straight between December 14th, 1986 and January 18th, 1987. So Paul comes back just to work TV, works a squash match, obviously returns to work the match with Hulk Hogan inside the cage for Saturday night's main event. But Paul, for the most part, out of the game from mid-December until just after mid-January. So just over a month, Paul Orndorff taking time off there, and then he's back. But that doesn't last very long either, as once again, Paul Orndorff back off the road beginning March 20th. That's before WrestleMania 3. Take note of that, guys. Paul Orndorff back off the road before WrestleMania 3. As of March 20th, Paul Orndorff removed from the house shows, and he doesn't return again until June. So Paul Orndorff out some of March, all of April and May, returns in early part of June, and even then mostly working six-man tags and sporadic shots, usually replacing somebody on the house show cards, replacing the likes of Harley Race, or the fired Iron Sheik by that point. And even though Paul may have made an appearance or two in June on television, he was kept off TV for all of July and August. No Paul Orndorff again, so very spotty is his track record here with the company. And it all starts here in November. He misses a few dates in November of 86. 
takes off in mid-December, doesn't return till mid-January. Then he's out again in the latter half of March, doesn't pop back up until June for a TV taping or two, does a few house shows here and there, but he's kept off TV on purpose for all of July and August. Now, as for the house shows over the summer, Paul did work a few matches with Ken Patera, although all of those matches reportedly going under five minutes. And by August, Mr. Wonderful out again for the entire month of August before returning to do the babyface turn at the end of the summer. So finally, returning to the ring at the end of August, beginning of September, Paul Orndorff now a babyface feuding with Bobby Heenan and his Heenan family. It only seemed fitting that with Kim Patera's return earlier in the spring, of course, he was feuding with Bobby Heenan all throughout the summer, Patera suffers the injury and he's out, so it made sense to take Mr. Wonderful and plug him into the Kim Patera feud spot instead, so Mr. Wonderful now replacing Kim Patera on the house shows, feuding with Bobby the Brain Heenan and company by the fall. So Orndorff back by September of 87, he's in the groove, he's working September, he's going through October, he goes all the way up until November 9th, and then Mr. Wonderful is out yet again. And you have to think, this injury has a lot to play into all of this. But Paul Orndorff out again as of November 9th, and he doesn't return to the ring until the Survivor Series pay-per-view on November 26th, so Orndorff misses most of November as well. And then he's back in the ring just about a month before he begins missing dates around Christmas time. I don't know if that's on purpose or not. And at that time, by then, obviously, he's feuding with Ravishing Rick Rude, a current member of the Heenan family at that point. And Paul Orndorff actually finishes up with the WWF finally January 4th, 1988, the final date in the ring for Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and the World Wrestling Federation. So the WWF, very protective of using Paul Orndorff for most of 1987 upcoming. But we'll be lucky to have him when we get him. But that's just how serious this injury was. Now, remember, Paul Orndorff suffers this injury in the fall of 86 or the late summer, whatever you want to call it. And he works on it for at least three months, self-admittedly, works on the injury for three months without seeking the proper medical attention for the injury. And these nerve issues lead to the atrophy in his right arm, which caused him to eventually have to take time off because his body is just so depleted and he needs to address the injuries. And he just couldn't take that time off too busy making that money hand over fist, working with Hulk Hogan in the main event everywhere. And we talked earlier about the numbers they were doing, the gates they were doing. Can't say that I necessarily blame him, but Orndorff got wise. He knew his days in the WWF were likely numbered. He knew his days in the ring may likely be numbered. Of course, the doctors suggesting that maybe he retire from the ring. During his time out, during these injuries here in early 1987, Orndorff goes and purchases a bowling alley, of all things, and it's mildly successful. It's something that he can live on comfortably. And so Orndorff spends most of 1987 grooming himself from leaving the sport and moving on to running his bowling alley back near his home. Imagine that, a wrestler thinking ahead in life. Paul Orndorff wise beyond his years here, heading into 1987. And of course, by the end of the year, he leaves January 4th, 1988. He's ready to go. And Orndorff takes time away, certainly full time away from the sport for at least the next couple of years. Now, we know he'll pop back up in WCW 1990. He'll do some things with Herb Abrams' UWF. I'll never forget the day I turned it on the sports channel. And Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful, was coming out to MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. But twas the times, the early 90s. And eventually, with Bill Watts back in charge, the old Brandon Bull from the Mid-South days, Paul Orndorff pops up for WCW, and there he would stay, first as a wrestler, later as a trainer, until the demise of the company. But at the end of the day, a very serious injury was had. It wasn't treated properly on time. I don't even know if, uh, what they could have done. I'm not really sure 
if this thing could have, he could have recovered 100%. And it was just all about making this money short term with Hulk Hogan. I don't know that he ever thought it was going to lead to what it led to, obviously not. But it's safe to say that due to this injury and due to not correcting it and taking the time off when needed, that Paul Orndorff was uh, never the same again. And even though he was very solid in his WCW days, he just never got back to this 1980s Mr. Wonderful. He's going to get his shot eventually at Hulk Hogan and become the world's champion. And you're lucky he's not a racehorse. Or he'd win the Belmont and the Kentucky Derby also because he's our greatest athlete today. And he's the only man that ever left the champion of the world, Hulk Hogan Lane. And he has a simple name. It's just Mr. Wonderful. And here he comes. You know, Bobby, some people would say just what you've just said to everybody out there, that that would be bragging. That that would just be thinking that you're cocky. But you know something? That's exactly right. The truth really hurts. Because Hulk Hogan, I have earned respect. I deserve respect. I was drafted in the NFL. I was in the College Football Hall of Fame. High School All-American. The greatest athlete to ever come out of the state of Florida. I've earned it. I deserve to be the next World Heavyweight Champion. You see, Hulk Hogan, the difference between you and I is that I'll do anything at any cost to get something I want. I'll even sell my own family down the river for one reason. And that's our world's heavyweight belt. You see something? I left you laying right in the middle of a ring. Right then I left you because you thought that I was your friend. <laughs> friend. You're really dumb. Because Hulk Hogan, I've got you running wild right now. You're on the Rangers at the point of no return. Sooner or later, Hogan, you're going to have to be man enough to sign your name to a contract. And then I'm going to be the champion. And that's going to bring us down to one more injury to discuss here. And this one, whew, there's a lot of stuff to sort through. It's the injury to the Dynamite Kid. Currently one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, along with Davey Boy Smith, the British Bulldogs. We go back to December 13th, 1986, Cops Coliseum, Hamilton, Ontario, where the WWF Tag Team Champion British Bulldogs defeat the team of the Magnificent Morocco and Cowboy Bob Orton. But it's not so much the finish of the match we're here to discuss, but rather what happened midway through the match. And for those curious, this footage is out there. This match is out there if you know where to look online. But midway through the match, Dynamite Kid sustained a serious back injury when Dynamite and Bob Orton were crisscrossing and Morocco stuck his knee into the back of the Dynamite Kid from behind. So Dynamite's running the ropes. They're doing the crisscross spot. Morocco out on the apron, sticks his knee out, the old heel tactic, but the knee very well placed, so to speak, right into the back of the Dynamite Kid. And the kid immediately collapses. And it's not a sell job, guys. Davey Boy Smith uh, actually winds up working the remainder of the match all by himself. Dynamite can no longer compete at that point. So needless to say, they had to do a little impromptu finish there. Something the guys in 2022 may not be able to accomplish, but back in 1986, these guys, old pros, they ad-lib Mr. Fuji up on the apron, tries to nail Davey Boy with his cane. Davey Boy moves. Fuji blasts Orton. Davey Boy makes the cover. The Bulldogs retain the titles, all without the help of the downed Dynamite Kid. And following the match, 
everyone involved realizing that Dynamite Kid is legitimately hurt rather than step back and allow the trainers or the doctors or what have you back here in this era to take care of Dynamite. No, instead, wrestling was still wrestling. This was still real here back in 1986. So to add a cover story, Morocco and Orton then began to beat on and beat down the Dynamite Kid with chairs after the match. So Dynamite suffers a legit back injury, and then the heels go to town, working him over with folding chairs. Unbelievable. And needless to say, Dynamite Kid had to be stretchered out of Cops Coliseum. It was reported that the injury initially left Dynamite paralyzed from the waist down upon impact. Although by the end of that week, Dynamite had regained some feeling and movement on his right side. Well, thank goodness for that. Dynamite was then flown to his hometown of Calgary on December 19th and underwent disc surgery in his back. According to hospital officials, Dynamite had severe spinal disc and sciatic nerve damage. Doctors have told him that he shouldn't return to wrestling. Sounds familiar, Paul Orndorff. But our expectations here at the end of 1986 are that Dynamite will return. It will, however, be several months before he'll have any possibility of returning to the ring. Not if Vince McMahon has anything to say about it. The Observer goes on, Dave Meltzer says, Dynamite had been told by doctors to actually have this back surgery about six months ago. At that point, Dynamite had declined, figuring he would go on and wait until it got worse and he couldn't bear the pain anymore before finally having to need the operation. DeMel says what happened in the match was probably the inevitable occurrence. As the pain had gotten so bad, Kid hadn't even been able to lift weights for nearly two months, which is why he dropped about 20 pounds over the course of the fall. So many times Morocco gets blamed for this, Morocco and Orton get blamed for this. Some people have the story wrong that the chair shots were actually what did Dynamite in. It was just a well-placed or a not well-placed knee to the back of Dynamite Kid, but it really all goes back. Dynamite already had these issues. These were lingering issues that he had been working through for most of 86, and it really all goes back to his entire career. For anyone who hasn't ever checked out a Dynamite Kid match prior to the World Wrestling Federation, do yourselves a favor. Go back and check out anything Dynamite did over in Europe, up in Stampede, and definitely over in New Japan. Not just with Tiger Mask, but anyone. Phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. One of the greatest workers of his time period. But the problem was, you, you hear about Mick Foley throwing caution to the wind. Well, Dynamite, he exuded that. You're talking leaps, diving headbutts off the top rope to the floor. And that's just one of a zillion things he did over the course of that time period. And everybody says, wait a minute, though. He was, he was a damn good wrestler in the WWF. Well, yes, he was by WWF standards. But if you go and look at what Dynamite could do before he got to the WWF, unfucking believable And I'm not a fan of Dynamite Kid the Human Being, but as a wrestler, oh my God, what a talent. And yeah, when he came to the WWF, he could still go, but unfortunately, years and years of beating his body into the ground had already caught up to him. So I don't want to say he was a shell of himself by the time he got to the WWF. That certainly wasn't the case. He was still going, but as you can see here by 1986, six months ago, his back injuries were bad enough he should have had the operation done to him. But much like Paul Orndorff, hey, I'll get it done later. I got to put that off. Right now, I'm the WWF Tag Team Champions. I can't let my partner down, and I got to make this money while the getting's good. Because as we know, even now, wrestling has that next man up mentality. You almost have to. But it certainly was a dog-eat-dog -dog world here in the Hulkamania era. Guys tell stories all the time. I couldn't ask for time off to heal properly because I was afraid I was going to lose my spot, or I knew I was going to lose my spot. That next man up mentality. 
And that's why we see Paul Orndorff doing what he did, right or wrong. And the Dynamite Kid here obviously waiting six months longer than he should have for the surgery. And it leads to this unfortunate incident in the ring against Morocco and Orton here at the end of 1986. And Dave Meltzer also noted that not only was Dynamite Kid having back issues since the spring of 86, but ongoing knee issues since at least April of 1986 as well. Not a good coupling there. Knee injuries and back injuries combined. But the story goes on from there. Dave Meltzer writes in regards to the Dynamite Kid, he's been having knee problems since late April, and of late, he's been walking with a slight limp. His formerly spectacular ring style has virtually been non-existent since the spring due to his many injuries. There is talk that Dynamite will also undergo both knee and shoulder surgery following his back surgery later this week. The shoulder damage is pretty severe as well, as that's the part of the body, along with the knees, that take the punishment from those diving headbutt maneuvers. Just to give you an example of Dynamite's stubbornness and determination, not too long ago, the Dynamite Kid wrestled a few matches with a 104-degree temperature. Wow. The match in Toronto back on September 7th, where he threw up on Jimmy Jack Funk, was during that spell. Man, too bad that match didn't make air. The last word that the Melts got at this point on the Dynamite Kid is that he'll be released from the hospital. That's a medical facility, pal. Dynamite released from the hospital and he'll be in traction at his home in Calgary, recovering from the disc surgery through about February 10th. Although doctors have advised him to give up pro wrestling, being the crazy and dangerously determined individual that he is, that's one way to phrase it, Melts. Dynamite is talking about returning to the ring around February 11th. So there you go, the doctors say that he'll be out of traction on February 10th, and Dynamite preparing for a return on February 11th. Or at least that's what Meltzer speculates, because one of his idols, the Dynamite Kid. Dynamite's determination to return to action is such that Titan's plans for holding a tag team title tournament have been scrapped. DeMelt says they're going to wait for the Dynamite to return unless the doctors chain him down to the hospital bed through March when WrestleMania comes around. So maybe speculating the Dynamite going to return to the ring prior to WrestleMania at least. Maybe to drop the belts at WrestleMania? We'll have to wait and see as the story goes on. And of course, this wouldn't be a Meltzer story without a little bit of ha-ha thrown in. And being the comedic genius that he is, this next bit should give you an idea of Dave's sense of humor. And this is in regards to the fact that perhaps Davey Boy Smith will have to find a new tag team partner to fill in for Dynamite for the next several weeks. And Meltz had this to say. He wrote, What is scary is that someone mentioned if they use the Junkyard Dog as a replacement for Dynamite and the British Bulldogs, is that at that point, Matilda would actually be able to do the second best high spots on the team. Ugh. Really, Dave? You know, for an unbiased journalist, Meltzer really had it out for certain guys. Junkyard Dog easily near the top of that list, if not at the top of that list. Constantly referring to him as the junk food dog, now implying that Matilda, the bulldog, a better worker than JYD. Unbelievable. But good old Melts always finding time to bury someone. And one last bit on the Dynamite Kid is a few weeks in to his traction at home, Dynamite Kid was actually sent back to the hospital to continue his traction. The surgery he had had a few weeks back was a three-hour back operation where they removed the disc between the L4 and L5 vertebrae. One doctor's opinion is that it's a long shot that he can return to the ring, and he's been advised not to return, as we've already mentioned. But of course, we know he will. 
Dave Meltzer says that the disc surgery itself will severely cut down on the flexibility of the Dynamite Kid, and there is no way he'll be able to do the flying moves that he used to do. And Meltzer goes on to say that his guess is Dynamite won't be able to carry all that weight because his body won't stand up to the heavy weightlifting needed to get the muscle back. In other words, Tom Billington may return to the ring, but the Dynamite Kid will never wrestle again. And Meltzer essentially saying there that, yes, the man who portrays the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington, may return to the ring, and we know that he does, but we will never see the old Dynamite Kid ever again. And sadly, while Dynamite does return, and he's more than capable of holding his own here in a WWF ring, we don't get the old Dynamite Kid ever again, that's for certain. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as you well know, early in the year of 1986, in fact, it was at WrestleMania 2, two gentlemen surprised a lot of people when they became tag team champions, referring, of course, to the British Bulldogs, Davey Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid. And immediately following WrestleMania 2, Davey Boy, a lot of people said it's going to be a very short title reign for you and Dynamite. But here we are, winding down 1986, tag team title belt still firmly around your waist. That's right, all year of 86, and hopefully, Ken, all year of 87. We've defended these belts against a lot of tag team combinations and we've come out successful and hopefully 1987 is going to be as good as 1986 was for the British Bulldogs and Matilda. A dynamite, there's no question. You and Davey Boy have defended the titles all over the world and have literally faced every single contending team. But some people are feel that that schedule is beginning to be too much of a grind on you and Davey Boy, that you're beginning to be weakened and maybe ripe for the pickings early in 1987. You know, Ken... We've been on the road for a long time now with these belts, and it has been a grind. But the thing is, the Bulldogs have been working out every day. They've been running on the beaches, they've been pumping weights every chance they get. And there is a lot of strong combinations out there. The Foundation, Killer Bees, Rude Joe Brothers, I can go on and on. Valentine and Beefcake. But still, we have the belts around our waist. And any team that wants to challenge the British Bulldogs are welcome to sign a contract. We have open contract to anybody. Stud, Bundy, anybody. We welcome you in 1987 to challenge us for these bells. Now, Davey Boy, when you and Dynamite first brought Matilda onto the scene, a lot of teams actually laughed at having a dog as a mascot, but she has proved a lot of people, and certainly to a lot of managers, wrong. That's right, Ken. Let me laugh first, laugh last. All these managers around here, they know what Matilda's capable of doing. They saw what they did to Slick. So Jimmy Hurt, Johnny Valiant, and Slick beware, because Matilda is here. Still, Still tag team champions. And we move on, and there's a a big show brewing, guys. There's actually a pay-per-view upcoming. You may have heard of it by the name of WrestleMania 3. Scheduled to take place Sunday, March 29th. The show will start at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. And this will mark the first time that WrestleMania will actually air live in all time zones. Remember in the past, WrestleMania 1... On closed circuit TV, venues were able to air the program at different times. Fast forward to WrestleMania 2, three different venues, East Coast, West Coast, and Chicago right in the middle. Again, three different time zones. And for anyone lucky enough to own a West Coast copy of WrestleMania 2, such as myself, well, you'll note the original version of WrestleMania 2, the East Coast version, it starts in New York, it works its way to Chicago, and then finally off to California. Well, West Coasters actually started out with the California show, and then they were shown the other two segments from New York and Chicago following that. So WrestleMania 2 on the West Coast actually closed with the British Bulldogs winning the Tag Team Championship. Well, here at WrestleMania 3, we are airing live from coast to coast. And for those who didn't know it, to go along with the tradition of WrestleMania 2, 
the three separate venues. WrestleMania 3 was originally going to take place once again in New York, Los Angeles, and this time Toronto, Canada at the Maple Leaf Gardens. However, the owner of said Maple Leaf Gardens, Harold Ballard at the time, wanted too big of a cut. So Toronto is out for WrestleMania 3, but they'll revisit that in a few years. So at this point, Vince McMahon has a decision to make. Does he whittle it down to two sites, the Los Angeles Sports Arena and likely the Nassau Coliseum? Or he can always find a new third venue. And Demelts even states that there had been some talk of a new third location being London, England. But the logistics of trying something like that seem to make that unlikely, you think? Hey, I got an idea. How about we scrap all of this? We move to one venue and sell it out 93,000 strong, or whatever Dave claims the real gate was. And as of December of 1986, here are some educated guesses at the WrestleMania lineup, courtesy of Dave Meltzer. Let's see how many of these matches come true here. Let's see. He's got uh, Ricky Steamboat challenging Randy Savage for the Intercontinental title. DeMeltz says virtually a definite. Well, we can check that one off. From there, DeMelt speculates WWF champion Hulk Hogan taking on Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff. He says they have to work some sort of angle where Danny Davis screws the Hulk in order to get the title off of him. Now, I don't believe for a second that Hulk will let himself lose the title. The best we can hope for is that Hulk, quote-unquote, graciously allows the belt to be held up. So Meltzer speculating here in December that some type of a title vacancy, the title gets held up. But it made sense with the uh, finish, to the original finish to the upcoming cage match, Saturday Night's main event. But Dave Meltzer speculating that perhaps Hogan versus Orndorff in the main event of WrestleMania three for the held up WWF Championship because he just doesn't see Hogan allowing Orndorff to take the belt off of him in order to win it back. Here's an interesting match. Demelt speculates we might see the team of Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino in the ring to take on the team of referee Danny Davis and Jesse the Body Ventura. Meltzer says, I've been hearing this rumor since the summer and completely dismissed it at first, but every week on TV, this nightmare is coming closer to a reality. Can you imagine not only seeing Vince McMahon in a ring in 1987, but teaming with Bruno Sammartino? Might have automatically became one of my top 10 WrestleMania matches of all time. Now we know none of this happens. In fact, three of these guys do not wrestle whatsoever. Jesse Ventura on commentary. Vince McMahon introduces and welcomes us to WrestleMania and Miss Aretha Franklin. Bruno San Martino nowhere to be found in front of those 93,000 fans. Unbelievable about that. Danny Davis will find his way into six-man tag team action, however. Another match Dave Meltzer thinks may come to fruition. The team, wow, how's this for an unlikely team, of Roddy Piper and former nemesis two years strong, Mr. T. Roddy Piper teaming with Mr. T to take on the team of Adrian Adonis and Cowboy Bob Orton, Meltzer's reasoning for all of this is that Mr. T simply needs the work. And we will see Mr. T pop up here during 1987, the WWF, and it is clear he must need the work, but he doesn't make it here to WrestleMania 3. And last but not least, Meltzer says that John Studd will have returned in time for WrestleMania, probably as a babyface. So perhaps we'll see a meeting between Big John Studd versus either King Kong Bundy or Kamala. And I, for one, am thankful that none of those things happen. Now let's go back. There's five matches here on this list of likely WrestleMania matches, and, and we only get one of them, that being Steamboat and Randy Savage. So early speculation for the Melts, not so good. 
And we fast forward a few weeks to the point where we know that WrestleMania 3, the main event now, is likely to be WWF champion Hulk Hogan defending his title against former friend Andre the Giant. And here's what DeMeltz had to say about that. He said, last week we reported the main event of WrestleMania 3 would be Andre the Giant against Hulk Hogan. And it probably will be. However, Andre's physical condition makes that something less than a certainty. It seems Andre's bad back has been causing so many problems that there is concern he'll never be able to make a comeback. Andre hasn't wrestled since leaving for England to make the Princess Bride about four months ago, and his scheduled return in Japan has been scrapped because of the back problems, more than it was a decision made by Vince McMahon. In fact, it was reported in Japan Andre's back was so bad his career in Japan is history. It is said Andre needs to wear a back brace at all times just to move around. Andre has been pulled from all other bookings in the WWF for another month, and if he can't return by mid-February to shoot the heel turn and jump Hulk Hogan angle, an alternate main event will have to be considered. DeMelt says, I'm going to be surprised if they can pull WrestleMania off this year. Really now. And without an Andre Hogan match, I can't think of a main event strong enough to carry the load. We'll have to wait and see. And wait and see we will, Meltz. As we move on, more news. The WWF now in cahoots with the Fox Broadcasting Network. Fox, once upon a time, only a movie production company. Well, as of October 9, 1986, Fox got into TV broadcasting. And in a major move, it appears Titan pulled another coup by getting in with the Fox Network people. Titan starts in January of 87 on the Fox Network station in New York, Channel 5 at the time, and started a few weeks ago on the affiliate in Los Angeles, Channel 11. I can also confirm that the WWF ran on our Fox station here in my area from this time frame all the way into, I want to say, at least the fall season of 93, when things were on the major decline. The story goes on to say, I'm not sure how many stations this will entail, but politically, this is a coup mainly because if the Fox network were to pick a promotion for its station to carry, it wouldn't be one of Titan's competitors. Essentially, if the local Fox affiliates want to air professional wrestling, they have to go with the WWF. Really smart move there by Vince and company. And I, and I have to go back. God, this brings back memories of my childhood sitting in front of the TV. The very first night Fox went into primetime. Sunday night, married with children, Tracy Ullman, eventually Gary Shandling, even that show, remember the show Duet? Well, if you don't, I don't blame you, but I just, I have memories of the original Fox lineups. And though I had a 19-inch TV in my room, for some reason, I guess I just wanted a, a different feel, a different atmosphere. So I went into the kitchen that night and sat down in the kitchen and watched my grandmother's little 12-inch TV that she had over by the stove, where she watched her soaps and things during the day while she cooked and cleaned and did all this type of stuff. And I sat in my kitchen, I remember watching the very first night of the Fox lineup on primetime on Sunday night, but it's so funny to go back 35 years, have those memories, and the WWF getting right in at the jump. Superstars, Wrestling Challenge, Spotlight, all on my Fox affiliate, I'll tell you that. And it's time for Hooray for Hollywood! Let's talk a little bit about a forgotten show that lasted all of one season by the name of Sidekicks. And this was, in fact, a, a martial arts-type show featuring the likes of Gil Gerard of Buck Rogers fame, actor and future stuntman Ernie Rise Jr. as a youngster at the time, uh, also known as Kino from Ninja Turtles 2, and the yummy Nancy Stafford who would go on to play attorney Michelle Thomas, the equal partner 
of one Ben Matlock. One hot dog all the way. Shout out there to the eye of Gibson who has to get that joke. And it's reported on an upcoming episode of the TV show Sidekicks that Ricky Steamboat will make an appearance as, of all things, pro wrestler Ricky Steamboat. And you remember a few weeks ago when Ricky Steamboat was attacked by the Macho Man and taken out with that larynx injury? Well, during that time away, he went off to Hollywood to film this episode of Sidekicks. So during his downtime when he was trying to recover from that terrible larynx injury, Ricky Steamboat, voice box intact, doing a guest spot on Sidekicks. Pretty cool. It's also noted that Jesse the Body Ventura has been filming a second movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger in Hollywood called Running Man. Of course, the first movie with Arnold, Predator, will be out later in 1987. wonder how that movie's going to do. Also, Big John Studd getting ready to appear on an episode of Hunter in the near future. And they claim this is the reason that Studd took time away from the WWF. After getting this guest spot on Hunter, he thought maybe he'd have a shot out in Hollywood. There's also reports of Hulk Hogan supposedly taking time off after WrestleMania 3 in order to film a movie. Now, we know that doesn't happen, at least not until 1988, when Randy Savage takes over as WWF champion. And Hulk Hogan goes off to film No Holds Barred, brother. Are you trying to tell me my money's not good enough for you? I find that a little hard to swallow, you jockass, jockass, jockass! What's that smell? <laughs> and in the here and there department, DeMelt states that there's actually going to be a little Hulkster running around as Hulk Hogan's wife, Linda Balea, is expecting her first child. Now, you may be asking, is this Nick? Is this Brooke? Brooke being the older one, obviously you'd think this would be Brooke. Actually, it's neither, unfortunately. And I'm sad to say this. Uh, I believe Meltzer reports in a March edition of The Observer that uh, Linda loses uh, this child that she's carrying here at the uh, beginning of the year. So very unfortunate news there. Never good to read anything like that. But an interesting fact that I really hadn't even known up until now. There's also reports that Jesse Barr, a.k.a. Jimmy Jack Funk, walked out of the dressing room after being asked a job once too many. Now, I'm not sure if that's a rumor or not, because I have to believe that if Jimmy Jack Funk walked out, they'd have said, don't let the doorknob hit you in the ass on the way out. And uh, we'll see the Funker, or the faux Funker, around here for quite a while still. You may also recall around this time the WWF doing their own version of the Bunkhouse Battle Royal, Come As You Are, in order to screw with the ongoing NWAs Bunkhouse Stampede shows that were taking place at the same exact time period. Take that, pal. How about this for a headline? Loyalist Roddy Piper. On December 3rd in Tacoma, Roddy Piper worked his very first show in the Pacific Northwest for the Titan promotion. Piper had vowed never to work against promoter Don Owen, who always promoted the Pacific Northwest, because Owen had given Piper his first really big break in his career. However, Owen has completely pulled out of the state of Washington by this point, and his operation is now just limited to several cities within a short driving distance of Portland, so Piper appeared in the area where he was once a super favorite. However, Titan was pretty disappointed as Piper drew just over 4,000 fans as he lost to Randy Savage on a countout in the main event of the show. Roddy Piper, once the top draw of the Pacific Northwest, heads back to the territory that made him famous, and some would argue that maybe Piper made the territory famous, along with the likes of Buddy Rose and several others. But Piper returns to Tacoma on December 3rd, 
and draws just over 4,000 fans. 4195 to see Randy Savage versus Roddy Piper. I don't know about you, but I would have been there all day long. But the story goes on as the next night, December 4th, oh, that hot rod. The following day, Roddy Piper missed his main event in Fresno against the macho man Randy Savage, and he was also a no-show for a scheduled court appearance that same day in Fresno in connection with a high-speed chase with police and subsequent car accident. DeMelt says, I guess the strings that Titan pulled to let Roddy back in town weren't important enough. So Roddy Piper avoiding the city of Fresno, at least here in 1987, and well, he won't be back till 89. So be curious to see if old Hot Rod ever popped back up in Fresno results. It's also reported that starting in January, Titan will be running four shows per night. It's actually three, Dave. Which means even if Hulk Hogan carries a full schedule in 1987, they've got three non-Hogan shows to try and draw with. Well, make that two. There is no evidence at all that Roddy Piper, Ricky Steamboat, or even Andre the Giant will be able to pick up the slack in the other cities. One very significant thing that Titan will be doing come January is running a lot more spot shows. And what that is is going into medium and small-sized cities that are abandoned by the territories and left to these smaller indie promotions. Since some of Titan's bigger cities are slightly burning out, now the WWF will try the same ideas on the smaller level. These small cities are what kept groups like the UWF, World Class, the AWA, and the like active in between the regular cities. In most cases, the WWF will work through either a local promoter or a local charity and run a small city two or three times a year. And since the small towns don't get much of a chance to see the WWF stars in person, wrestling is still a viable promotion in those cities. So the WWF, not only an A show, not only a B show, but they will be adding a C show in the smaller towns. Towns in which wrestling really isn't going through right now, feeling that while the attendance will be much smaller, they'll be able to pack the house. And whew, that's it for setting the stage as far as news goes, guys. Lots of news here moving out of 1986 and into 1987, but we're not done yet. There's one more piece of the puzzle here. And pull it up on social media. I've posted it to Facebook. I've posted it to Twitter. And I'll post it again when this show comes out, just so you have a fresh copy. Copies of the chart of the WWF roster leading into 1987. What we're going to do right now is run down the entire chart, both baby faces and heels, even the managers of everyone who was part of the company moving into the new year. We're going to dissect the roster one name at a time. We're going to look at everyone here and what they meant to the company at the time coming out of 1986, moving into 1987. And we'll look at where they go from there. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you can right now, if you're interested, go out there and pull up those charts on Twitter, on Facebook. You'll pull up the 1986-1987 WWF roster chart which has also been made available to our Patreon members over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. It may not be the showdown at the OK Corral, but it was the WWF versus WCW, Raw versus Nitro, the Monday Night War, the Ratings War, the NWO, the Attitude Era. While everyone discusses who won the war, it's truly the battles within the war that made this weekly episodic rivalry so exciting. We break it all down, from episode reviews to backstage news to those ever-important TV ratings. It's Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, exclusively 
as part of the WrestleCopia brand, available on WrestleCopia.com and all of your favorite podcast streaming apps. And for those who need the time to pull the chart up real quick, go ahead and pause this episode of The Grenade. Otherwise, we're going to get rolling here. As I scroll down in my news and notes, I have the chart right in front of me, so we're going to get going here. As we analyze the complete WWF roster here, heading out of 1986, moving into 1987, and right out of the gate, we're going to take a look at the current WWF champions. We start at the top with WWF champion Hulk Hogan, who defeated the Iron Sheik for that heavyweight championship all the way back on January 23rd, 1984. We're coming up on the three-year anniversary of Hulk Hogan as WWF champion, and that's kind of important. That'll come into play here in the feud with Andre the Giant. All I have to say is three years is a long time to be a champion. We move on to the WWF Intercontinental Championship, and of course, the current champion, the Macho Man Randy Savage. He took that title from Tito Santana in the Boston Gardens all the way back on February 8, 1986, prior to WrestleMania II. Randy Savage creeping up on a full year as Intercontinental Champion himself, and of course, the current WWF Tag Team Champions, the British Bulldogs. Davey Boy Smith and the injured Dynamite Kid, and you'll recall they won those titles as part of WrestleMania II on April 7, 1986, in the Chicago portion of the event, by defeating the former champions, the Dream Team of Greg the Hammer Valentine and Brutus Beefcake. And as we break that down and look at it for a minute, Hulk Hogan, the WWF champion for nearly three years, Randy Savage has had the IC belt for nearly a full year, and of course the British Bulldogs right around the corner from being champions for a year. And that's very important here is because if you think back in time to 1986, anything beyond the first week of April, your champions were a lock for the remainder of the year. For at least the final nine months of 1986, you knew Hulk Hogan was your WWF champion, you knew the Macho Man was your IC champion, and you knew the Bulldogs were the tag team champions. And it was very important back in these days to do things like that in order to establish your top stars because I can go around right now today and talk to the casual fans or maybe somebody who just kind of switched on the, the wrestling every once in a blue moon back in the old days, back in the mid-80s, and they'll tell you, yeah, I remember Hulk Hogan. He was the WWF champion. Yeah, I remember the Macho Man. He was champion. I've even had a friend and also a family member who didn't really watch a whole lot of wrestling, but they both, over time, have mentioned the British Bulldogs being the tag team champions. So it's stuck in their head, and they're not even huge wrestling fans. So if you could depend on anything in the WWF in 1986, you can easily depend on your champions, that's for sure. Now we know things will change in that department moving into 1987, and we start at the top of the chart with the main eventers, and there's not a whole lot here for those scrolling along with me on the chart. Right at the top, we have two names in the main event scene, and and very good reason for that, and I'll explain it in a minute. But right now I have, under the babyface's side, the WWF champion Hulk Hogan, and on the other side, the heel side, Well, we know it's coming, so I put him there already. Andre the Giant. Those are our two main eventers right now in the WWF. And the reason you might be asking, what about the Macho Man? What about Mr. Wonderful? Don't worry, they're coming up in just a moment. I'll explain why I don't have them lumped into the main event scene. But as of right now, we know the WWF champion is Hulk Hogan. Automatically the main eventer and automatically a major sell. And Andre the Giant getting ready to make his return, do the heel turn, and challenge Hogan to a championship match at WrestleMania. Those are our big names, but remember, Andre is nowhere near 100%. In fact, we know Andre really won't wrestle until WrestleMania 3, and he'll stay out of the ring after that all the way until Survivor Series near the end of the year. So 
We don't have a whole lot of Andre this year. A lot of other guys are going to fill in that main event top spot between WrestleMania and Survivor Series. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But keep that in mind. Your top two players right now for the first quarter of the year are Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. Not a bad list to have on top, but let's look at the guys right underneath that portion of the card. And those are your semi-main eventers or your upper card talent, if you will. I only got a couple of baby faces and three heels here. There's five upper carders, five semi-main eventers, if you will. On the babyface side, of course, I have Rowdy Roddy Piper and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Reason being, both of these guys have been depended on to headline the B and C house shows as the main event. And obviously, needless to say, it's Roddy Piper and Ricky Steamboat automatically always in your semi-main event, if not the main event of the show. And on the other side, of course, across from Ricky Steamboat is the Intercontinental Champion Randy Savage. He certainly belongs there. And many would argue even in 1986-87, Randy Savage was ready for that main event run. Of course, it'll take a little bit of time still, but there's no doubt Randy Savage working his way to that main event. But right now, just at the tippity top, uh the cream of the crop, the cream will rise, says the Macho Man. But across from Ricky Steamboat, the Macho Man Randy Savage here in the upper card. Also, I said Roddy Piper here in the semi-main event slot. Well, so, for at least right now, is the adorable Adrian Adonis. Now, I might bump Adonis down to the mid card once he's finished his feud with the Hot Rod. But for all intents and purposes, as long as he's feuding with Rowdy Roddy Piper, Adonis is in the forefront on NBC on Saturday night's main event, a headline match at WrestleMania. You can't deny it. Adorable Adrian Adonis in the upper card, at least for right now, while he's in there with the hot rod. These guys are headlining the C-shows at the moment. And the fifth and final upper card talent that I have listed here is Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And you might be saying, Ray, how the hell can you list Paul Orndorff in the upper card, the semi-main eventers, when he's been main eventing with Hulk Hogan for the last four and a half months at the top, drawing huge houses everywhere, as pointed out near the beginning of this episode. Well, I agree. When he was working with Hulk Hogan, he was the main event heel in the promotion for the last several months. However, remember, between being removed from the feud with Hulk Hogan, as well as the recent injuries to Paul Orndorff, forcing him to be in and out of the ring, he's moved down just a rung. And you might be asking, well, wait a minute, though, but he was a main event. Yes, he was. But for the time being, Paul Orndorff moved back down a rung. And I didn't compile this list based on the capabilities of these talents. There's tons of mid-carters that could easily be moved up to the semi-main event, maybe even arguably the main event under the right circumstances. But for the WWF, by January of 1987, these are where these names lie. That is what this chart is based on. And of course, this is all subjective, but overall, I think I think this is a pretty good job of placing everyone where they belong as we move on to the mid-card. And holy shit, here's where the list expands considerably. I'm looking in front of me right now. I'm seeing at least like 38, 38, 36, 38, 39 names, somewhere around there. Nearly 40 names in the mid-card. You heard me right, nearly 40 names just in the mid-card. This is how stacked the roster is here going into 1987. Because as I start to look at these names, just wow. And I want to point out too, for those going along with me, for those looking at this chart. These names are not placed in any particular order. There's no favoritism here. There's no reason or rhyme why the Junkyard Dog is above Billy Jack Haynes or Jake Roberts is below Tito Santana. It's simply these are all the mid-card talents at this time, and I simply typed them up in the order in which uh, I was researching their names. So here we go from the beginning all the way to the end of the mid-card. We're going to look at the baby faces first, then we're going to move over to the heel side. Of the mid card, we start right off with the junkyard dog, JYD. 
For those who don't know, Junkyard Dog was the Hulk Hogan of the Mid-South Wrestling Territory. You have no idea how over this guy was in the Mid-South before Vince McMahon came a-calling and pulled the dog out of the Mid-South in the late summer of 1984, screwed Bill Watts mightily, and the dog came to the WWF with much fanfare, very over early on. Many argue that it was Hulk Hogan that kind of held the dog down. Then again, there's been, you know, rumors over time that Hogan held a lot of guys down when they came into the WWF, and I don't doubt that. And part of me says, hey, that's business, brother. But at the same time, I feel like Hulk really hindered the the mid-card, the upper-card, by keeping guys down that he thought may, may steal his thunder just a little bit. And Dog being one of those, of course, we know Dog also had a lot of issues, lots of substance abuse issues, which we're going to be covering here quite a bit in the next several weeks here on The Grenade. But JYD still very much a mainstay here in the mid-card of the World Wrestling Federation to the point where they, they protect him as best they can. Maybe he doesn't pick up the win every time, but he certainly doesn't do very many jobs either. Also on this list, Billy Jack Haynes. Mr. Oregon himself, boy, you want to talk about a guy that had almost the entire package. Billy Jack, not the best promo guy, but he was certainly competent enough in the ring. He had the looks, the, certainly the WWF looks, that Vince would be looking for. But most of Billy Jack's issues seemed to be he was just his own worst enemy. Short fuse, hot temper, not a good combination, and maybe a little bit of batshit crazy in there as well. All right, and I cheated here a little bit. He's not completely a baby face yet, but it's coming in the next several weeks. Jake the Snake Roberts, who has already been working as what they call a tweener, as is he's been on the house shows working not just some baby faces, but also some of the heels. There have been matches with Jake Roberts against the likes of Macho Man Randy Savage. Would love to see that one. King Kong Bundy, as well as a few other heels. But on the other side, Jake's also been working some of the baby faces. Most recently coming off that feud with Ricky Steamboat, but He's been working the likes of Tito Santana and, yes, even the WWF champion Hulk Hogan. In fact, that's the story of Jake's babyface turn because it's been blatantly obvious. If you go back and even to the fall of 1986, Jake's cool character of being the snake, carrying Damien to the ring and doing that awesome DDT as his finisher, there was really very little to hate about the Jake the Snake Roberts character. And so you'll note many times, more often than not, at least 50% of the crowd solidly behind Jake the Snake Roberts, lots of cheers for Jake, even as a heel working the baby faces, and chance of DDT as the fans want to see that finishing maneuver of his. We fast forward to the end of the year, heading into 1987. They film a episode of The Snake Pit somewhere around this time, reportedly, featuring the guest WWF champion Hulk Hogan. And the story goes, Jake Roberts winds up laying out the WWF champion with the DDT on The Snake Pit. Hogan even does the blade job to get the angle over, and Jake is so excited. He goes to the back. He walks back through the curtains to see Vince McMahon. He's excited because there's money to be made now. He's headed to the main event of the house shows to work Hulk Hogan for the WWF title. Jake's going to be a millionaire in just a matter of a few months. He can taste it. That is until that familiar ring of the crowd as Jake comes back through the curtains, the WWF champion laying out cold from the DDT on the snake pit. What does Vince McMahon hear? But cheers and the chance of DDT, DDT, as their WWF hero Hulk Hogan lays unconscious. This can't be. Vince McMahon informs Jake Roberts that you're screwed, pal, because as we all know, Hulk Hogan's sure not turning heel, and Vince nor Hulk will allow the fans to boo, said WWF champion, and more importantly, they won't allow the fans to cheer his rival opponents. 
And just like that, the feud is over with, though the angle airs in a couple of markets up in Canada and over in Providence, and those matches still have to go down. They are obligated to feature Hulk Hogan versus Jake the Snake Roberts on the top of the cards in those particular markets. So the match does happen at least a couple of times. But then it's abruptly cut short as Jake Roberts begins working some heels. They're testing out the waters to see how this goes on the house shows. Most specifically, his former stable mate down in Georgia Championship Wrestling is part of the Legion of Doom, King Kong Bundy. They'll even have an upcoming match on a future Saturday night's main event. But Jake Roberts, still technically a heel, he's tweening, guys. And by February of 1987, he'll be a full-fledged babyface. Also listed here, and you could arguably even bump him down even lower, I'm sad to say, is the former tag team and Intercontinental Champion, Tito Santana, who has come a long way from his feud with Greg the Hammer Valentine and not in the right direction. Tito has been floundering here. Had a fun match with Junkyard Dog against the Funks at WrestleMania 2, but really no substance behind that for Tito to be involved in that and really kind of floundered after losing the Intercontinental title to Randy Savage back in February of 86. Santana hasn't done a whole lot. For most of 86, heading into 1987, he's had his issues with Danny Davis, but as has many of the mid-card babyfaces. So as for right now, not a whole lot for Tito Santana here in the World Wrestling Federation, and that's unfortunate, a hell of a talent. But that'll all change down the line here in 1987 when Tom Zenk goes cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Now we're going to take a look at uh, several more mid-carders, and I lump these guys all together. They're all actually tag team members. But individually, when split up, they're all utilized as basically mid-carders, for lack of a better term. And that includes the WWF Tag Team Champions, the British Bulldogs, the Killer Bees, Jumping Jim Brunzel and B. Brian Blair, the Rougeau Brothers, Jacques and Raymond, or Raymond, take your pick, as well as Haku and Tama, the Islanders, yes, the Islanders, baby faces, and the newest babyface tag team to burst onto the scene, the team of Rick Martel and Tom Zink, the Can-Am Connection, who are in line for a monster push. You have no idea what they had in store for these guys. And anyone who's known me growing up knows that Rick Martell has always been one of my favorites. I always tell this story. My brother always gets a chuckle out of this. When we were kids, I had over 100 G.I. Joes, around 130 G.I. Joes, and I made them all into wrestlers. I loved it because their elbows bent, their knees bent. Perfect design, Hasbro, for a professional wrestling lineup rather than the big giant rubber LJN guys. It was, it was tremendous fun times. And of course, I had a model Rick Martel. And this was in the late 80s, so there were, it was a little more developed. There was a lot more cartoony guys, the Ultimate Warrior, things like that. And we would have these giant battle royals with our toys, our G.I. Joes, with the old Hasbro ring. And one night, we're having all this fun, and usually almost always the same guys would win. It was always, it was always somebody big on top that we loved, the Ultimate Warrior. Guys like that would win these battle royals that we would do. And one night, I thought it would be fun. I took my Rick Martell, my G.I. Joe of Rick Martell, and I hit it under the announce table on the Hasbro ring, and we competed, we competed, we had the Battle Royal, and we're down to, like, Warrior and Mr. Perfect or something along those lines. And out of nowhere, I yank Rick Martell out from under the table into the ring. He dumps them both. My brother just looked at me like, what the fuck? (laughs) It was was great because I felt bad. You know, even if it's just playing with your toys, I felt bad that Rick Martell never got the big break I thought he deserved. So I gave him a big win. So shout out there to another great memory from my youth, Rick Martell going over in the big battle royal. But yeah, we have lots of tag teams here. We're going to get to the tag team division in a minute. So I just wanted to run through some of these tag teams as part of the mid card. Also back is Blackjack Mulligan, who comes back as kind of a underneath mid carder. Blackjack, I don't want to call him comic relief because that's not really what they were going for here. But Blackjack just having fun with the character. Not so much, not a serious 
run here for Blackjack Mulligan, who's out filming vignettes with the Honey Wagon and all that stuff. Of course, he's already with the company. He was part of the machines. He was the big machine. And now he gets to move over and be himself, the Blackjack Mulligan character, the grandfather of the fiend Bray Wyatt. Also on the roster, and you can question this one about being in the mid-card, but it's hard for me to put him down any lower, is the Rebel Dick Slater, former Mid-South North American champion, former main eventer down in Florida. Dick Slater had been just about everywhere and done just about anything. They say the auto accident that he was involved in down in Texas, coming from San Antonio up to Houston for a show, it was a very severe, nearly fatal car accident. They say Dick Slater in his mind was never the same again. They say he was a little off if you will, but Dick Slater, the wrestler in the ring, and I have no doubt if you could rewound time about five years here, he would have been near the top of the card. Fundamentally sound, tremendous wrestler as a babyface or a heel, but great as a heel. What Vince was thinking, bringing the rebel, the Dixie flag-bearing Dick Slater up to New York City as a babyface, I'll never know, but it just never really got over. I don't even remember Slater cutting a single promo, at least at least off the top of my head here while he was, he had to have cut a promo, I'd have to think. But off the top of my head, I can't remember a single Dick Slater promo, maybe outside of his vignettes headed in, driving the pickup truck and whatnot. But Slater, he won't be long for the Titan world. He came in in 1986, left Bill Watts Mid-South Wrestling at the time. He'll start missing some dates here in March and be gone altogether by May of 1987 in the WWF. This was Dick Slater's cup of coffee here in the World Wrestling Federation. Also in the mid-card, the likes of Birdman Coco Beware. Yes, I know in many instances, you could easily lower Coco down to that lower card tier. And I wouldn't argue it here if that's what you wanted to do with him. The only reason I put Coco here in the mid card is because when he first came in, they were sticking him in matches with lower card guys and tag team matches, letting the partner do the job. Coco wasn't getting very many wins. Then after a couple months, he's got Frankie on his side. He's got the Morris Day in the Time song, The Bird. He's coming to the ring. He's flashy. He's great. A hell of a competitor. I loved Coco Beware down in Memphis, and he was fun also in Mid-South. And hey, who can forget the PYTs? But by the end of 86, moving into 1987, Coco began to hold his own, putting on very competitive matches with the likes of King Harley Race, even did several 20-minute draws with Don Morocco that are actually out there. Some really fun matches against the magnificent Morocco, forcing Don to work. And just a few other names to run through. Hillbilly Jim, need I say more? We know where Hillbilly stands on the card. Hillbilly really lost his spot when he tore out his knee shortly after his debut. Remember, he was... Handpicked from the crowd by Hulk Hogan, super fan Hillbilly Jim, sitting in the front row at the events. He winds up getting trained by Hulk Hogan to become a professional wrestler. He breaks into the ring. He's getting over huge, and then he tears out his knee, and he's out for several months, forcing the WWF to come up with new Hillbillies, while Hillbilly Jim stood in their corner as kind of a manager of sorts. So they bring up old Plowboy Frazier from the Memphis Territory, well beyond his prime. Some may argue he never had a prime. But they bring up Plowboy Frazier as Uncle Elmer. They bring in Cousin Junior, Cousin Luke. Hillbilly finally returns to the ring. All of the other Hillbillies magically disappear by the end of 1986, thank God. But Hillbilly was just never over at the same level again. It felt like it might have been a good time to repackage him, maybe do that biker gimmick he did down in Memphis, or, or something different. Because even for 1980s standards, the old Hillbilly gimmick was really passe. But he made it work. He got it over to the degree he needed to. Hillbilly Jim just too big, too tall, too powerful of a man to, to lower any lower than the mid-card, at least here heading into 1987. Also taking a look at George the Animal Steel, who's been working with Randy Savage off and on for a year now. Unbelievable. Poor Randy Savage. But I got to say this much. 
I honestly enjoy the WrestleMania too. A lot of people give that match negative stars, duds. They're not a fan of the match. There's no wrestling. I got to tell you, for what it was, it's one of the most entertaining non-wrestling matches I've ever seen. Inside, outside the ring, the flower bouquet, the ripping of the turnbuckles, all the gimmicks involved. Randy Savage, whoever was involved in putting that match together, really made the best of it. And I'd have to say the same thing uh, a couple other times. I've seen a few of their matches. Now, I'm not saying every one of their matches is a star-studded attraction, nor am I happy with the fact that Randy Savage gets stuck working George Steele. It felt like five Saturday night's main events in a row, but George Steele, easily part of the mid-card here in the WWF, and last but not least, as part of the mid-card, hasn't even made his official debut yet, though we've seen the vignettes of the Australian by the name of Outback Jack. And the story goes they ran into Outback at a pub down in Australia during one of the 1986 tours, and the agents, the wrestlers, they kind of took a liking to Outback Jack and his blokes. They could really hold their beer. They could really tell some stories. And hey, they were guys from the bush. They were bushmen. Say what you will about Outback Jack in the ring. You had to be a man's man to survive the crocodiles, the snakes, working in the bush, working in the scrubs of Australia. Am I putting Outback Jack over as a wrestler? Absolutely not. I'm simply stating where he was found. And, and everybody says, what in the hell was Vince McMahon thinking? I have to, I have to agree by just by looking at these vignettes. He's a pretty big boy, but he's got a big gut on him. He's going bald in his 20s. He's missing his front teeth. Vince trying to capitalize on the Crocodile Dundee movie. I get it, but Paul Hogan, this guy's not. So they hire this guy out of a bar and then realize he can't wrestle, though there is rumors that he did work for an indie promotion. Now, if he was trained or not, that's another story. But there's rumors that he worked for an indie promotion briefly prior to coming to the WWF all the way back in Australia, at least. That's what I read in the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Take it for a grain of salt, if you will. They bring out back over. He trades with Stu Hart for a week. He goes over to Les Thornton, who, if anybody's going to train you how to wrestle, great job of choosing Les Thornton. Vince McMahon used Thornton as a talent scout of sorts and a trainer of sorts from time to time back in this time period. But it just never seemed to work out for Outback Jack as we move over to the mid-card on the heel side of things. And right at the top of the list, and unbelievable that these guys are even making the mid-card. Some of these names absolutely belong up higher on the card. But again, it goes back to they're just not being utilized in that semi-main event spot right now. This is where they are currently on the cards heading into 1987. And that should say a lot about how stacked the WWF roster is here. Moving into the new year, and right at the top of the list is the man who main-evented WrestleMania two against Hulk Hogan inside the steel cage. It's King Kong Bundy who has been relegated to working the likes of Coco Beware and Jake the Snake Roberts on some of the C-shows. And we know where Bundy is going headed into WrestleMania 3. He'll be teamed up with a couple of the little guys to take on Hillbilly Jim, of all people, and his little buddies as well. So Bundy goes from main eventing WrestleMania 2 to the comedy match, the throwaway match at WrestleMania 3. My, how the mighty have fallen here in just one year's time. But Bundy, still a big name. And they can plug him right in whenever they need to as a main event or semi-main event or whatever they need to do. But for right now, King Kong Bundy in the mid-card, as is other members of the Heenan family, including the King, Harley Race, Hercules Hernandez, who's coming off a big nationally broadcasted match against Hulk Hogan for the WWF title back in the fall of 86 on Saturday night's main event. So yes, Hercules, more of a mid-carder here. He'll be feuding with Billy Jack Haynes in just a few weeks' time. But Herc, given the opportunity to shine on NBC against WWF champion Hulk Hogan. So clearly Hulk trusted Hercules to not only take care of him in the ring to have a decent match, but he trusted Hercules would help the champion look good. So 
Herc always will have that in his back pocket, and it kind of works in his favor again here in another upcoming Saturday night's main event. Also in the mid-card now, and this is kind of screwy, and I'll explain my positioning here in a minute, but here in the mid-card, I have listed the Ugandan headhunter, Kamala. And you might be saying, wait a minute, you just said Kamala's been wrestling Hulk Hogan on the house shows. That's a main eventer. Yes, it is. And you can argue, you can put Kamala right up there in the semi-main event if you want. But on TV, other than laying out the job, guys, having them do stretcher jobs, Kamala coming off the top rope with that big paralyzing splash, there's really not a whole lot of direction for Kamala on TV. And pretty soon he'll fade away into a tag team with Sika, which will definitely have them locked in the mid-card position. Also, as part of the mid-card roster, you have to look at the natural Butch Reed, who hasn't been here all that long. He certainly has the talents and that look that Vince McMahon loves. Not to mention that gimmick. Ha-ha, it's funny, pal. Say what you will, I love the natural Butch Reed. I get that he wasn't over. I get that it wasn't the best wrestling of his career as well. But I had high hopes for Butch Reed here during his natural phase. Unfortunately, he never makes it past the mid-card in the WWF. But here's a guy who does. It's the Honky Tonk Man, who just made his debut a few months ago as a babyface, but the fans, they just didn't like him. Honky, the natural heel, turned heel. Imagine that. By the end of 1986, he's moving into 1987, the upcoming feud with Jake the Snake Roberts. Honky, going to play a big part in turning Jake 100% babyface here, heading into WrestleMania 3, and we know Honky's going to go on to do big things and become a huge semi-main eventer headlining those B-shows and selling them out with the Macho Man. Also in the mid-card, recently back in the WWF, is Dino Bravo, now a heel, managed by the luscious Johnny V. Bravo's still a brunette at this point. He hasn't done a whole lot yet since coming back to the WWF and putting away the lower-tier guys in the opening matches on the house shows. That'll all change by the time we get to WrestleMania 3. Then we look at some of the tag team names here in the mid-card, of course, Brett the Hitman Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the Hart Foundation. Greg the Hammer Valentine, a former Intercontinental Champion. Brutus Beefcake, as well as the Magnificent Morocco, Cowboy Bob Orton, Nikolai Volkov, former WWF Champion, the Iron Sheik, who will stick around here until May 26th when Sheiky gets the boot. Can't wait to talk about that when we get there. Also, Wild Samoan Sika, I talked about that vignette I threw up on YouTube, the vignette that got wrestling banned from my bedroom television, Sika, the Wild Samoan back in the WWF. There's a new tag team set to make their debut by the names of Axe and Smash. Demolition, they'll be portrayed Axe by Bill Eady, the former Masked Superstar, the former Super Machine. Smash, initially, for the first two TV tapings, will actually be portrayed by Moondog Rex, Randy Colley. In fact, it was he and Axe that came up with the idea for the Demolition gimmick. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that in the future weeks. So for right now, we're going to label Axe and Smash as Bill Eady, a.k.a. the Mass Superstar, and Smash as the former Crusher crew chef from Jim Crockett Promotions, Barry Darso. And that's the Smash we'll all come to know and love. All part of the mid-card here and debuting in January of 1987. Up from the Florida Territory is the outlaw Ron Bass. Because we already have a cowboy, Bob Orton. And I guess being an outlaw just, just makes you that much meaner and that much dirtier. And that's where we're at in the mid-card right now. And yeah, you can shuffle some of these guys around. You can argue Ron Bass and Coco could be moved down to the lower tier. You could argue that Kamala could be bumped up a, to a tier higher. Like I said, this is all to a degree subjective, but this is where their win-loss records and their positioning on the cards have them right now 
leading into 1987. As we, as we scroll down a little more to the lower tier and the enhancement talent, the job guys, if you will, here moving into the new year. And quite a few names here as well. And you might be asking, what is going on with the roster this size? Well, remember the WWF doing three shows a night. They need all of this talent. You can't have a main event in every match. And a lot of these guys, the unsung heroes underneath that made the bigger names look good. But some of these names are very familiar names. In fact, some of these names whew, are former world champions, including Pedro Morales, who has simply passed his prime, the former WWF heavyweight champion, Pedro Morales, and a former Intercontinental champion as well. What great matches he had with Don Morocco in the early 80s. And you could still get a little bit of fire out of Pedro here, even going into 1987. But Pedro heading into semi-retirement. He'll be moving off that full-time roster right around WrestleMania time. Right around March of 87, Pedro Morales will begin making sporadic appearances for the company. Also on this list, and you can argue this as well, a tag team, in fact. Why, it's the new U.S. Express, sometimes called the American Express. Not sure how the credit card company felt about that. But the new U.S. Express, Mike Rotunda, returned to the WWF back in 1986, picked up a new partner. Barry Windham did return with him. We know Barry Windham will go on to do big things in the NWA. But Mike Rotunda returns from working Florida, doing shots for Vern Gagne up in the AWA. Now Rotunda back in the WWF, along with his father-in-law, Blackjack Mulligan. Of course, Mike Rotunda, the future IRS, the father of Bray Wyatt as well. Rotunda's new tag team partner. Well, if you look at the hair, you might say it's a Barry Windham clone in Dan Spivey, but certainly... Nowhere near the worker that was Barry Windham. So the new U.S. Express never really gets over. The old U.S. Express, former WWF Tag Team Champions. Lots of jobbing by Rotunda and Spivey, both in tag team and singles here. And the reason I have them on the lower tier, they are the lowest tag team on the totem pole, but that's not even the entire reason why. Another reason why is Mike Rotunda actually leaves the company by February 12th of 1987. Not long for the WWF this time around. He'll eventually go on to Crockett, do the Varsity Club, and of course return back here to the WWF in the early 90s as IRS. And if you listen to the 1993 project, you'll know he even steals Cheesemo's gold. But as for right now, heading into 1987, the new U.S. Express aren't going to be around much longer. Mike Rotunda gone from the company after February 12th, and it's not but a month later. Dan Spivey, remember we talked about that six-week injury, his knee injury that kept him out in the fall of 1986? Well, this time he tears his knee out and Spivey going to be out from March 17th all the way until September of 1987. But one team who is looking for very big things in the year of 1987, the U.S. Express golden boy, Danny Spivey and Mike Rotundo. And Mike, 1986 uh, towards the end was not a real good time of the year for the U.S. Express. Why? Well, Danny's knee injury. Well, you couldn't say that was a plus and a negative. Because I think it got Danny off his rear end. I think that it's given him a great deal of incentive coming back off that injury. Because now he's a veteran. Now 1987 proves to us to be a great, great year. Because Danny's this much more mature than he was a year ago. And so am I. And so is everybody out there. So we're going to use that to our advantage, and we're going to go a long way in 87. We vowed to win a match in every city in the United States. Now, that's going to be hard to do, but it's going to be real fun trying. A lot of hard work, too. Well, Danny, it sounds like, as your tag team partner said, the knee injury may well have turned out to be more of a learning experience for you. That's all right, Killer Ken. It's given me a different attitude. It's given me a bad attitude towards other wrestlers in this business. 
because everyone's going after my knee and everybody's trying to hurt me and put me out of professional wrestling. There's no way you're going to be able to do it. You guys want to hurt people? Well, me and Mike will show you how to hurt people. Get in the ring with us and we'll show you, brother. Well, it sounds indeed like it's going to be a very different U.S. Express for 1987 in the shape of Golden Boy Danny Spivey and Mike Rotundo. Indeed, looking glad, for a lot of challenges. 86 is over, too. We continue on looking at some of the other names. Corporal Kirshner initially brought in as a replacement for the Sergeant Slaughter character. We know how well that got over. And that's no diss on Corporal Kirshner. He's simply no Sergeant Slaughter. Though I did enjoy Kirshner. I didn't mind his feuds with the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov early on. And I always felt bad for him that they kind of just moved him over into this job guy spot. Of course, he had done jobs for the WWF before as a jobber, R.T. Reynolds. Vince McMahon finds out about his background in the armed forces and gives him the gimmick of Corporal Kirshner. And inexplicably, he's just pushed down the card until he's no more than a job guy here at some point in 1987, though. I think they dropped the ball. I think uh, they could have easily done a little more with him than what they had. There was certainly no reason to push him out of the mid-card. I'll, I'll say that much. That's my opinion anyway. And speaking of imposters and replacements, C.V. Afi, another name brought in to replace Superfly Jimmy Snuka. All the way back in 1985, he was actually announced as the cousin of the Superfly upon his debut, and he was called Superfly Afi. Imagine that. Talk about blatantly trying to rip off another character. Superfly Afi was greeted to booze in Madison Square Garden upon his debut, and from that point forward, immediately pushed down the card. Poor guy. An imposter, Superfly Snuka. The crowd never bought into it from day one. Did a very cool fire dance from time to time, but never really got over. And even though he was pretty huge over in New Zealand, even worked on top against Ric Flair in NWA title matches over there in the early part of the 1980s, C.V. Afi here in the WWF just really never got over. Was really not all that great, honestly, even by my opinion, in the ring, at least not here in the mid to late 80s. Afi relegated to a glorified jobber. And it's kind of funny, you know, I go back to the mid-90s. For some reason, C.V. Afi must have had some family living in my area of the world because he would actually come and begin wrestling for the local independent promotion here. And I thought to myself initially, I said, that can't be C.V. Afi. Why would a former WWF wrestler just po randomly pop up in my town and begin working indie shots like eight years later? But sure enough, it was C.V. Afi. In fact, he fell in some hard times and was involved in a bank robbery, served some time in prison for that, but I heard he got out and he turned his life around, and I'm happy. If that's true, I'm happy to hear that. But uh, that's my story on C.V. Afi. Other names here on the undercard include former NWA champion Gene Kaniski's son, Nick Kaniski, as well as the brother of the macho man Randy Savage, Leaping Lanny Poffo, recent hire from the AWA, Brad Rangans, plus other familiar names like Paul Roma, Jimmy Powers, Special Delivery Jones, and one of my favorites growing up in the job guy spot, Jerry Allen. And here's a little trivia for you. Did you know that Jerry Allen, under an assumed name, defeated the macho man Randy Savage down in Memphis for the heavyweight title? Now it only lasted about a week or two before Savage won the belt back, but pretty cool that Jerry Allen was pushed that hard, at least for a couple weeks, down in the Memphis territory. As we move over to the lower tier, the enhancement talent, the job guys, on the heel side of things here, heading into 1987, we start at the top, and it's sad to say, Moondog Rex, a former WWF Tag Team Champion in his own right, by this point relegated to doing jobs for quite a while with partner Moondog Spot, 
but he thought he turned his career around when he and Bill Eady came up with the idea for Axe and Smash of Demolition, and you'll find both of Moondog Rex's matches as part of Demolition as the original Smash, both of those matches up on my YouTube account at youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. But after just a couple of matches, it became apparent with fans at ringside recognizing him through the paint. Even I could recognize him through the paint with that prominent schnoz of his. You could see that that was Moondog Rex. The fans knew it. Vince knew it. And Rex, he was asked to step aside to allow the demolition characters to get over and allow Rex to be replaced with a new smash, which would wind up being Barry Darso. Rex graciously stepped aside to allow Axe and Smash the new smash to prosper. And in return, Rex was promised a job, another tag team, in an attempt to try to get him over. At least at the very least, he was promised to keep a job here for the remainder of 1987. That promise was kept. He will no longer be Moondog Rex. We'll see him in January as Smash of Demolition, the OS, the original Smash, before moving on under a masked character by the name of the Assassin on the house shows, before finally being gifted the new tag team, a masked tag team underneath, known as the Shadows. He'll be teaming with Jose Luis Rivera as part of the Shadows. Picture a poor man's version of the Conquistadors. And ironically enough, Jose Luis Rivera, a member of both the Shadows and the Conquistadors tag teams. But the Shadows, another glorified jobber tag team there. Also on this list on the lower tier, Jimmy Jack Funk, who was actually brought in earlier in 1986, in the spring of 86, to replace Terry Funk as part of the Fighting Funk family. Say that three times fast. But initially, Jimmy Jack Funk brought in, taken seriously as the wild crazy member of the Funk family who was locked in the bunkhouse growing up. And they were utilized as part of the tag team division until Dory Funk Jr. also quits the company. Jimmy Jack Funk, from that point forward, relegated to doing jobs. Also on the list, lots of capable names. Barry O., the brother of Cowboy Bob Orton, the uncle of Randy Orton, Barry O. And you might remember the name of Barry Orton, one of the several names who went public around the turn of the 80s into the 1990s, disparaging the WWF, discussing the steroids and sexual allegations that were being made. But I think in his later years, Barry O. turned things around, changed his tune, uh, but sad to say he's no longer with us. Also on this list, the likes of, well, here's some familiar names, Iron Mike Sharp, as well as the future Brooklyn brawler, Steve Lombardi. Yes, all the way back here, Steve Lombardi working the undercard, as well as one of my favorites, Terry Gibbs. And I had the pleasure of speaking with Terry Gibbs, really Manny Sane, quite a bit back in the late 90s, talking about his career, his time working for Leroy McGurk, Jim Crockett Promotions, Puerto Rico. Really fun, humble guy who typically played the heel job guy here in the WWF. Very competent in the ring. You'll see they utilize him quite a bit. And we can't talk about Moondog Rex being on the job squad without mentioning Moondog Spot, the other half of the Moondogs. Of course, Spotty brought in Larry Latham from Memphis Wrestling, formerly a tag team partner of the Blonde Bombers with the Honky Tonk Man. Picture that. Honky Tonk Man, Wayne Ferris, and Larry Latham down in Memphis, Tennessee. Part of the original concession stand brawl brought up to the WWF as a replacement Moondog for Moondog King, one of the originals. They were tag team champions at the time. King, a Canadian, had went back up to Canada and wasn't allowed to cross the border, returned back to the United States to fulfill his obligations. Obviously, some issues there, and thus Spotty was born. 
the new pup of the Moondogs back in the early 80s was Moondog Spot, and he's been doing jobs here in the World Wrestling Federation for the last several years. Also recently acquired from the Montreal Territory, the future manager of Dino Bravo, Frenchie Martin, doing jobs here. He also, a lot of people don't know this, Frenchie spoke both fluent Spanish and French, of course, being from Montreal. Frenchie worked a lot down in Puerto Rico and, of course, up in his native Quebec. And he hosted not one but two talk show segments here in the WWF, neither of them American. Frenchie, the future painter gimmick here in the WWF, hosted sort of a, a art studio talk show both on the Spanish and French versions of WWF TV. Also still here heading into 1987, and I really can't believe this one, is the former Kim Duck, the former Tiger Taguchi. He's Tiger Chung Lee here, well past his prime. Not the best on the offense or at taking bumps here by 1987 standards, but still one big tough guy. Tiger Chung Lee still here, part of the WWF. Also, Pete Doherty, the Duke of Dorchester, who is uh, quote-unquote retired a time or two by this point, but continues to work at least up in the Northeast for the World Wrestling Federation. Love the Duke. If you guys have a chance to go to YouTube or go back even to the Peacock, the uh, All-Star Wrestling WWF TV episodes from the 70s, do yourselves a favor and check out the Duke of Dorchester. Pete Doherty under the hood is the Golden Terror. Some really fun stuff there. And they even gave Doherty a shot at uh, doing some commentary a time or two. And it's, it's some rough stuff to listen to. And last but not least, usually a babyface in this right, but recently he's been rechristened under the hood as the Red Demon. You guys know him as Jose Luis Rivera, Mac Rivera under the babyface role. By this point, that was tiring out. They began putting the hood on him, giving him the Red Demon moniker here on the undercard, Jose Luis Rivera. And soon he'll be repackaged again under another mask as one half of the Shadows with Moondog Rex and eventually one of the Conquistadors. An honorable mention here to referee Danny Davis, who was working off and on under the hood as the masked Mr. X over the last couple of years here in the WWF as well. And that will stop here shortly if it hasn't already, because we know what's to come here for Danny Davis heading into 1987. And we're almost done now, guys, as we move on to the tag teams of the World Wrestling Federation. Coming out of 1986 at the top, you can't argue this. It has to be the tag team champions. The British Bulldogs, Davy Boy Smith and the Dynamite Kid. How long will that last due to the recent injury? The back injuries, the knee injuries, the shoulder injury to the Dynamite Kid. But as of right now, one of the top tier tag teams in the WWF, absolutely their champions, the British Bulldogs, as well as the brand new tag team of the Can-Am Connection, Rick Martell and Tom Zink, getting pushed straight to the top, a rocket ship on their back, straight to the moon. Watch out for the Can-Am Connection. One team that has been taking the World Wrestling Federation by storm with the kind of buildup the Can-Am Connection has been receiving. Talking about Tom Zink and Ricky Martel. Rick, wherever you go, promoters, other wrestlers, fans alike, talking about you and Tom second to none. Well, thank you, Ken. It's nice to hear. You know, when the Can-Am Connection joined the W. You know, we knew we were going to be in for some tough competition. And believe me, we're not disappointed, not one bit, because, you know, the tag team competition right here, you know, right now we got some, you know, the best tag team, you know, in the world. And, you know, we got our work cut out for us. And, you know, nevertheless, you know, we, we're working out very, very hard in that gym. And we're making sure that we're going to be in tip-top shape, you know, for whoever we're going to meet. We're going to, you know, work our way up in that ladder. 
Well, Tom, it's certainly a long road to hold to get a title shot against the current champions of British Bulldogs. A lot of teams in your way, certainly coming foremost to mind. The Hart Foundation, the Dream Team, Greg Dammer, Valentine, and Brutus Beefcake, even Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. That's right. The list goes on and on. The new team, Demolition. There's a lot of teams in the WWE. And like Rick said, the Can-Am connection, what we're about is 100%, because that's what we give in the ring, 100%. And the Can-Am connection, it's the people too. That's the connection. Rick's from Canada, I'm from America. And the people, you're part of that connection because you're behind us and you support us. And we'd like to say thank you for the terrific support and all the cheers and the yelling and screaming that you do when we come to the ring because we appreciate you fans. We'd just like to say thank you. Well, Gorilla, there's no question we'll be hearing a lot more of the Can-Am connection in weeks and months to come. As well as another babyface tag team who felt slighted, sometimes passed by. Claim they were promised the WWF Tag Team titles on three different occasions, and it never came to fruition. I'm talking about jumping Jim Brunzel and B. Brian Blair, the Killer Bees, who have added a mask now to their gimmick so that they can cheat as well in order to beat the cheating heels. I like that they added that to the gimmick. It gave them something to do, but even still, these guys never made it past the mid-card. But they hung around for several years here in the mid to late 80s as the Killer Bees. All right, Madison Square Garden, Monday night, February the 23rd. A lot of tag team action, six-man elimination match. The Islanders versus the Demolition Team. And my guest at this time, Jim Brunzel, B. Brian Blair, the Killer Bees, going against the Hart Foundation. And Brian, they've got to be considered one of the top contending tag teams right now in the world. Well, that's right, Mean Gene. You know, Jumpin' Jim and I, we've been traveling from coast to coast. But now we're coming to the city where wrestling means the most. You know... Jimmy and I ate so much honey today that I am so excited. I got so much energy. Mean Gene, my toes started tapping and my wings started flapping because I knew we were getting ready for some back, for some jaw jacking and for some back cracking. And you know, when you talk about Madison Square Garden, Gene, we're talking about the largest hive in the world because when all the little killer bees out there start buzzing, Jimmy and I get so excited. Oh God, I just don't know what to do till we get there. All right, Jimmy Bronzell, the Killer Bees right now are on a roll, so well, to speak. Well, we'd like to think so, Gene. You know, we busted out of that hive in 1985, and we've been patient, we've been positive. We set our goal for one thing, and that's to be the world's tag team champions. And right now, the hearts are standing in our way. Everybody remembers the fact that we did beat them on, right on national TV on NBC, Saturday night main event, and we're going to do everything in our power to do it again in Madison Square Garden. All right, gentlemen, it's going to be a big one for you. The Hart Foundation versus the Killer Bees. Part of the action at Madison Square Garden Monday night, February the 23rd. Get your tickets in advance. Another tag team in the same boat, at least right now, not really getting over with the fans, and that's Jacques and Raymond, or as I call them, Jacques and Raymond, the Rougeau brothers, or as Vince McMahon calls them, even back here in the babyface era, the fabulous Rougeau brothers. Now, Raymond had all sorts of talent in the ring. Jacques Rougeau, easily the talker of the two, and certainly the personality of the two, but they never really got over with the fans here as baby faces, and thus they never really got any form of a push until they found their niche. They took Jacques Rougeau's real-life personality as a natural heel. Eventually, the Rougeaus will go heel, but not here in 1987. We'll see the Rougeaus flounder around here in the mid-card all throughout this year. But ever since bursting upon the scene, it certainly burst they did, the Rougeau brothers, Jacques and Raymond, have put together one of the most impressive one-loss records anybody has witnessed in a very long time. And you two gentlemen, brothers that you are, deserve a great deal of credit and have got to be considered as prime contenders for the titles currently held by the British Bulldogs. Thank you very much, Kenny. You know, we feel very enthusiastic about the situation. I mean, we're really pleased with our record and we're pleased about the whole United States and everybody that's in it. We've been having a great time here with the World Wrestling Festival. 
Federation. We've been climbing up the ladder slowly, and we're being very patient, and we're waiting because we know good things come to those who wait. And eventually, they're not going to have any choice but to give us our championship match. So we're really going to keep on what we've been doing, and we're going to stick together like we've been doing. Well, Jacques, there's no question you and your brother have had some tremendous battles with the likes of the Hart Foundation, the Dream Team, Greg the Hammer Valentine, and Brutus Beefcake. But let me ask you, I know certainly you're gunning for a title shot against the Bulldogs, but there's some friendship, some camaraderie that exists between you two. It might be tough to get ready for that kind of a match. Well, you know, Kenny, that's the only sorry thing that I'm really sorry about is that someone else is not champions because the British Bulldogs are our friends. And it makes it hard for us to make friendship and competition. If we had to go in the ring with the British Bulldogs, we'd go in to win. But we know you people out there like the British Bulldogs because we like them. So we know you like them. So if the Hart Foundations were champions or if British, I mean, Beefcake and Valentine were champions, we know we could beat them because we've beat them before so the important thing now is like my brother said is to wait for our chance we'll get our chance someday and until then we're going to hold on and we're going to hope you guys wait for us. another tag team to talk about here is the islanders haku and tama who formed back in august of 1986 prior to that both men's singles competitors haku of course king tonga tama the former tonga kid who got his start here in the wwf at the age of 18 think about that Got his first push here during the Snooka and Piper feud at the age of 18. And Tama reportedly another guy uh, with a screw loose, but I can't say that for certain. Also, here's another fun trivia bit. Tama, the twin brother of Rikishi. That's Head Shrieker Fatu. But here in 1987, moving into 87, the Islanders still baby faces at this point. Haku and Tama, and last but not least on the babyface side of the tag team division, at least for the next couple months. It's the new U.S. Express. We talked about them already, Mike Rotunda and Dan Spivey. So we move on to the heel side of things. We've got five teams sitting here on the heel side of the roster. And right at the top, Brett the Hitman Hart, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the Hart Foundation, the next in line for the WWF Tag Team titles. But it wasn't always planned that way. You see, I don't know what the actual plan for was with the Bulldogs dropping the WWF Tag Team titles. As far as I know, there was really nothing set in stone for the foreseeable future with the Bulldogs' as champion up until Dynamite Kid's injury. However, upon their injury, once they realized they could get the belts off of the Bulldogs, Vince McMahon's initial suggestion for the new tag team champions were the team of the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. Talking about old guard. Vince McMahon just finding it hard to move on from the guys who are starting to move past their prime. But the story goes, Dynamite refused. Hey, I'll come back and drop the titles. But there's only one team that I'll come back and drop the titles to, and that's the Hart Foundation. Of course, Dynamite and Davy Boy have ties to the Calgary Stampede area. Davy Boy married to one of the Hart family sisters, Diana Hart. Both of the Bulldogs got their start in North America working for Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling. Of course, Dynamite even living still up in Calgary at this point, moving into 1987. So it all makes sense. Plus, hey, if you ask me, the Hart Foundation, the only team on this list I'm looking at right here in front of me that deserve to be the WWF Tag Team Champions. If it's not the Bulldogs, I say give it to the Hearts. Heart Foundation at the top of the list. And right underneath them, you have to look at other teams like the former Tag Team Champions, the team that the Bulldogs beat for the belts, Brutus Beefcake and Greg the Hammer Valentine, as well as other former Tag Team Champions and the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov, plus the recently formed team of the Magnificent Morocco and Cowboy Bob Orton, and the sometimes team and sometimes singles wrestlers off and on the tag team of Kamala and the Wild Samoan Sika. You could even lump in here in the tag team division. But Kamala and Sika not really being given a push as a tag team here. So 
They factor in here on my list as a tag team as well as as a singles. But I think when you run over this list of names, the Can-Am Connection just too new to the company. So I say out of all of these teams, baby faces and heels, there's only one team here that deserves to dethrone the Bulldogs as the tag team champions, and that's the Hart Foundation. I think at the end of the day, the Bulldogs, Vince, whoever you want to say, made the right call and gave the belts to the right team. Now, we have talked so many days about the tremendous competition here in the World Wrestling Federation for the Tag Team Championship currently held by the British Bulldogs, Dynamite and Davy Boy. But one team that has certainly emerged as number one contenders by virtue of their non-title win over the British Bulldogs on national television, speaking, of course, of the Hart Foundation, Brett the Hitman Hart and Jim the Anvil Nyhart, although a lot of people feel that referee Danny Davis was not, shall we say, totally impartial in that non-title win. He's a great reverend. He's a jam-up guy. We are going to party, baby. We're going to dance like Egyptians. <laughs> but the foundation will drink no wine before it's time. And Hitman, I am so thirsty. Not one little drop of Monet Chandon is going to touch our lips until we have those belts. I'm so thirsty, I can't stand it. It's like I'm on the oasis in the desert. I've got to have some champagne, and I'll do anything for it. Ken, the Bulldogs, they were a pretty good team. They did all right for a while. And then the Hart Foundation arrived on the scene, and now everyone knows that the Foundation is right on their heels. And you're looking at the next world heavyweight tag team champions right here. Right here. And the Bulldogs pretty soon will be back in England. Drinking their little lemon lime shandies and listening to their wham records. And thinking about the good old days when they were the champions. You're looking at, and you continue to look at, the next world heavyweight champions for a long, long time. Shut them up, Bulldogs. Clean them up and get them ready. And we move on down the list. And this is more about names just coming in. They'll be part of the WWF here shortly. One of those being the enigma that is Tom McGee. Is he an undercard guy? Is he a mid-card guy? It's hard to say because he was scoring wins every night, but he was never actually acknowledged on WWF TV during this time period. So Tom McGee is there, but he's not really there, if you know what I mean. Other names include soon-to-be referee-turned-wrestler Dangerous Danny Davis, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. On his way into the company, you may have noticed I omitted a name in the undercard, and that is Scott McGee, who was a phenomenal talent here for the World Wrestling Federation underneath, also wrestled up in Stampede under the name of Garfield Ports, the son of Jeff Ports, another longtime wrestler. And the only reason I didn't mention Scott McGee on the list is because he's gone here by the end of January in 1987. McGee had just returned from an injury but he's not back very long before he's gone from the company altogether. And eventually, sad to say, he'll suffer a stroke and that will cut his career short. Also headed back directly after WrestleMania 3 will be the Olympic strongman, Kim Patera. And while Dave Meltzer suggested that Big John Studd would soon be making his return to WWF television, the reality is we won't see Big John Studd again until January of 1989 when he makes his way to the Royal Rumble. Also now part of the WWF are the Federettes, the lovely ladies around ringside, the ringside girls who take the jackets and the guard from the wrestlers. And I'm not sure what to make of this one, because if you go back in time, you'll see superstar Billy Graham had entered the WWF, began airing vignettes 
of his way into the World Wrestling Federation back in 1986. He suffered a setback and injury, one of many, and the superstar gone from WWF television just about as quick as he came in 1986. He'll reappear here later in 1987. I don't know if there was actually a contract in place, but I feel like the superstar at this point has his ties to the World Wrestling Federation. They're just waiting for him to be able to recover, rehab, and return here later in this year. As we move on briefly, we look at the managers here in 1987, and we got a few of them. Of course, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, now also the Colonel, as he has recently acquired the Honky Tonk Man, as well as the Hart Foundation, Brett and Neidhart, as well as the adorable Adrian Adonis, and soon the wrestling referee, Dangerous Danny Davis. We move on and look at King Curtis Iakea, a.k.a. the Wizard here in the World Wrestling Federation, managing both Kamala and Sika the Wild Samoan. Mr. Fuji has his hands full with the magnificent Morocco and now also Cowboy Bob Orton as they are now a tag team. And there's actually even a promo of Bob Orton announcing Mr. Fuji as his new manager here. And this Wednesday night at ACC, the 20-man $50,000 bunkhouse battle royal. Now remember, there are no rules. Wrestlers can wear anything they choose to the ring. The list of entrants, literally a who's who of the World Wrestling Federation, but one man who entered and surprised a lot of people by so doing the very dapperly attired, I might add, Mr. Fuji. Thank you, thank you very much. You look very beautiful yourself, boy, sir. But let's get down to business. 20 men, $50,000. It's lots of money. And it's very dangerous. Oh, I love dangerous sports. I love to see all you wrestlers crying, pain, and scream. I love it. I love to see your bones broke one by one. That's but, horrible. Oh, thank you very much. But now I have help because we have secret plan. Bob Orton, where are you? Hi, here's my well, now, What do you say? You're going to work together? Hey, man, Mr. Fuji, the most evil, the most... Ooh, ooh, man, sinister man in professional wrestling is my manager now. So, yes, we are going to work together. The boss of the bunkhouse, Blackjack Mulligan, thinks that he's going to just rid the ring of people, but it's not going to happen. It's going to boil down to you, Mulligan, me, and Mr. Fuji. And you know what's going to happen then? We're going to tear you apart, boy. We're, oh, man, it's so great. So great the way Mr. Fuji's got me thinking now. The dark side. It's what we want, man. We want you, Mulligan. We want to put you out of professional wrestling and out of that ring and take the $50,000 home where it belongs, man, with us. <laughs> yeah. And just a few more managers to look at before we close out this edition of The Grenade. Of course, the lovely Elizabeth, manager of the current Intercontinental Champion, the Macho Man Randy Savage. Need I say more? And as we all know, they'll both go on to do bigger and better things as 1987 progresses, as well as into the future here in the World Wrestling Federation. So we move on to Luscious Johnny V, formerly Luscious Johnny Valiant, though Vince McMahon eventually comes down with the directive that, hey, Jim Crockett has handsome boogie-woogie man Jimmy Valiant. Woo, mercy, baby, handsome boogie-woogie. On-screen kayfabe brother Jimmy Valiant working over in Jim Crockett promotions, so we can't have a Valiant here in the World Wrestling Federation, and thus, Johnny Valiant becomes luscious Johnny V, currently the manager of the former tag team champions Greg DeHammer, Valentine, and Brutus Beefcake. In fact, he's managed Brutai since his debut here in the WWF back in 1984, so they've been together a very long time. Very interesting note going into 1987. Also recently returned to the company, Dino Bravo, 
now heel Dino Bravo, managed by Johnny Valiant. Sorry, Johnny V. And I'm sure some people don't know this, but Johnny V also the initial manager of Axe and Smash Demolition for the first few months before that's taken over by Mr. Fuji. Johnny V, the original manager of Demolition. Of course, there's always the Doctor of Style Slick, who seemingly bought out co-manager Classy Freddie Blassie for the full rights to his men back in the fall of 1986. Of course, that being Nikolai Volkov, the Iron Sheik, former tag team champions, Sheiky Baby, former WWF champion, former WWF champion, Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. Slick did have his hands on Hercules Hernandez, but sold him away to Bobby the Brain Heenan. Bobby the Brain Heenan taking the contract of Hercules and dropping the name Hernandez from the Mighty One. And in place of Hercules, Slick brings in the natural Butch Reed. So the Doctor of Style right now managing the likes of the natural Butch Reed, the Iron Sheik, and Nikolai Volkov. And of course, I saved the best for last one, Bobby the Brain Heenan and his Heenan family. Current manager, the likes of, well, we just talked about it, the Mighty Hercules purchased that contract from Slick and immediately... Hercules goes into Saturday night's main event to take on WWF champion Hulk Hogan. So Bobby Heenan doing well here in his stable, sorry, his family. As we look up and down the lineup, it's a who's who of main eventers, both past and present. Of course, the King, Harley Race, joined the stable in 1986. King Kong Bunny wrestled Hulk Hogan in the main event of WrestleMania 2. Hey, wait a minute, two kings? Not only two kings in the WWF, King Kong Bundy and the King Harley Race, but two kings... In the same stable here. That wouldn't happen today, pal. And of course, the man who's been giving Hulk Hogan a run for his money for the past five months, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff at the top of this list, at least for right now. Because while Bobby Heenan lost Big John Stud at the end of November, he's going to be gaining another giant. Andre the Giant, soon to be managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan. Look at that roster right there of men. Andre the Giant, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, King Kong Bundy, former multiple-time NWA World Heavyweight Champion Harley Race, and Hercules, who makes a tremendous closer for the Heenan family. The only thing missing here in the Heenan family is a tag team. But Bobby will take care of that later here in 1987. And that'll wrap up this portion of the grenade. I hope you guys had fun scrolling through this chart of all the talent. Over 70 wrestlers currently employed by the World Wrestling Federation. An unbelievable over 70 wrestlers. And you needed that between TV tapings and, of course, three house shows per night. You're talking seven, eight matches per house show. That's 18, maybe even 20 guys working on each show. So lots of talent here, needless to say, heading into 1987 and more on the way in. You know, when I began my research, I got so busy getting excited over who I was going to be able to cover moving into 1987 that I really, it really didn't dawn on me all the names that will wind up arriving later in the year. Of course, we already touched on Kim Patera coming in after WrestleMania. Danny Davis going to be moved over to a full-time wrestler. Eventually, superstar Billy Graham will be back. I eat T-bone steaks. I love barbell plates. I'm sweeter than a German chocolate cake. Can't wait to see the superstar back in the World Wrestling Federation. But take a look at this list. Listen to this, guys. Here is a short list of some of the talent still coming in here in 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. Killer Khan, Ravishing Rick Rude, the One Man Gang, Bam Bam Bigelow, and manager Oliver Humperdinck. We get to relive the original Million Dollar Man vignettes when Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase arrives along with his bodyguard Virgil. Hey, hey, Virgil back here on the grenade. Plus, we'll see the debut of the Dingo Warrior, who will quickly be renamed the Oh 
Ultimate Warrior. Warrior Man here. Vince McMahon decides he's going to let the ladies shine here. By the end of 1987, some of the ladies coming into the company right now, you may have heard of this young lady, the sensational Sherry heads over from the AWA to the WWF in an attempt to rejuvenate the WWF ladies' title. Plus, we'll see a little bit of Rock and Robin by the end of the year, and the one I'm looking most forward to, it's the Glamour Girls, Leilani Kai and Judy Martin, managed by Jimmy Hart, taking on the team of the Jumping Bomb Angels. Norio Tateno and Itsuki Yamazaki. Going to be fun stuff when we get there in 1987. Plus, as Roddy Piper retires, no man can replace the Piper's pit. That's been proven already. But what about a woman? Missy Hyatt is hired by the WWF here in March of 1987. We're going to analyze and dissect all of the Missy's manners that never made air. Can Missy Hyatt replace the hot rod? We'll talk all about it in a few weeks here on The Grenade. Plus, Mr. T will return to the company, acting as a short-term special enforcer referee. We'll even discuss the brief stint of Chavo Guerrero. No, not Chavo Guerrero Jr., but rather his father, Chavo Classic. We'll talk about his short stint here in the WWF in 1987 and how it came to an abrupt halt. Interesting story there. Plus, announcer Craig DeGeorge, the AWA's Nick Bockwinkle, comes in to work for the office and what proves to be a major hire from the Houston wrestling office, Bruce Pritchard is hired here in 1987 by the WWF, the future brother love, plus Polish power Ivan Putski is back, given some dates, no doubt for his physique alone, plus the likes of Crippler Rip Oliver, Sam Houston, Scott Casey, Brady Boone, Boris Zukov will come in to form the Bolsheviks, Jose Estrada back in the WWF, and he'll be teaming up with Jose Luis Rivera eventually later on near the end of the year as the Conquistadors. This is also the year for Piledriver, the wrestling album, which means awesome music videos, including the Doctor of Style Slick eating Yardbird before leaping a big wheel and singing Jive Soul Bro. Good shit, pal. Plus the Slammy Awards return. That should be fun to cover. And the infamous Legends Battle Royal takes place. In 1987, yes, that Legends Battle Royal, the one that caused the Macho Man to hold a grudge for the duration of his life. And last but not least, we got to talk about it just briefly here. The WWF adds a second pay-per-view. What would become the Thanksgiving night tradition? The Survivor Series debuts here in 1987. So there's all kinds of things to look forward to as we continue on. All we did today was set the stage for the upcoming year. Imagine what's to come. More fun to be had, more stories to be told, more information to be given, and more sound bites to enjoy. I gotta thank you guys so, so very much for sticking with me. I had a blast doing this episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And if you have the time, do me a favor. Tell your friends about this episode of the Grenade. Let's get some new listeners going here. It's your word of mouth that brings new listeners to the Grenade. If you have any wrestling friends or family members who enjoyed this era of professional wrestling and may want to relive it, or are looking to study the history of professional wrestling. This is a great piece, I feel like. Moving forward, you guys can tell your friends to check it out. And also, no matter which streaming app you might be listening to us on, whether it's Apple or Spotify, Google Pod, whatever the case may be, can you go in there and give us that five-star rating? Let our streaming apps know that the Wrestling Grenade is where it's at. Leave us a little feedback. Let us know how we're doing. We'd really appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you, the loyal listeners, for being here with me for episode 58 of the Wrestling Memory Grenade as we set the stage 
for the World Wrestling Federation in 1987. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hall's mentholiptus cough tablets. Vapor action penetrates to help your stuffy nose feel clearer. Hall's soothes your throat, helps your cough. All right, guys, and that wraps things up. We have set the stage for 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation, and what a fun show it was. Covering all of those news and notes coming out in 1986. Looking forward to everything coming here in 1987. We know Andre the Giant is back. He'll be making several appearances upcoming on the set of Piper's Pit. In fact, it won't be too long before we get that big angle between Andre and Hulk on Piper's Pit, a big part of what sells the upcoming WrestleMania 3 show at the Silverdome. Plus, you have to think, Danny Davis's days as referee have to be numbered. Even Jack Tunney has to realize what's going on at this point. We talked about the injuries to Paul Orndorff as well as the Dynamite Kid, and we're going to see how that's going to affect the tag team division moving forward. And the blood feuds, they rage on between Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and the Macho Man Randy Savage. We're going to see Steamboat's return here next week on The Grenade. Also, Rowdy Roddy Piper and Adrian Adonis continue their feud. In fact, they'll be in action here next week on The Grenade. It's next week's episode. We cover all of the January news and notes for 1987, and we analyze and dissect, and what a fun time it was going back through this, the January 3rd, 1987 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event, headlined by WWF Champion Hulk Hogan, defending his title against Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff inside the 15-foot-high steel cage. This could wind up being Orndorff's chance to take the title. It could also be the blow-off to the feud, or you could leave things wide open. We're going to talk about all of those different options here next week on the show. Also, as part of Saturday night's main event, finally, one-on-one on national TV, it's Rowdy Roddy Piper taking on his foe, adorable Adrian Adonis. We're going to see the King Harley Race Step in the ring with the Junkyard Dog. Intercontinental Champion Randy Savage defending the title against George the Animal Steel. But the Animal, he has a big surprise for the Macho Man. Plus, in the Battle for Texas, it's the returning Blackjack Mulligan taking on Jimmy Jack Funk. I know you guys don't want to miss that one. So next week, right here on The Grenade, we're going to talk all about January's news and notes. And we're going to do a deep dive into the January 87 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. So lots of news, notes, some interesting takes, and a whole lot of fun sound bites. On episode 59, that's next week here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And a reminder, the Grenade is looking for a new co-host, WrestleCopia. The podcast network looking for new co-hosts. Great time to jump in here on the Grenade for 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. Also great time to jump in as co-host of the Monday Warfare program as we're headed into the NWO era of WCW and things will never ever be the same again and all you need in order to join the wrestling memory grenade monday warfare or any of our wrestlecopia podcasts if you're looking to be a co-host full-time part-time whatever the case may be all you need is a microphone the ability to use skype messenger and a little bit of free time to record some shows that's all i need from you guys you can contact me about becoming a co-host here at wrestlecopia by emailing me at wrestlecopia at gmail.com that's wrestlecopia at gmail.com or dm me on twitter at wrestling grenade and speaking of twitter you guys can follow me on twitter at wrestling grenade that's at r-a-s-s-l-i-n grenade home of the free prize giveaway also follow and like us on facebook facebook.com slash wrestling grenade all you have to do is follow us on twitter or facebook or both and you're automatically entered into each and every future free prize giveaway that we do 
Once again, a big congratulations to Olivia Anderson of Dundee, Scotland. Scotland. Also, I suppose, to her husband, Harris Anderson. That's two S's. Not Harris, but Anderson. In all seriousness, congratulations once again to Olivia Anderson, who won four decades of wrestling magazines, four magazines, 1952, in the 60s, into the 70s, and into 1984. A big congratulations there. And remember, in a week or two, we're going to announce our next upcoming free prize giveaway. And it all ties into the WrestleMania 3 episode of The Grenade. Also, be sure to head on over to youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. It's our YouTube channel, guys. That URL, again, is youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. You'll find a ton of fun footage there that coincides with several projects of the grenade. Lots of NWA 1989 footage up there, WWF and 1993 footage, the USWA versus WWF crossover feud of 1993. And most recently, I began adding lots of fun 1987 from the World Wrestling Federation there. Even a 1981 Stan Hansen promo for the fun of it as Hansen's getting ready to step into the ring at Madison Square Garden to take on WWF champion Bob Backlund inside a steel cage. I even went back in time to the fall of 1986. It was the segment that got professional wrestling banned from the TV in my bedroom. It is the Sika vignette. As Sika, the Wild Simone, headed back to the World Wrestling Federation, his manager, the Wizard, cuts a lengthy three-minute promo about Sika's return, both on the beach and in the jungle. We see Sika and the Wizard. Well, it woke my wife up one night. She asked me, what the hell are you watching? And from that point forward, it's been a pretty much unspoken rule that Probably not a good idea to watch wrestling in the middle of the night in the bedroom. So I have to thank the wizard, King Curtis I.K., and his lovely voice for getting it banned. But I've recently added that vignette to YouTube as well as several others and tons more to come. So you guys want to always check back and be sure to subscribe to YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And now more than ever is a great time to be a patron, a WrestleCopia patron, that is, as our new revamped and all new WrestleCopia Podcast Network Patreon account which you can find over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, over a dozen tiers to choose from. But I have to recommend the $5 all-access tiers. Get you five gifts, $5 for five gifts. And that includes our insanely detailed show notes of both the Grenade and the Monday Warfare show, early access to many of our podcasts, unedited versions of TR Shocks the World featuring Tom Robinson, and yes, of course, our Patreon watch-along series featuring tons of WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Saturday night's main event, and so much more. And now added to the $5 all-access tier, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. What makes them remastered, you ask? These episodes feature enhanced sound quality and new content initially edited out of the original broadcast of the shows. And you get all of that. For the low, low price of $5, no subscription, cancel anytime, give it a go for a month. I think you'll like the content we offer, and every penny of it goes right back in to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please help us pay the bills and keep WrestleCopia up and running for a long time to come. And with all of that out of the way, it's time to say goodbye, but we will be back next week with episode 59 of The Grenade. Once again, I want to thank everybody for sticking with me. Again, I apologize for the congestion in my voice. But I had two options, either wait the sinus infection, this allergies, whatever this is, wait this out before putting out a show or giving you guys the content you deserve. And I feel like I made the right choice. So we'll be back next week, episode 59 of The Grenade, talking all about January of 1987 in the WWF, analyzing the January 3rd edition of Saturday Night's Main Event, Hulk and Orndorff in the Cage. 
So until then, this is Ray Russell saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there. Savage, you are a priority in my career right now. Slap your face and put you against the wall.